Porcelain Utopia by Jonathan Harnish published by Babadood Press 36 Mary Quita Lane Corrales, New Mexico 87,048 United States of America While the publishers and the author have taken every care in preparing the material included in this work, any statements made as to the legal or other implications of any transaction, any particular method of litigation or any kind of compensation claim are made in good faith purely for general guidance and cannot be regarded as a substitute for professional advice. Consequently, no liability can be accepted for loss or expense incurred as a result of relying on particular circumstances on statements made in this work copyright Jonathan Harnish 2015. All rights reserved, no part of this publication may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system or transmitted in any way or by any means, including photocopying or recording, without the written permission of the copyright holder, application for which should be addressed to the publisher. Crown copyright material is reproduced with kind permission of the controller of Her Majesty's Stationery Office, British Library cataloging and publication data. A catalog record for this book is available from the British Library, ISBN 13. ISBN 10, printed in the United States of America and Great Britain Part 1, Dr. C. Meet Benjamin J. Screeber and finished intro buffer of a thought Ben, what are your goals in therapy Dr. C. asks, I should have known she would ask me that, I should have guessed, it's always the first question, it's the first session, but I really can't answer her yet, why not, she would probably ask the next thing, and I would have to say, because, because, because I've got a big fat gut full of hatred, yeah, I know, I know, and all those new age self-help audiobooks I've downloaded to help me cope really aren't doing shite, I guess I thought, or Dr. C thought, maybe, somebody thought, I might be able to grab onto one of those brand new self-help ideas and believe that we are all secretly psychically interconnected, we have an innate power of intention that creates our reality, or some such shite, and that just thinking those noble bullshite new age thoughts would help me, heal me, make me a better, or at least give me a decent reality to start with, better than this whole sick psych war bullshite I'm stuck with, this whole schizo effective, neurotic, borderline psychotic whatever, you call that reality, but the more I complain, I'm a hypocrite, I know. I hate complainers, and the more I bitch and moan, the more the divine field, or whatever it's called, just bounces that sick shite right back at me. Besides that, it adds anxiety, fear, and cramps every symptom in the book, as if I didn't have enough shite to deal with, already, but why me, Dr. C, that's what I want to know, dear diary, today. I value myself for separating ability from inability with my unspeakable daily hallucinations, voices, paranoia, and trauma that schizophrenia presents. See, my heart does fucking speak slingbacks out of my deepest of pockets the first time I met Dr. C, I just knew I was going to like her. She was wearing a pair of slingback, open-toed, fuck-me sandals, even though she knew, she had to have known, she just had to that I'm a foot fetishist, big secret number one, so what else is news, plus, she had on a clingy, low cut shirt that showed off the top of her breasts, 
and she kept leaning forward provocatively as she told me she was going to help me learn to love myself, yeah, love myself, that's what she said, she was going to make me love myself, so, I said I didn't think it was possible to love myself, you going love me, too, Dr. C, that's what I want to know, but I said if she wanted me to, what the hell, I'd give it a try, so she said yeah, she wanted, wanted what, do you think I believed her, what else could she say that she didn't even want me to try, no psychiatrist is ever going to say that, and believe me, I know those psychos, psychiatrists, I mean, I've been seeing them, off and on, okay, mostly on, ever since I was 12 years old, that was the year my mother decided I had ADD, the number one psychiatric disorder of choice for that fucking year, and she marched me off to see Dr. Nora Epstein, who promptly told mother that ADD was just a fantasy disorder, and nobody really had it, not even me, as it turned out, what I really had, so they say, was Tourette's, big secret number two, which was a real thrill for mother, I was the one and only kid in the county, or maybe just in the town of wherever, or at least in my middle school, anyway, to have actually been diagnosed with Tourette's, right up front, and so mother paraded me in front of her friends, and my friends, too, like some big freak show, show them, Benji, baby, show them how you twitch, she would say, yeah, that's my mother, you've got to love her, don't you, because she's your mother, so, Dr. C said she would help me love myself, and I told her I would try to love myself, I mean, the emphasis here is on the word try, because there are at least two real problems with Dr. C teaching me to love myself, the first problem is, I can't remember ever even liking myself, even before the Tourette's, and second, I think Dr. C really doesn't like me, no matter what she says, she secretly fears and dislikes me, so what else is new, I can tell, say, from the curl of her lip when I walk into her office, I might be crazy, like they say, but still, I've got an IQ over 140, and I know delusion when I see it, and I'll tell you, Dr. C was just deluding herself thinking she'd ever be able to help me love, or even like, myself, still, I'm likable enough, really, I'm a really nice guy, so I don't confront her, I just say, sure, Dr. C, why not and then I walk out, I go back downstairs to my limo and driver, and tell him I want to go home right away, then, I sit there in front of the computer, iTunes playing Chubrock and Coldplay on a continuous loop, I try to write, but what, not surprisingly, I can't, I can't write, dear diary, I seem to win or lose the greatest battles in my crazy fucked up life or within the own little lunchbox of my mind retirement, my guess is writer's block is the worst place for a writer to be, ever, for most writers most other writers anyway, I don't know for sure, I don't know any other writers, and I don't read them and I don't read about them, I don't need to read to be a writer, that's just the way I'm, I'm a rebellious, outlaw writer, fuck the norm, I say, but I've got writer's block, I've had it really bad for the last year and a half, in fact, I haven't written a damn thing in that whole time, yeah, that's writer's block, sometimes, though, when I'm in love, I'll stop writing, I know it won't last forever, 
and I might as well love it while it lasts, but that's not writer's block it's lover's lock, so am I in love, am I, you know what I say, yeah, right, I'm in love, I say, with myself, maybe, and I scoff, me, in love, yeah, baby, parenthetical pet peeve, writer's block, I think of writer's block as a pleasant break from my whole bullshit psycho routine, only this time it's almost a full-on retirement, or something, so anyway, I'm lying there, spread out lazily on my lopsided bed, and Heidi, big secret number three, Heidi whispers that it's just my discontent, my malaise, my perplexity, and I listen, even if I can't quite make out what she's saying, so I know Heidi's there, and I know Georgie's out there, somewhere, too, where the hell is he, though, where's Georgie, baby, I glance down at my Billy Baloney nightlight, it's turned on, my kooky little nightlight, and it flickers when my eyes meet the little plug-in plastic lamp, like it knows something I don't, I've saved that little kiddie nightlight all these years, I don't know why, maybe because I don't like total darkness, and I don't like white light, either, I mean, I like colors blue, red, pink I think, but I can't think straight if the light is too bright, the see-through shades in my room are drawn, the small wooden door won't stop creaking, and Georgie, what about Georgie, where's Georgie, Georgie, Georgie Gust, my alter ego, where are you, Georgie boy, the great perfectionist meets the great imperfection, Mr. Casanova and Mr. Me, I'm calling you, Georgie boy, I need you, Georgie, Georgie Gust, come to me, baby, dear diary, I just learned that in Chinese, the word crisis contains two characters, one represents danger and the other represents opportunity, I suppose crisis is the same thing as opportunity Georgie writes back God, I think, I've been sending out my work for so damn long, I just can't stand it anymore, and what do I get, rejection, rejection, and nothing but, and I can't take rejection, either, still, I'm okay with that, I don't even know what I'm doing here, anyway, but maybe Georgie knows, Georgie tells me to just hang in there, just go to sleep, now, Ben, Georgie says soothingly, in the long run, Ben, he says, you'll be fine, that's easy for him to say, he's just a figment of my imagination, a literary device, or a delusion, who knows, I know I don't, Dr. C won't even tell me who Georgie really is, and so I'm stuck here with this in-between shot, in-between diseases, in-between personalities, on the scary borders of some multiple personality disorder, or who knows, but whatever it is, I know, I got it, dear diary, I took some time off, not much though, and I came to realize that so many people will just forget what I said and all that I've fucking done, but they will never forget how I made them feel, that hit me hard, come to think of it, anyway back to this book I'm cooking Dr. C meets Ben, a written account from Dr. C, I've got to say, I've never had a client like Ben Scriber, or should I say Benjamin J. Scriber, as he prefers to be called, he's still just Ben to me, the first time I met him, he was late, dressed in Armani jeans, a USC sweatshirt, Hugo Boss loafers, no socks, and an oversized blue stovepipe hat with an orange pom-pom on top, what a kooky get up, I can't help it, that's what I thought, what would you think if it were you? 
Okay, okay. So I reacted negatively. I admit it. Clients who show up late for their first appointment give me a bad first impression, and first impressions count, so I prepare myself for the worst. I figure they won't be cooperative in treatment, they won't take their meds, and they won't discuss their issues. They just won't. And besides all that, I like punctuality. Rich clients who show up late, who have limo drivers and trust funds, and see me only because they have fathers who pay to keep them out of jail, those creeps set my teeth on edge. I admit it, I'm honest. Like it or not, first impressions matter, even in therapy, especially in therapy. And when Ben didn't even shoot for a favorable first impression, well, he just set me up to not like him. Of course, a psychiatrist doesn't necessarily need to like her clients but it doesn't hurt. It might just even help, you know, just maybe, first impressions count, and Ben made a bad impression. Being late was bad enough, but the way he entered hopping into my office on one foot and then the other, like he was some kind of overgrown, kooky child without a care in the world drove me crazy, I admit it. It's not often that a client drives his psychiatrist crazy, but Ben did that first day. Later, after I'd read his file, I felt ashamed, and maybe a little bit negligent, because Ben has Tourette's, you know, the hopping is involuntary, like the sniffing and brow raising, and all the other twitches and ticks and dances, and I'm also ashamed to admit that I didn't pick up on the symptoms. Ben was referred to me by the police department, and the police department hadn't sent over all the paperwork, so, that's my excuse but still, I should be able to make an unbiased diagnosis without papers or, at the least, I should have refused to see him until the papers came through. Seeing the files might have made a difference, it still might not have been love at first sight, but at least I might have liked him better, so I confess. I admit I let my bias against the rich and privileged get the better of me, and it showed. And I guess Ben picked up on it, too, yes, of course he did, I know he did, so Ben just sat on the couch with his legs crossed, the stovepipe hat in his lap, and smiled. He told me about how he tried to hold up the Pasadena City Bank with a cell phone, which is why he's in therapy. This time, anyway, it was either therapy or prison, and then he stopped, he uncrossed his legs and then leaned forward, putting his elbows on his knees, and stared right into my face, he seemed earnest and engaged, maybe even slightly shy, and then he said, you don't like me much, do you my first instinct was to lie, to say something like, of course I like you, Ben, instead, I tried to respond professionally, I smiled and said, it's not my job either to like or dislike you, Ben, my job is to help you, and he nodded like he understood, although I couldn't tell, really, what was going on in his mind, it would probably be easier, he said, if you liked me, don't you think I blushed, revealing my embarrassment, it was like Ben could read my thoughts, and I can't say that I liked it, being read like a book by some kook, it's okay if you don't like me, I mean, if I were you, I wouldn't like me, hell, sometimes I don't even like me, by then, I had managed to get my distance and my professionalism back, I leaned forward and smiled, reassuringly, I think, and I said, that's exactly what I'm going to do, Ben, 
I'm going to help you love yourself, and he smiled the sad, slow smile. Finally he looped his hands behind his neck and said, loving myself isn't something I know how to do, but if you want, I'll try, so, of course, I said I wanted, he said okay, then he walked out, dear diary, I visited the cemetery down the street about an hour ago with some paper and a pen, I just sat there, then I did it, I wrote down everything I don't like about myself, I ripped it up, and when I returned I burnt it, felt fucking good, watching the burn and the blaze turn to ash, a cutting class at our second session, Dr. C asks me to tell her what I remember about my old school days, what's she really after, whatever it is, I don't want to tell her, I got this creepy feeling that Dr. C's really after me, instead, I tell her about Georgie, Georgie will tell her about me, I cut through all the crap that's happened between now and then, and I go back to my past, in search of my past, where I find Georgie hiding out, my dreams take me back to Georgie's past, too, they take me back to school, unlike Georgie, I went to public school, even though I'm rich, Georgie went to private school, Georgie made some incredible friends there, one of them died, and who's that, now, huh, don't you remember, Benji, don't you want to remember, one of them is dead unlike me, who's that, Ben Dr. C wants to know, who's dead, who died she waits, a pregnant pause, was it someone special, someone very important to you I ignore her, like I ignore all her bullshit questions, I just lie there on the couch, thinking about Georgie, drifting, dreaming, and free associating about Georgie, and about her Georgie's girl, Claudia, where is it, where am I, who am I now, sheltered in the quads ivy and brick walls is a small fish pond, its surface reflects the moonshine like clear glass, dispersing its light through the whole white light spectrum, Georgie Gus sits on his favorite wooden bench, he's still in boarding school, posh and preppy, I'll always remember him that way, he sits there with his back straight, with good, erect posture, so he can digest everything he takes in, but I'm more of the sloucher type, the slacker type, an idler, I'm rich and spoiled and I'm lazy, perplexity is my perpetually confused condition, my perpetually entangled situation, this is the kid I remember, the Georgie who's 18 and introverted, nervous, his intense slouch, his high IQ, no one can see him, but I know he's got a black eye and he's been in a couple of fights, fighting for me fighting for my protection, I really don't deserve him he's a luxury item, parenthetical pet peeve, people who think that introversion is a bad attitude, Georgie wears large round horn rimmed glasses, when they are not broken, and a designer tie, lavender or yellow or maybe orange and raspberry blue, loosely fitting around his neck, like a noose, we're nonchalant, casually indifferent, Georgie and me, we are of little importance to anyone but ourselves, to anybody but me, and maybe Dr. C we make no effort, we take no turns, it's just Georgie and me, there's nothing we really have to do, anyway, we make excuses, we're taking excuses apart and digesting them in parts. We're fragmenting reality. Dear diary, normal people simply and completely baffle me. What's with all the body language, social cues, pettiness, and looking people in the eyes when we speak from our mouths flashing forward to yesterday? Where am I? 
Who am I now? My reflection in the bathroom mirror wears some awfully feminine blouse with a black bow tie and ruffled white sleeves. This is Georgie. This is me this time he's in the mirror, malfunctioning. The two of us picked up an amazingly useful skill, a talent, since we're both in our heads, in our fucked up, full-time fantasy life, we've tried doing some fun stuff. Cool stuff with our heads, with our minds, for example, levitation but we failed, we couldn't do it, time travel yes, by just putting our thoughts there, in any time we wanted. We couldn't master remote viewing, necessarily, but we were able to resonate morphologically, ourselves this means that Georgie and I have been able to put ourselves in another place because all of this life shite isn't real anyway, you know, the whole notion that none of us are born, none of us ever die, everything is infinite and eternal and circular, or maybe evolutionary, probably all of the above, so, instead of only being able to see, or view some other place Georgie, without a second thought, is able to place himself anywhere, the seraphim angels alter everything else so that our presence wherever we might be seems natural and logical to the rest of the world sort of like a parallel universe, this is how we escape, but Georgie will only put himself in one of two places, Long Beach, California after all that's where Claudia is, she's still alive and well, as far as Georgie's concerned, then there's New Mexico, the vast plateau of serenity, sometimes, where he and I can get away from the rest of the uppity fake tits, fake ass, fake-minded people in Los Angeles County, I just follow Georgie there wherever he goes, the only time he'll follow me is when I go back to school, we use our immaculate imaginations to get us there this blast to the past, of course this inner need to go back has a lot to do with my incomplete childhood, when I go back back, back, back I will sometimes make up with the bullies who used to taunt me, beat me, mom and pop style, way back when, oh, Long Beach, overpopulated with those goddamn fart fetish types, we just have to laugh at that kind of pornography, doc they do that shite out in the valley, they film that shite there usually $1,000 a shoot I mean the pay to the porn stars, rather, porn actors and actresses to hell if there are any stars in porn, everybody knows there aren't, Georgie and I, we pull that kind of shite right at home, a fart in the face followed by a giggle and a waving of the hand, in order to disperse the putrid smell, and responding to such a putut, verbally perhaps, quietly uttering to the farter, that was a quiet one, the receiver is taking it in as he longs for that particular hard and agitating feeling of shame, the kind of which only a good stinky fart in the face has the means, the fart, and the shame, fills an important space, the space within us where it really hurts, we can find a sense of relief on both ends from this kind of behavior, you might say, a relief from the physical pain as it is replaced with olfactory sabotage and humiliation, so, yes, Georgie and I are basically be bisexual, that is, still, I often think of my mother, my father, and my poor little inner child who seems to have lost his childhood because of them, mommy, stop tickling me, I mean it I'd yell she wouldn't stop, my father and his emotional abuse, not to mention the sexual and financial abuse of which, these days, I don't hide the fact that I want pity, long live the living colorful rich, 
the self-made millionaires, billionaires, fucking trillionaires, Ben, they say, you're the wealthiest 30-year-old in all of New Mexico, buy yourself a nice little jet plane, why don't you, you have the money, you know why don't you live a little, boy until the time when I actually ask for it he, being a strict trustee of my beautiful inheritance close to $100 million, replies, oh, Benji, we need to talk about this, you know, the next week, I receive a shite, little, put it together yourself, model airplane, I find it crushed inside the little compact P.O. box, see why I can get so angry, they'd call it a lie those rich parents of mine, when I confront them about this stuff, they, like all other abused and abusive parents, they threaten abandonment, and I just love it, so, in place of my own internal parents who might otherwise take care of that inner child, now that I'm 30, so that he may be able to grow up again, Georgie becomes that parent, a single father, fuck the mother, Mathurfica, New Mexico is flat and hot and dry symbolically cold, it's the perfect place to just chill and smoke the peace pipe, the pagans and nudist communities do their thing, we do ours, I just follow him there, I just follow Georgie, his sense of direction is better than mine, we're staying at the Seaport Hotel in Long Beach, California, and Georgie's current situation, as petty as it may be, has me captivated, we're in the most pressing circumstances, something here deeply concerns me, I don't know what, so we check out, again and again, from this cheap seaside hotel, and we walk back, again and again, to our place just down the shore a ways, maybe there's no more sex with that woman, Georgie thinks to himself, have I just come to that realization, then Georgie scoffs, he's always scoffing, Georgie and I wander home, and we all watch a Jerry Springer marathon until Bobby Banks calls, Georgie forgets he has any friends, but they call him anyway, and, for sure, Bobby wouldn't be calling me in the first place, unless, we're on non-com you know, having a communication breakdown, it's a falling out as if we didn't already have enough static already to break up the friendship, Bobby took advantage of me, fucking con artist, Georgie picks up the line and gives Bobby the typical American greeting, hello, how are you etc, I can hear Bobby's boisterous blabber even when I'm not on the phone myself, it's that loud, hey, you still fucking around with that chick next door, the Long Beach diva, that chick, Claudia, right Bobby finally asks, Georgie hasn't seen his best friend Bobby since he was in boarding school, coming up 20 years ago, what a shite 20 years in between, might I say and say again, Bobby came out to visit him there, and they've kept in touch ever since, Georgie seems to think he cares, I seem to think he wants something, the only thing I want is Georgie's girl, though, the only thing I want is Claudia, through the night, Claudia sleeps patiently, soundly, under her teal-colored dream catcher, sprawled across the bed, her slim white arms and pale legs sprawl seductively as she makes a crooked cross, her chin presses to her chest, she's resting peacefully, but she's no more peaceful than a dead white oaf she's the amateur sex diva, her big soft breasts attest, her breasts are heavy, like the morning dew falling on the green grass lawn outside, 
The same lullabies she remembers as a little girl hum from the same clock radio she keeps on her antique night table a hypnotizing Annie Lennox ballad wafts through the stifling bedroom air and almost gets caught on the slightly drawn, white, silk veil over her California king, who am I now, am I dreaming, am I, somehow, in Claudia's dream, I like to think that she's gotten fat, like Georgie, like me, maybe her breasts have gotten heavier, and heavier, and heavier, and now they sag, the poor things, Georgie used to be skinny, but that was before I started to binge on the new meds, I'm looking to understand myself, through Georgie, you see, Dr. C, I see, Ben, please go on, so, how did he get there, I meditate, not medicate, on his sordid past, I think back to when he was posh and preppy, back to when his past might have meant something more, really, I think, it doesn't, it most definitely does not, it never has meant anything, I can see him with his parents, my parents, and I feel empathy for him, how could I have wronged this poor little guy, he's my own soul, so to speak, my soul within a soul, it's been a long, long road, there was less traffic in the beginning, but the traffic became heavier, the road became crowded, crooked and narrow, somehow, we got lost along the way, Georgie and me, dear diary, I'm pretty sure normal people are equally baffled, but better at faking it Long Beach, the hub of the wall put our third session, what's happening now, I wonder, Dr. C's picking my brain, she's trying to get inside me wants to know more about Georgie and me, or maybe, maybe she wants to know more about Georgie's girl and me, Georgie's girl, what's her name, Claudia, Claudia Nesbitt, even the name makes me shiver, sometimes, and other times I get hot, just thinking about her, thinking about me and Georgie and Georgie's girl, Claudia, Claudia Nesbitt, Dr. C asks me what I remember about Georgie's girl, what the name Claudia Nesbitt means to me, I'm not following her, this is between Georgie and me it's none of her business, where am I now, when I wake up, it's Wakefield again, isn't it, but who, what, when am I? All I know is that time flies and the years go warping by while Georgie sleeps, he is wrapped in time's embrace. When Georgie's asleep, all he can think of is sex and Saturn, but he dreams about escaping, like a wild animal in some crazy human zoo, but when all the cages break open the screaming, hungry beasts stampede him like vicious predators, kicking up dirt with their hooves and claws, he's splayed out underneath the sky while a thousand daggers and swords fly overhead, in this hellish winding land of waking dreams, nightmares, the circus angels sing of dirty money, poverty, court hearings, testifying monks, never-ending canals of blood, excrement, delusion, and terror fill up my nightmare dreamscape, and I lay there with Georgie, with me, living out my fears, my mistrust, my fucking brain tumors, and who knows what else. Dear Diary, I just came back from my best therapy session ever. Primeval latent core emotions volcano to the surface with centeredness, tears and elation made visible via the hour-long therapy session, priceless. I suppose I could write more about it, but then back to my book. My therapist encouraged me to talk about my thoughts and feelings and what's troubling me. I was not worried. It was not hard to open up about my feelings. I have trusted my cognitive behavioral therapist for years now. 
we talk about daily life, challenging traumatic issues, and music, all boiling down to mindfulness and problem solving, often working simultaneously. My CBT therapist often helps me gain more confidence and comfort in general, and some days we reach a point where we really dig deep, and through expression of fears and inherent emotional conditioning, for example, when asked, how would I have preferred, realistically for, such and such, to have happened instead of, I just had such a breakthrough, which seems to only have room to broaden its scope and range in the newly discovered primeval traumatic route. It was finally brought to the surface, after so many years, my therapist and I can only cue and aim more and use today's breakthrough to enhance my quality of life in so many more areas. It was like I was an infant being parented by his adult self, being my own parent, letting the little boy in me know that this is what this means, that is what that means, and he is loved. He has me here and is loved by me. My therapist was only bearing witness, and prompting, encouraging and allowing me to feel safe as the little child in me learned, for example, that the raising of a hand does not mean I love you. In fact, the raising of the hand with a whack is wrong and any child will only get better and better. You always have me. Cool shite. Oh yeah housekeepers are a blessing even the pack of people unloading a room from an SUV just outside his window fails to startle Georgie awake. His alarm has been snoozed, again. Georgie's half awake, half asleep, drifting somewhere between dreams and nightmares. He tries to rise, falls back, falls asleep again, and dreams, parenthetical pet peeve, when people call me on the phone in the middle of the night, only to ask, are you still in bed? He finally wakes with white hot sunlight in his face. He's sweating hard. He grabs his heart on. But no he couldn't come. Or maybe he could. He could. He really could. He just knows he can do it. Maybe if he wasn't such a goddamn nice guy. It's his perennial problem. It's his peculiar condition. His pet pathology. He's too goddamn nice for his own good. People take advantage of him. Who takes advantage of you? Ben? Dr. C wants to know, she doesn't know, she doesn't know me, it's Georgie, Georgie's girl, she's Claudia, Claudia Nisbet, Claudia, who told him she loved him and then started fucking Sarah and Sarah's husband, Greg, sometimes at the same time, who'd call Georgie afterward, or during the fucking, and tell him it was his cock she was riding, his dick filling her pussy, and she was sorry, but she just couldn't be with him, like that ever again, not anymore, not like that, not when his peculiar conditions, his pet pathologies, were so much worse than her own, like he was fucking contagious or something, maybe Claudia's right, his own brand of craziness, his own peculiarities, or a better word than pathology, which reminds him of a forensic pathologist, televised, maybe really are worse than anybody else's, everybody else's, he doesn't feel crazy, but then, maybe nobody crazy ever does, who knows, you would have to be crazy to know, now, wouldn't you? But if you were crazy, you wouldn't know, especially if you didn't know who you were, where you were, who's who, who's he, anyway, I'm me, I'm him, I'm Georgie. Finally, Georgie swings his legs out of bed and pulls on his boxes, it's his first big day on Wakefield campus, and he really must get up and get cracking, now, mustn't he? 
Why does he keep having these creepy little sex fantasies, half-awake wet dreams? Why does he keep thinking about Claudia Nisbet? It seems like she was, and is, a real person, a real human being, like Miss Heidi Barillo. But only Georgie can see how easily Claudia bruises, can see the little black and blue marks on her arms and ankles that confirm her reality. Georgie collects those details. He keeps her real in his mind. He remembers the scar on her ankle burn, the left one, and he remembers what she told him, in bed, sitting up, her legs spread wide, letting him see all the way up her pussy. Georgie remembers, doesn't he? I know I do. Georgie remembers how impossible, fucking impossible, it was to take his eyes off the pussy, her clipped pubic hair, the folds, the recesses, the smell. He loved that smell, loved burying his nose in her pussy, breathing her smell, no douche no spray, pure Claudia, or maybe not so pure, Georgie doesn't remember Claudia pure, or clean, he remembers the smell of her, how horny, how wet she'd get before her period, how milky, how sticky she'd be, how always her pubes would tangle, clump together, before her period, and she'd always want him to go down on her, parenthetical pet peeve, that time of the month, clean me off, she'd say, and Georgie would, only before her period, never after, never during, just before, she drove him crazy, didn't she, or did she really, Dr. C, is Georgie crazy, or is it really just me, Georgie, Claudia, me, Claudia always sat with her legs spread, letting Georgie look new he was looking while she told him stories, stories about her scars, about her life, about her ankle. Claudia lifted her leg high above her head, showing Georgie her pussy, her asshole, and then she told him about her father how abusive he was, what a drunk he was, how he threw his buck knife at her. Because my father is a hunter, she said, and needs a buck knife to skin rabbits, she said if Georgie ever wanted to buy a knife, ever needed a knife, she'd go with him, because she knew all about knives, on account of my father, she said. Georgie wishes that Claudia said because of my father, he doesn't like the sloppiness of, on account of, she said, he said, but he was in love with her then, and so, of course, he didn't correct her. Besides, he remembers, she remembers, the story of the knife her father threw, and how she needed 13 stitches to close the wound, can you believe it, 13 stitches on that little tiny bone she said, and, no. Georgie didn't believe it, still doesn't believe it, but Georgie was in love, and maybe still is, and it seems rude to say he thinks she's lying, to say, 13 stitches are what you get for big cuts, Claudia, not for little bitty nicks on the ankle, so he just kept his big mouth shut and let her lie, let's her lie, and who's lying now, Ben Dr. C wants to know, he ignores that, too, Georgie does. He's just thinking about Claudia again, and how much he wants her, how much he loves her, wants to fuck her, yet, he wants to love her, and now he hates her, he fucking hates her, he remembers her scar, her legs, and her taste, in love with Claudia, Claudia Nesbitt, he hates her, hates her, hopes she dies, hopes he can stop being such a nice guy, a good guy, he hopes he gets the balls to kill her, drown her, electrocute her, and cut her, something, anything, to make her die, for himself, who hates her, who wants her Dr. C asks, 
and you died. Try to remember, is it you? Are you awake in there now? Ben, Ben, do you hear me? Ben, a knock on the door. It's a student from the next room over, checking on him, making sure he's okay. Has he been talking to himself? Maybe, probably. His Tourette's, his bipolar, his schizoaffective disorder make it normal for him too. Georgie collects symptoms and diagnoses the way some people collect stamps, or coins, or butterflies. He has books explaining every condition he's ever had. He understands his conditions better than he does himself, or is there any difference? Now he worries that he's talking to himself again. Really? Georgie doesn't wonder if he's going crazy. He wonders just how crazy he has become. How crazy is crazy? Anyway, how do you know? Can you tell me? Dr. C, just how crazy is crazy, anyway, that's what I want to know, dear diary, I had been writing another short chapter of my book but had a shite day otherwise, so I start today without the broken pieces of yesterday, every morning I wake up is the first day of my life, I know that's deep, but hey, it has to be, and again, back to the book, hell, I've got to give myself a breath sometimes, RS around love, where am I? Who am I now? I sleep, still, snoring and gasping in turns, holding my breath choking in my fucking sleep, Ben's choking, coughing up little pieces of food, the smell of wine wafts throughout his dream sensations expensive wine, on the house, he's sleeping, my dream takes place in the past, but who's past, what past why don't you tell me, Dr. C, Claudia stands outside and watches a well-dressed, elderly couple enter the fusion restaurant, violin music wafts into the night air as the outside door opens, then fades, as the couple disappears inside and the door swings shut, Claudia pauses at the threshold, she enters, in step to the music, she's shown to a seat at a table in the main dining area, she has a good view of the string quartet but she's disappointed, as she waits for the waiter, the string quartet packs up their sheet music and instruments ready to head home. Maybe she ought to leave, too. No, she thinks apathetically. I need to eat something. A few minutes pass. Finally her waiter arrives with a bottle of the house wine. He bows slightly and offers her a glass. She accepts the wine bottle. It sure is dead in here, isn't it she says, expressionless. The waiter acknowledges her comment with a nod. It might pick up later. But I doubt it, as he finishes pouring the glass, he looks straight into Claudia's eyes and gives her a weird, college guy smirk a grin that smacks of awkward, frustrated desire. She pretends not to see, he's dissatisfied, of course, but he shows no sign, I'll be back for your food order, in a minute, he says, I return to her, as her waiter, I come back to her in this fantasy, I'm him and he's me. Do I know you from somewhere she asks me, quizzically smiling, we must have met some other time, sometime when I was Georgie, Claudia is moved by Georgie's quick, subtle charm, she can enjoy him, but she can't fall in love as fast as he does, Claudia acts less impulsively toward Georgie than he'd like, she already has her sexual needs taken care of, Georgie doesn't, and neither do I, for that matter. Georgie will do anything for me as long as I'm a good citizen, free and clear of drugs and booze, so long as I don't give in to temptations of substance, as long as I act like Pops wants his only son to act, 
so I stick to the sugar stuff and the occasional whipped cream whippet. I'm keeping myself perfect, pure and clean, for him for Georgie. Georgie obsesses on people, mostly. He loses himself in a fantasy world for as long as he's obsessed with them, however long that is and however interesting they are to him. Georgie thinks about things a little too much. But still, it's a beautiful process, isn't it? What's Georgie really like? He makes careful decisions. He's only holy when he's tired. He sweats like a pig. He works hard at sex. Hold me, he says. Just hold me. Why Claudio wants to know. It's their first official date. They're in bed together. Because, I've never been held before, Georgie answers. Not like that. But what does she think? What's Claudia feel? Claudia feels sorry for Georgie. She thinks he's an unloved hermit, so pitifully deserving. She helps him realize he can relate with others, even if they are still in high school, in special ed. Claudia calls herself Snickerdoodle, SD. She dubs Georgie with the out-of-place nickname Princess, or else calls him Corners, referring to the dimpled corners of his mouth, or generically, beautiful. She's just naming herself with all these nicknames, I think. Probably she hands out titles to everyone she dates. Their replacement placer holders, throwaways, like the men she gets involved with, the men she uses, like me. Or maybe she just gives them to the people she really loves. She doesn't consider herself to be Georgie's, or my own, sub-subject of bewilderment, that is, obsession, delusion, star model of lust and passion, bad habit. Georgie loves her little antics and imperfections. She never says or thinks anything bad, and she doesn't seem to mind her own flaws. Life is so easy and so casual for her, she does, however, have a knack for fucking with people without them knowing anything about what she's doing, doesn't she I don't know, Ben, you tell me, don't fuck with me, Dr. C, who's fucking with you, Ben, is it me, Georgie, is it Claudia? Or is it really just you? Ben okay, okay, I'll make a coerced confession. I'm going mad, I think. I don't know how to say what I want to say. The main point is that I love somebody in some strange way. Or I think I do. Call it love. Call it hatred, obsession, or madness. But I love someone. That's how I feel, as fucked up as I'm. I love someone who can't love me, who can't love you. Ben, is it me? Or is it me? And I have no greater need in the world, nothing. Just a certain requirement to remember all I'm. I'm trapped within some eerie, itchy bitchy spell, cast by somebody who can't really love me back. That somebody is me. Is that what you're looking for, Dr. C? Let's go and watch the sunset, Claudia? Yeah, sure, she says. Leading in, leaning in, I am hoping for a kiss. And when we get home, I smell my fingers, nervously, but I don't smell Claudia. I look in the mirror and whisper a soft hello, to who, to whom, I wonder, the church bells outside chime with Georgie's own song the song he plays in his head, his psychosis starts to overcome him, the same way as last time, but different different, but the same, this time, okay, okay, I have a coughing tick, a coughing tick and a big dick big like a pickle, the coughing tick tickles and I like pickles, Georgie likes pickles, Claudia likes pickles, I wake up with the image of Georgie in my head, he's checking his mail, 
I've given Georgie his own P.O. box so he can get mail without me reading it first. Sometimes I'll send him gifts and then keep them for myself. Sometimes I pretend that we're the same person. Georgie starts the morning with Claudia, but I stay in bed a while longer, sleeping and snoring, and thinking of her of Claudia. We're pretty sick and tired, Georgie and I, of the same pathetic routine of morning. So Georgie decides not to shave or clip his nails. It will all be okay, someday, sometime. I wake up to check back on what's happened already. I'm in the kitchen making breakfast. I dump a cup of unfiltered water into a bowl of oatmeal and heat it up. I'm a microwave professional. The washer and dryer are in the garage. Georgie finds a clean shirt in the dryer. He steps outside to put it on. He prefers dressing in public. Georgie does. He does. He climbs into his white, V-neck t-shirt, presenting himself beautifully, showing off his outstanding dance. The smooth, silky cotton polishes his waxy. College boy skin and vintage nipples, puffy nipples, his hurly-burly boy A-cups, miniature UFOs, bug bites, bee stings, parenthetical pet peeve, seemingly deaf parents of children emit air-splitting shrieks in public. This peculiar collection of moments is crucial to Georgie's every day. He hates to hang his clothes, so the dryer is constantly running, lint piles up and the fabric softener smells like allergy. Georgie's allergic. He sniffs and remembers the smell of Claudia, I cough, we tick, we twitch, we do circus ticks, we're circus freaky, we are just a big circus freak show, aren't we, Georgie and me, the grey skies dull away and yesterday's rain has stopped, the dew rubs coldly against Georgie's bare feet, grounding him, he's burning a fire in his mind, everybody's watching, aren't we, he's alone and invisible, he doesn't feel. He doesn't exist he's not needed. He breathes, he thinks, but he is not. Georgie wants to say he doesn't care about this, but he does. He wishes he could record all his thoughts and hallucinations. He wants to matter, more and more, but he's distant, far off, aiming a spotlight down at the stage. The play goes on down there and Georgie watches unseen. He's always the last one picked, the charity case, and the delinquent. He's just a rich kid with a big heart, and a heaping side of rage and anger, too. He's often depressed and his moods swing in kaleidoscopic circles. The fibers in his mind vibrate and images are formed. What images form today? The perfect, beautiful, and pure woman. Are some sinister, creepy, alter ego, oh, Georgie Gust. Dear diary, plain and simple intermission, for once again, I've got to stop this hating myself garbage and really start to love myself for all that I'm, not hating myself for what I'm not. Anyway, on we're bound part I, from Wakefield to rehab Dr. C made me do it name calling, Georgie Porgy, Mr. Twitchy, Georgie, Benji, Georgie and me, Tourette's, borderline personality disorder, schizoaffective, neurotic, psychotic, blah, blah. Blah. Speaking of which, I've had two cups of coffee this morning and nothing to eat. Routine, routine, routine. Now I've got an appointment with Dr. C. I ramble way off the subject. What is the subject? Georgie, Claudia, and me. Dr. C. just listens as I run on and on and on. I've got another doctor's appointment today. Another second opinion, or a third opinion. Fourth, 
How many opinions do I need to know I'm fucked up? I know, yeah, and some of these shrinks are fucked up, too, I swear. One doctor says I've got Tourette's, another says schizophrenia, and another says blah, blah, and more blah. Am I in between these diseases? I can live with that. It's cute to be an in-betweener, but who can I trust? The one on the right or the one on the left? Which am I more like? They are all puppets, muppets, gonzo, sexo, I'm going crazy. Going, going, gone, parenthetical pet peeve, cold coffee, two cups of coffee, and I'm all over the place. A couple of years back, I would have reacted differently, but I've changed. I skimmed through my junkie memoirs, I was such a good little kid, how did I get so fucked up? I want to swear, but I know better words, I'm choosing not to use them. I don't want to end up in hell, do I, Doc? I don't know, do you? Ben, in the end, I wonder and wonder, dear diary, my best friends and I the few that I have we have conversation that I doubt anyone else would understand, just had one of them on the phone, I was eating a bag of chips what really happened Dr. C seems to think that raging up the past will somehow fix my present, but are we going forward or backward, that's what I want to know, I'm not in therapy because Dr. C wants to teach me how to like myself, Correction, love myself, right, Dr. C, I'm in therapy because I robbed the Pasadena City Bank, well, no, I didn't really rob it, more like, I pretended to rob it, it was kind of a joke, really, at least, I thought it was a joke, I was high on crack at the time, on Shivas Regal, marijuana, and clonopin, and I thought the whole goddamn thing was a fucking riot, bankers really don't have a sense of humor, Neither do cops at least, not the cops in Pasadena. I just met with my business manager about trust fund stuff. Pops was still dishing out a little cash at a time, a little scratch, here and there. I just learned, that day, that he'd made a $1.2 million profit on a huge position, I couldn't tell you which one, but the dividends they paid me were being kept, without any hold, I was told in the Pasadena City Bank in the San Gabriel Valley. I knew then after the meeting was over, when Ron, my manager, pulled out a few joints I knew I needed to get that million two in cash, run off to Vegas with a couple of mafiosi, professional baccarat players, investment managers gaming, they are called, and win win win, then die of crack smoke in my hotel room. This was one of the highest manias I'd ever gone through, or that's gone through you. Ben what do you mean, gone through me, you tell me, now, Ben, anyway, high on crack, I raced down the I-34 in my BMW, doing about 120, and then tried to take a tight turn without slowing down, the car didn't like it, and it showed, it refused to make the turn and instead went airborne, flying over the divider to the other side, landing right side up, leaving neither of us seriously hurt. It was a miracle, and I was reborn for half a minute or so. Then I slid into a blind white fury, jetted up on speed, PCP, and angel dust. I took out some extra clonopin 4S from my medicine collection, my drive through pharmacy in a glove box, to soothe me down. I pulled up to the mini mall and parked. Inside, there was this young woman, a tailor. I pulled out my cell phone leaned across the marble counter, 
and said in my very best gangster voice, my ego huge from the drugs, listen, I don't want any problem here, I have 1.2 million bucks at this bank, and I'm a VIP customer, want to see my driver's license I pulled out my billfold, check out the zip code, 91101, I said, got it, 91101 I insisted, and if I press the pound key on this, then, I waved the cell phone in her face, parenthetical pet peeve, handheld portable phones used in moving cars, and the erratic driving resulting from such use, okay, okay, hold on a minute, she said, I'll get you your money, you better be quick about it, then, babe, I told her, I'm going outside for a smoke, I'll wait, you have the cash waiting when I get back, but she didn't get my money, this happened to be a non-cash bank, what the hell's a non-cash bank? What she did instead was call the bank's CEO, who told her to call the police. Outside, I began to see not cop cars but little pins needle points that surrounded the two-story mini mall. Sometime later, I found out that there had been three entire city blocks of police and sniper squads. Before I knew it, there were guns and news cameras pointing at me, all intent on capturing America's most stupid, Benjamin J. Scriber, that's me, or was it Georgie, Ben fuck you, Dr. C please, Ben, get the fuck down I heard somebody shout, I could feel my death right then and there, it started at my feet and crept up my shins, to my knees, and then my thighs, later, I'd learn the feeling was a reaction to the PCP, but at the time, I was sure I'd been shot, sure I was on my way home to Jesus, my grandmother's Jesus, that is, I've never really been much of a believer, myself, a believer in what, Ben in anything, Dr. C least of all, in me, down, face down, now the dots yelled, I hit the deck, hard, I stretched out on the pavement somewhat gingerly, since I was wearing Armani, Jesus Christ, what did they expect, was I going to take on the Pasadena city police with a fucking cell phone? A cop trotted over, pointed a gun at my head, and kicked my legs together, ankles crossed, hands spread, now he screamed, now, 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 can't we discuss this a little later, does it have to be now, they were all in such a fucking hurry, I just couldn't stand it, chill, dude, I'm not going anywhere, I told the air, or the cop, whichever, someone I never saw cuffed my ankles together, and then the cop the one who ordered my hands to spread, Sergeant Howard sir, his real name, I swear to God, you swear to whom, Ben, yanked me to my feet, do you know how hard it is to stand up straight when your ankles are crossed and cuffed, I toppled into the sergeant and my head banged hard against his, it hurt like a son of a bitch, I think I yelped, actually, I know I did, the sergeant, not unkindly, pulled me upright, son, he said, you need help, I'm pretty sure I mumbled that people had been telling me that my entire life, so this is not the first time, Ben just listen, huh, maybe it's time you took their advice, Sergeant Howitzer said, then he told me that he wasn't arresting me, just detaining me, which made about as much sense as a non-cash bank, but what the hell, why not, the only problem, and it was a big problem, was that detaining me included calling my pops, who was neither amused nor unamused, dear old pops was simply neutral, like always, and how long have you had these feelings about your father, 
Ben Shite. Like I always say, always, I talked to him at the police station. He was my one telephone call. Ben his voice boomed. How the hell are you well? Actually, I said, then I let it drop. I wasn't really sure how I was, and I wasn't all that convinced he really wanted to know. Yeah, 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 he said, heard all about it. Listen, son, I've told Sergeant Howitzer to get you into rehab. Rehab, call me once you get settled, Pop said. Then he hung up. Sergeant Howitzer led me out of the station and into his car a Chevy Malibu. Want my BMW? I burst out. I'll give it to you for $5,000. A real steal. A street steal? I snorted hysterically. No, thank you. He told me politely I already have a car, a piece of shite Chevy Malibu, I told him. Funny thing. People some people, even poor or middle class people get attached to their piece of shite cars, their piece of shite lives. Sergeant Howitzer cleared his throat once, twice, three times, parenthetical pet peeve, the fact, who you know is more important than what you know. I buy American, son, he snapped, always have always will, suit yourself, I told him, I wonder if my uncle was paying him to drag me around Pasadena, from facility to facility, looking for a place that would take me, every facility was full, after five consecutive rejections, you kind of lose your belief that anyone really gives one good goddamn about helping you get better, and I said so at the time, look, son, Sergeant Howard sir told me, don't go getting all paranoid on me, Sometimes a pickle is just a pickle, and sometimes a full-up facility is just a full-up facility, okay, I said, and you believed him, Ben like I believe you, Dr. C, to pass the time, I rolled my eyes back up into my head and passed out, when I came to, we were in the parking lot of Valley View Hospital in Silmar, how many places did the Sarge have to try before he found one that would take me, out in fucking Silmar? I could tell you, if you're curious, Ben, just save it, Doc, tell me later, but hey, rehab is rehab, and I'm nothing if not adaptable when it comes to getting clean. Besides, my nurse Cindy was hot, she had the super straight, ash blonde, hair cut straight to her chin, she looked like the fucking Dutch boy, except with major titties and a curvaceous ass, dear diary, oh well, I guess. I'm going to lose some people in order to so-called find my fucking self. Fair enough mental wart snuff. Who do you think I see when I walk into rehab? It's the bureaucrat. She's your typical lunch lady an obese white woman, weighed down by these heavy breast rolls whole rolls of breast fat down her side and front. Her name tag says Betty. So what happened to Cindy just back off, Dr. C? Okay? Betty shoves me into a chair next to Howitzer and checks me out, I'm grossed out, now, I've got to admit that I'm no fucking Dutch boy, either, but Betty obviously, Howitzer can smell her belly button gunk, too, we both sneak glances at her dirty clothes, the deluxe, mail order, scrub set package, buy one get one free, she frowns at me and adjusts her smock, she's got these little happy smurfs dancing across her boob fat. You can smell her mold lubricated tits wet, since she doesn't wash her clothes too often, once a week seems like once a day, in her book, she readjusts her collar and sticks a cinnamon altoid in her mouth, 
The bureaucrat lets out an occasional silent pubert that she passes off as a sigh caused by the late hour. She's trimmed her moustache and plucked the hairs on her chin. She looks better than she did, she thinks, when she was young and stupid and sick herself, drinking at the community college. She'd tell all her college friends she wanted to help people, and all her friends would admire her for it. Now nobody likes her not the administration, and not her co-workers. How do you know all this, Ben? Were you checking her out? Just trust me, Dr. C. I know psychos. And Betty, she is, like me, Ben you said it, Doc, not me, Betty's like leased by the poor sickers she takes into the ward, like you, Ben come off it, Doc, her sternness is all mixed up with derogatory wisecracks about psychotics, and she's about as knowledgeable as the psych, ward textbooks say she should be, I imagine she's real happy in her personal life, but I can't say for sure, she's celibate, I'll say that, at least, that's how she's coming across to me. She's not sex-deprived, she's just fucking sexless. She could even be a hermaphrodite, you know, or intersex, like they prefer to be called now. She reminds me of my mother. She's a pig in scrubs. She's America's finest. She rushes me through the paperwork, not even guessing that I'll read over all the papers in my bedroom. And then I'm in the psycho ward, this identity forsaken heaven, and I'm in here to stay. Until I get better, they say, someday, when I'm better, they say, I'll get out, I'll get back to the outside world, where I can be who I'm, without straight jackets and restraints, if I ever get out, if I don't lose control, where I'm now, I am still here, inside, you could say I'm in communist America, I am still here, I'm lying in a cold sweat, wearing all my dirty clothes, my old, damp, Partly soiled underwear with piss strip and loomis, the cheesy discharge from the thigh and underneath my holy scrotum everything sweaty, packed, shriveled within my oversized blue corduroys. My black leather belt has been confiscated by the psych ward horse to prevent suicide, as if I'd kill myself for Betty, parenthetical pet peeve, plain white men's briefs tidy what he's not at all sexy, would you, Ben? Would you kill yourself for me? Give me a break, would you? Dr. C, after checking, they stick me in this shitty triple room with a metal bunk bed and a toilet. I'm crammed in with two other psychos like me, wearing a sweaty, yellow-stained white t-shirt beneath my favorite white cotton dress shirt. The damp shirt is cold on my skin, and I'm wrapped up in it. Its buttons are loose, a couple of them broken. My one-sheet-like hospital blanket is so thin it barely covers me. And when I finally drift off, I'm barely asleep, I keep double-checking to make sure I really know where I'm. But whenever I check, I am still here, wherever that is. The paper flat, single pillow sure isn't what you would call fluffy or shapely it's too flimsy to fit inside its pillowcase, but I've rolled it up, packed it with my sweatshirt, some socks, a washcloth, anything for some decent support. Are you looking for support, Ben? What kind of support any visible means, Doc? Now lay off, whatever. It's not like I'm going to get any other kind of real support in here, where I'm stuck, lock stock and blocked up, for real, in the psych ward. Suddenly, the dismal fluorescent lights of the room flicker on, and my two roommates start coughing up their heavy snores. I'm aggravated, sure, but I remember not to flip my lid, lose my cool, 
or to show any anger, frustration, or assertion at all, any normal reactions, I know, to the torture, neglect, and ill care here, any drama, any drama at all, will cause the hospital techs to gather around me and lock me up in a straight jacket and restraints, like they did last night when I first arrived, to one of the anorexic girls, because they caught her trying to cut herself with a plastic spoon, she had sharpened it slightly, but smartly, with the sizzle in heat of the external hot water pipes in her bathroom, still, they watch her any time she has to pee, or puke or whatever, like they watch me, it's 5 in the morning when the lights flicker on, and I'm in a living hell, not prison, just a slightly safer version of hell, I really hate to even write about it, or talk about it, Ben even worse, Dr. C, even worse, it's a loving, beautiful, colorless hell, there are childlike crayon paintings on the walls in the activities room, and the vampire nurses take my blood every morning at 5 o'clock, dear diary, someone just called me a crazy freak right there on the sidewalk, I just said, thank you, I thought nothing could throw such a person off like the proud polite crazy freak that I'm, Balam wax melts, where are we now, what is happening this time, don't write about it, Ben, talk, just talk, it's noon, another special day, just after I met Heidi the woman from the gift shop parking lot, you know, my Heidi, not Georgie's Heidi, I am stuck obsessing about her, while Georgie goes on with this happy, homely life, with Claudia, I can only imagine what they are up to, I'm all alone in the supermarket parking lot, having a daydream about the mysterious Claudia, Claudia haunts me, too, but how can I find one like her in my shite life, Georgie, I'm crawling out of my fucking skin, parenthetical pet peeve, able-bodied people who park in handicapped spaces, as I enter the market, I notice a cute college co-ed bagging groceries, she measures me with her eye, looking like she's up to no good, she's up to something, anyway, I pass her off as someone I might hit on, some other day, some other life, but, of course, I'm really not interested in any chick I might hit on, let alone, actually hook up with, so, okay, okay, she's cute, I must admit, and her name tag reads Ashley, looking at Ashley, I start to daydream about Claudia again, so where are we now, Ben just shut up and listen, okay, the huge front doors of a vintage luncheonette swing open, within, some disheveled old man makes his rounds from table to table, asking the patrons to help him out, some patrons flip him some small change, thank you, God bless you, he says, Georgie sits alone in the corner, furtively watching the door, he watches as Claudia walks in and sits down alone a couple tables away, Georgie sees her bruised shoulder under her bra strap, and watches as the waitress brings her a cup of coffee, then he moves over to another table to be closer to her, he wants to existentialize her, to make her exist, he wants Claudia to be real, she doesn't seem to mind such a forward pass attempt from a complete stranger, you look familiar, Georgie says, you say that every time you see me, she says, ha says Georgie, hello, hello, anybody there she taunts him, Georgie, it's me Claudia folds her legs, it's Claudia, she says, it's me, what's wrong with you, Georgie Georgie's nervous, I don't know, he says, he sits down across from her, his existence dulls a bit, 
Claudia is stealing it from him. Okay, you got me, he says. She leans closer. I had this guy once. I was sitting on a bench in a wax museum, waiting for my friend to catch up. And this guy this, like, total stranger starts touching me, fondling me, you know fondling, Georgie says, wistfully. So I said, what do you think you're doing Georgie starts tapping his feet on the tile. I must have really scared him. I thought you weren't real, he says. Georgie laughs. I tell him, no, they're real all right. We ended up dating for five years. Lucky him, Georgie says. Claudia glances over casually and notices the small stiff lump in Georgie's pants. Do you want to sleep with me? She asks. Yes, Georgie says. You like foreplay? Claudia watches Georgie smile shyly. Come on, let's get out of here, she says. Georgie nods and follows her. A few minutes later, he is strolling through the canned food aisle of a supermarket down the street. Claudia scans the shelves at eye level, parenthetical pet peeve, meeting someone in a narrow hallway and as I sidestep to avoid them, they move with me, I move again, so do they, blocking every move I make to get around them, do you like pickles she asks, what wake up, Georgie, Claudia snaps, pickles, do you like them where, I like the ones you can get at street fairs, Claudia says, the full, sour dill pickles. I can eat them by the jar. Me, too, says Georgie. So, where are you from? Claudia asks. How Georgie thinks. It's complicated, he says. Well, what brought you here, Georgie? You on the lamb wanted by the cops. There's a long pause. Then Claudia smiles. Don't tell me. See if I care. Another moment passes. Seriously, why are you here? I had a termite problem at home. Had to get out? Claudia snorts. Yeah me, too. Later in the day, Georgie and Claudia undress in the Twin Legs Motel. Georgie accidentally bumps Claudia with an elbow in his rush. Sorry, he says. Don't be. I am just glad we met. Claudia smiles. I wonder when our first argument will be. She looks wistful. I wonder what it will be about, says Claudia. I wonder if we'll have a falling out. Probably, Georgie decides. I hope not, Claudia says. She picks out a pickle from the fresh jar of half-sour, store-brand, dill pickle slices. Yeah, she says, musing. Do you want to practice our breakup now? You want to tell each other what we really think? Right this minute at Claudia's prompting, Georgie starts. When we break up, I just want you to know that I'll be dreaming about you, fantasizing. Even when I'm married, married, you Claudia scoffs, and I'll despise you. I'll be the guy you hate that get off to you. Lightly, Claudia says, you're fucking twisted, and you're fucking filthy, Claudia. You're a whore. You're a bitch, an easy lay, you, you're talking dirty, Georgie. Come on, now, spank me, she croons. Georgie looks at Claudia triumphantly. Not if you want me to, he says. Moments later, they're under the covers, making love. What do you want, Georgie? Huh, little boys. Little girls, the priest himself she pants, grinding herself against him. Come on, baby, tell me, what turns you on what turns you on I'm stalking you in public, teasing you with thrilling possibilities, then I make you rape me, she purrs. Why because we're both wasted, drunk, and high, that's why, that's sick. What do you tell yourself about yourself more fantasies, 
Claudia admits, pausing for a moment. You that I'm no good, afterwards, Claudia relieves herself. I am sick, I am dizzy, Georgie laughs. Georgie, I didn't get a word you were saying, she calls from the bathroom as she washes her hands. You were talking shite curses, swear words, all that gibberish. You didn't make any sense, I can get like that. Sorry, Claudia looks at him so sad and alone. Oh, Georgie remembers. By the way, your fee. He pulls a wad of bills from his wallet, which sits on the nightstand. $4.25, right? You're from LA, Long Beach, wherever the home of cheap sex and cheaper thrills were. Your 10-minute hour is up. Next time, pay me before you fuck me, Claudia demands. Do you want me to leave? She smiles, smirks, and sneers. Georgie rolls over. Why don't I just become your little boy toy? You need one you already are. Claudia winks. I've got you hooked you're already in love with me. She looks him in the eye. And yes, I'll marry you. She flips her hair. The chances of you and me working out, Georgie says, are as good as they'd be with anyone else. You have secrets. I've got secrets. Well, so, no wedding ring. Then, says Georgie. No, that's silly. Claudia scoffs. I wish you were real. I come out of my fantasy and fill the shopping cart with canned tuna, parenthetical pet peeve, pull tabs that break off on such things as cat food, tuna, etc. It's funny how fantasy and reality unreal separately and together. Isn't that funny? Here's to my incredibly lonely existence. Dear diary, fuck it. I'm capable of clearing away and releasing at least some of my old feelings of self-rejection, low self-esteem overindulgence, jealousy, and emotional instability, by relaxing my twitching fucking body for once, releasing them, replacing them with love, as the negativity dissolves away, I can once again feel the love that is there, that has always been there, but was hidden by the feelings of the past, screw the past, when the past calls, I don't answer, it never has anything new to say part 3, Getting clean with Dr. C pregnant with the idea of Georgie Gust. Who is Georgie? Dr. C asks. If not you, Ben, then who? I'm glad you asked that question. I answer. But I don't answer. But then, I don't question the answers, either. You see, Dr. C, it's like this. I ask myself the same question. I ask myself again and again. When was Georgie Gust first planted in my womb? Was it when I gave up my virginity? When I was fucking Kathy Friedlander in our little childhood treehouse? Was he a seed of sacrifice? Was I really impregnated with Georgie? Or was he born with me? Actually, I'd say, he was born years later. But was I ever Georgie's father in the first place? Or his mother? Was he ever? I began to imagine Georgie a hell of a lot more vividly once I began writing about him that I know. And once I started to write, Georgie became everything I didn't like about myself. So, maybe Georgie is what you might call a subconscious projection, I guess. Or maybe, a psychological double, but what does that mean? And there are other questions I can't answer. Like, when I'm in love, I ask you, Dr. C, should I start or stop writing? Is writing my therapy? Is writing the cure all? the end all of my mental maladies, or is writing really the disease, the malaise itself, the source, the cause, the root of my perplexity, 
And what about Georgie? What do I do about him? Is he supposed to die in order to cure me? And what about Georgie's girl, Claudia? Why does she have to die, too? But, like me, Dr. C doesn't answer. I always imagined Georgie shooting through his mother's birth canal like a bullet. So Georgie's birth, of course, had nothing to do with me. This is probably why he's such a mystery to me, almost as much as I'm to myself. I mean I can't even hold my thoughts together. I'm terrible at transitions. Just start writing, Ben, and see what comes out. Okay then, Dr. C, to begin with, Georgie's parents were set up for a motel cocaine bust. Their cheap room is filled with smoke, the shrill fire alarm blares, their lovemaking is hysterically passionate, and the telephone rings off the hook. Finally, Georgie's young mother-to-be snaps into a sexual frenzy, threatening Georgie's father-to-be, get me pregnant she commands, just do it and she slides the limp rubber from his dick. Georgie's papa's socks are still on. The man wears a thick 70s moustache, true poor no style, right out of Boogie Nights. The paid-for couple is on fire, heated in ecstasy, fucked up on a drug-induced high. Suddenly, Pops makes that ever-so-agonizing announcement, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna come then he spits it out, I'm coming just as he spurts half of Georgie through the pearly gates and into his mother's safe haven, a half-dozen cops and the D kick down the motel room door. Talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Talk about being scarred for life. And Georgie isn't even an embryo. Yet, the invisible audience demands, we want details, details, details of the constricted, stressed, muscle spermy Georgie. The newborn child shows early warning signs of extreme fear and emotional trauma or maybe post-traumatic stress. He begins acting out nervous habits before he's two years old. As a youngster, he's withdrawn, he's considered an outcast, he doesn't have much self-esteem, the scared little kid is often sad and alone, still, he's caring and thoughtful of others, before he's out of high school, Georgie's diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome with concomitant paranoid features, bipolar depression, schizoaffective disorder, and other bullshite psychiatric disorders, he obsesses over his bullshite afflictions, uses them as excuses for his strange, offbeat behavior when he gets high, as a result, he turns heavily to drugs. His teenage life often seems hopeless and burdensome, he sometimes dreams of suicide, he goes to Wakefield boarding school by choice, by his early twenties, he picks up a slightly offbeat sense of humor. It helps him cope with all those bullshit psychiatric disorders. Then, one day, this kid experiences something besides irritation, anger, or depression. He has a spiritual experience, a mystical experience. He's possessed by some ineffable sense of supernatural beauty. And so Georgie Gust enters a whole new stage in his troubled life. But this mystical experience only comes to him in short, wonderful spurts, in a year. However, this whole new growth spurt takes him over completely. That ecstatic teenage kid is still alive today, somewhere, inside Georgie, inside me. But what about that wounded inner child, Ben? Is he still alive? To come on, Doc, lay off me. Just let me talk about Georgie. Okay, right, Ben? Flash forward to the big one. Georgie sits there crying, crying his heart out. There's nothing babyish about it. 
In fact, it's a breakthrough to some whole new maturity. His sacred heart's bleeding. His purple pens ink spurts and paints the page with his profound spiritual transformation. After all his struggle and suffering, Georgie finally releases his frustration, anger, and depression. His heart and soul bleeds all over the paper. For an eternity, he lives a secret metamorphosis. His ugly old life blends into something beautiful and extraordinary. He can't put words to anything he's transfixed by something supernatural, mystical, but also somehow sexual, physical, visceral, like an orgasm. His legs and hands tremble. Everything old and ugly has changed into a positive memory. The past recreates itself while the present still exists inside him. Something remarkable and intangible has taken over all of his senses. This inexpressible experience, which lasts only a moment, lasts his whole life. His whole life, that is, up until now. Everything pours out at once. It isn't an epiphany. Nobody dies. Nobody is reborn. This isn't some big tall tale, or some little fairy tale. It's real. It's genuine. It's incredible. It's beyond what language could convey. It can only be expressed by his delirious outpouring of tears, or maybe, an outpouring of sperm some climactic, ecstatic outburst. This man, who sobs with such intensity and purpose, isn't really a hero. He's just somebody I happen to know pretty well, better than myself, maybe. This man was once a stupid little kid, stuck in the principal's office. He's still silent and lost during the Pledge of Allegiance. He's still punished, humiliated, for not joining in with the class, the crowd. This stupid little kid is still the same rotten, out of shape, wannabe writer. But now he's finally completed something. Does that sound familiar? I don't know, Ben. Should it? Is that stupid little kid Georgie? Or you, Ben? Listen, Dr. C, I'm talking about Georgie. Just let me talk. Okay, and, you, ladies and gentlemen of the invisible audience, assume the position, that's Georgie, separate from me, that's who Georgie really is, I'm not sure if Georgie's the result of me sobering up, or simply a figment of the world inside my head, after I'm clean for a while, the confusion swarming my head is exacerbated, my delirium and perplexity is more extreme, to this day, I don't know why. And then the thunderstorm came, why are thunderstorms always female, do thunderstorms have sex, or what, the thunderstorm, anyway, would last more than a night or a day, she's known to Georgie and me, yours truly, Benjamin J. Screeber, as our private perplexity, Claudia, that is, Claudia Nisbet, Claudia Nisbet appears as she is now ghostly and pale, she's like the pale horse, she's my favorite nightmare. Was it love at first sight? Sure as shit. Every day. Every fucking day. Every fucking night. 2. My spine still shudders when I think of her. Her frizzy red hair, her pale skin, her sex, and her sensuality. Knowing we could have had a perfect relationship, simply because we didn't have a relationship at all, just makes me sick. It makes time stop. I remember Georgie Gust like I remember the shadow people flitting before my eyes when I was getting high. Georgie makes me see someone others can't see, someone I know very well, someone more real than me. His life is more interesting than mine. But, at the same time, I'm this person, 
Georgie Gust. Georgie Gust is the feeling I get when I think of his name, the drama and chaos I find inside myself, I find in him. Georgie Gust is the clarity he shows outside me, yet he's also a part of me. He is me. We are the same, different, but the same. It's a really fucked up phenomenon. Does that explain me, Dr. C? I'm merely a spy, an observer, in the world of my hallucinations. But Georgie's hallucination, Claudia Nesbitt, is the woman I desire more than anything else in the world. She's the only thing left in the world I want. But who am I? What do I really know about myself? What am I, apart from Claudia or Georgie? When you're ready to answer those questions, Ben, you just tell me, I'm working on it, Dr. C, you see, I am still stuck, still thinking about the past, Georgie's past, and thinking of myself like Georgie is me, so, I think again about why I want I want, I want, I want, she, Georgie's girl, Claudia, Claudia Nisbet, God, she's really so flat, said Claudia. She's just my stereotype sex fantasy, my misogynistic wet dream. So why should I want her? Because I think she's changeable. After all, I can think what I want about her, and do what I want with her, too in my mind's eye. So, the way I figure it, maybe if I change Claudia Nesbitt, her alterations will reflect in Heidi Birillo, and in you, Ben and in me, Dr. C. She's fucked up and I love her, I think. But my very own Georgie Gust has the key to create my ultimate perplexity through the creation of his ultimate perplexity. Does that make sense? Wait, what am I talking about? She's really just a stereotype character in my distorted mind. But I'm drawn to her complexity, through my loneliness. I mix and match the traits in her I want for myself, or is it the other way around? I build her up like a CSI composite sketch and then get off to the final portrait. You might as well hate me now, you see, Dr. C, if you don't already, I don't hate you, Ben, I'm only trying to help me, yeah, yeah, I've heard it all before, Doc, from those other psychos, but I'm really only trying to figure everything out, including myself, my feelings, beliefs, and opinions are not solid matter, they keep changing, this must be the stuff of life, the stuff of perplexity. Do what you want with me, Dr. C. Everybody, make me smile and decapitate me. Play soccer with my bloody thoughts. Tell me I'm creatively horrifying. But leave me my Georgie. Leave me my Claudia. Voices of Coprolalia set off repeated heart attacks in me. Love me. Hate me. Fuck me. Kill me. It's only a matter of time before you do. Anyway, give me a paper cut, right on my eyelid, on the corner of my mouth. I'm so lonely up here, I'm ready to die now, ready to swim into the realm of my warping mind, and now it's starting to pour outside, parenthetical pet peeve, paper cuts, I feel Claudia, she watches in wonder, she looks at me the way she used to look at Georgie with empathy, and with passion, emotion, and lust, and with love, Ben you tell me, Dr. C you tell me, dear diary. I think I might be considered an outside artist at least in my opinion what got me here I'm in the psych ward again, I've lost myself, or they've lost me, either way, I'm lost, I'm like the other people in the healthcare system, but I'm not in any system, I can't concentrate on anything anymore, 
I can't communicate, I can't see reality, and I don't want this self anymore. I didn't sign up for this shite. I didn't ask to be boring. I don't want challenges. I don't want to feel bad just so I can know what feeling good feels like. Sometimes, that's bullshit. It's just, like, a false dichotomy, or something. We've got to eyes so we can see this depth perception, in two dimensions, but why doesn't one eye do the trick? There's two of everything. There's two of me, or maybe even three. We're an inflation of karmic baggage, with full-blown egos, anger and compassion, and a piece of that chaotic plane which, I say in monotone, I fucking hate, there's really no me here, no self, and that's why I'm so mad. Thank you, Dr. C and the psych ward staff, for showing me my no self, my non-me. There's no me, here or there, there's only this jerk off, half acid, half shite particle of triple weenie, double dick shite, all the dicks exist for somebody to suck on, maybe for me, and a doubting, worried, scared, sacred something, a spirit, a me, I hate me, I am jealous of everybody else, because they are not me, and I'm stuck with me, I'm the nothingness they asked me to meditate on, but I don't want that nothingness, I want to be me, see, I keep on failing at whatever I do, at what they want me to do, but I don't want any more learning experiences, I am just solid matter, flesh and bone and nerves but I'm numb, here, I'm trapped, stuck, does anybody know what to do with me, is there a doctor in the house, take me away, Dr. C. Dear Diary, would I trade my comorbid schizoaffective spectrum condition, no way, never, too many gifts come along with it, when normies bunter and talk I laugh to myself on a whole other wavelength, sometimes schizophrenia sucks but other times it is the most fascinating reality, it keeps me on my mental toes full time, right now in this moment, I love it, with schizophrenia alone, my severe Tourette syndrome, only now that I'm a strong and healthy adult, I must add, remains entirely secondary, thank god. The best part of my schizoaffective spectrum syndrome is the autism element. Other than that, the symptom called hypomania focused, productive mild mania, combined might someday result with my John Nash moment a Nobel Prize. Sure taking it to the cleaners so, yeah, the cleaning crew finally arrived at our house. Georgie's and mine, I mean, note to self, is Dr. C right? After only a couple of sessions? Is Georgie really nothing but my alter ego, not a legitimate literary character, or a legitimate device, and when he dies, when I kill him off, because, after all, all literary characters must die eventually, what happens to me, do I get bumped off, too, do I cease to exist, and do I even care, after all, life in my humble opinion is vastly overrated, and much too long, but as I was saying, or was it Georgie saying, the cleaning crew finally arrived, daydreams are hitting home runs in my head, maybe Georgie's about to get evicted from my headspace, and if Georgie goes, if Georgie gets kicked out, what about Georgie's bowl, what about Claudia, Claudia isn't paying rent, and she's taking up all the space, Claudia's most likely hungover, or something, next door, somewhere, she's just a drag, she's just a parasite, She's just freeloading from Georgie and me. So maybe it's time Claudia got kicked out, to maybe it's time Claudia got the boot.
time for Claudia to check out of that private bedroom in my head, and time for me to stop wasting time, wasting my life, and fantasizing about her. It is officially afternoon. Time to wake up. Georgia wakes entangled in a web of slack. I wake up right beside him. Claudia starts her day with cranberry juice and a muffin, eating in front of the TV. I can just see her. And Heidi? How does Heidi start her day? Cranberry juice. Tomato. We can only assume. Her blinds are still closed. Breakfast in bed has been cancelled, as far as Georgie is concerned, and he's getting angry just thinking about whatever the hell Claudia's doing. And Heidi? Heidi's probably busy with something, with someone, too. With Claudia's Greg or Sarah. Maybe both. Maybe all three. And maybe I'm just a little paranoid. I pray to know my place in this world. I pray for relief. I pray to understand. To be a better man. I think about that kind of stuff all the time. And I'm sure my creator hears my pleas and is probably tired of all my confessions. By now. I am still in the bedroom, where Georgie gets down on his knees for a minute, who's he praying to? He gives an hour to his shrink, every day, every day, it's the same thing, he's barely awake, he's praying, so where was Claudia last night? Claudia was somewhere else last night, she thought about Georgie often, but she was with some lady friend, that's what I think, what I think, hell, I'm the fucking author that's a matter of fact, what I think. Claudia thought about Georgie all night long, too. That's what I say. That's a fact. And Claudia, she's a fact, too. Georgie rises from his knees. He sees there's a message waiting for him on the answering machine. Similar messages will follow through the whole next year. Tuesday the 21st of June 9.30 a.m. Hi, Mr. Gust. It's Ms. Nesbitt. Hi Dart. I've been hibernating. I did slip out and go dancing one night, but it was only for a few hours. Anyway, I am just working from the house for a few hours. Then I've got six clients. Anyway, I just want to say hi and thank you very much for giving me some space and some time. Um, I wish you were here today. All right, I'll catch up with you soon. Bye. Georgie saves the message, he saves everything of Claudia's, and crawls into the kitchen, barely awake. Parenthetical pet peeve, an item that ceases to function the day after the warranty expires. He opens the fridge and grabs a piece of cold, leftover pizza. There's a calendar on the freezer door. Shite, it's already November. He's been playing the same goddamn message from Claudia for five months. That's sick. That's what that is. Sick. And more than a little sad. Why in the hell can't he get over the bitch? Back on his feet? Georgie's full of rage now that the sun shines through the window, breathing existence, and life, and light into the cold dark house. What a little addict he is, getting agitated because of all the clutter around the house. His rage for order returns to him. Claudia had mild OCD, but she could do the dishes and laundry just fine. She was a great little homemaker, but she was rarely there. Still, it was nice to have Claudia around the house. Georgie usually has someone else clean up for him. Fucking housekeepers good ones, honest ones, a whole family of them. Housekeepers are a blessing to anyone who can afford them. Here we are, Georgie and me. Our morning routine has always been sloppy. I look over at Georgie. He starts cursing and bitching, just like any other day, 
Before the coffee pot even starts to brew, Georgie's been desperate these recent months for his morning routine to bring him something new, like a run-in with his true destiny, or a random messenger of good news, something like that, something new, something good. We look each other in the eyes, Georgie and I, it only lasts a second, packing to leave the house is a pathetic collection of moments, it drives Georgie fucking nuts, it drives me over the edge, we go through the whole pocket thing, the wallet, the keys, office, home, car keys separately, pack of smokes, lighter, loose change, gum, memo pad and pen, business card holder, boogerag, and dip. Everything's always getting misplaced. Georgie stuffs his pockets and car cup holders with whatever is handy, in a reckless hurry. He sorts them out later. All the house drawers are cluttered with petty necessities. Still, they keep getting lost, like everything else. And where is that Claudia? When you really need her, Georgie always overpacks, too. He tries not to have to leave the house too often, though, he hates to pack and he's sick of forgetting things, he feels guilty about that, it's another problem that somebody's got to be blamed for, like every other problem, got a problem, sure thing, blame it on Georgie, or blame it on Georgie's girl, Claudia, he used to blame his parents, I used to blame mine, now everything is our own fault, we don't have parents to blame, anymore, it's all our fault, Georgie's and mine. Georgie was born as the reason and the solution for that problem, he's the one to blame, I was born as neither for no reason, it's not my fault, it's taken us years to realize this, especially Georgie, things would be a whole lot simpler for me if he just realized that, what a great day Georgie declares aloud, a fucking fantastic day he stretches his arms out, he has a big smile for the moment, he has a positive outlook. But his runaway thoughts are always running, running, even if they hide out, for a second or two, no, not two, that's it, just a second, his runaway mind premeditates homicide, then takes over, Georgie's wish list, number one, I emotionally break down and cry whenever I'm getting head, it's pathetic, but it feels so real, number two, I'm myself, who else, but I still don't know myself. I'm a little confused about this, number 3, at first, my bitching neighbor gave me the attention I crave, she saw our little affair as just perfect, later, she failed to come through for me, I miss her, but I shouldn't, she's not worth it, sometimes I hate her, but I'm obsessed, I can't even think my way out of her spell, is she thinking of him, who's him now but even with these racing thoughts, Georgie's head is messed up this particular morning, anyway, all on its own, panic and anxiety have him by the ass, he doesn't know how he might have otherwise created the rest of his day, he just dreads all the upcoming chaos and the usual necessary trivial personal exchanges with others, finally, number 4 rolls on through, number 4, I almost forgot, I still want to see my neighbor again, I think she's absolutely incredible, Georgie still thinks he's justified, thinking thoughts like that, he's just horny, but he's healthy, isn't he, still, he has these thoughts thoughts of her, thoughts of Claudia, loving your neighbor like yourself is fucking impossible, the eye gets in the way, it's a self-conscious thing, Georgie's personality is a perpetual contradiction, what was this thing with Claudia, maybe it was love, 
Maybe it was lust, who knows. He told her he loved her, didn't he? Did Georgie really mean it, at the time? Did he really love her when she was out dancing with other people? Was it just infatuation, perversion, sex addiction, addiction to chaos, addiction to self, all of the above, who knows? Shut up, shut up, shut up, Georgie's ragging on himself, you sound like your fucking aunt B. But Georgie still has a lot of questions, that's okay, princess, he hears Claudia say. Georgie's spinal fluid still rushes up his neck whenever he says Claudia's full name, out loud or to himself, her big hands become something for his third eye to see, then her toes, that Claudia, she's like some 1950s glamour goddess, she dyed her frizzy, dark brown hair that pretty, peculiar shade of red, thanksgiving orange, outrageous red, but no matter what day Georgie wakes up, the sheer dread of putting on his prescription goggles and animating his dull world always frightens him. Reality hits hard, causing discomfort and disease. A terrible misery is born, then looks at the blurry alarm clock. It's the same one he beat down the day before. The same fist he now stuffs, snugly, in his briefs, cupping his balls for a warm night. He stays in bed for the whole beef oven concerto. Dear diary, about 30 minutes ago, my vision suddenly became extremely blurry with the following overlapping double vision effect. I was able to look at my eyes in the mirror. I didn't see any red blood. It was just odd. I recently had my eyes checked again, and yet again I do not suffer from any eye disease, only that I'm legally blind. Also, a legally blind, dyslexic writer, of all things, my god a chance encounter, reality? Ben's the last in line at the convenience store across the street. He appears to be conversing with someone, but no one is speaking to him. These people find better deals here, across the way from that one, two, three, four, five-star hotel. Better deals on both coffee and cigarettes, Georgie announces. S-H-H-H. Shut up, Georgie. Get out of my head. Hotel gift shops are for those in a hurry and for those who don't care much for variety or value. I never shop there. Guests shouldn't either. Ben gets a medium coffee and a pack of smokes, along with his change. From the clerk, he tears open the fresh pack of smokes, juggling the medium coffee in his other hand. He steps out the door, glancing at the profile of a woman sitting on the bench outside. She is heartbreakingly beautiful. Suddenly, Ben fumbles. He drops two quarters on the pavement. What are the chances of that? She chuckles. You're almost completely blind and deaf. Almost completely, Georgie points out. I know. Why? Because, Ben. Because, we're in the presence of a naturally beautiful older woman. It's destiny. Fate. She's the one. This always happens to me, especially if she's wearing open-toed shoes. Excuse me the lady murmurs, as she is. I'd lose my senses completely, as you have, as you do, as I'm. Oh God, I hope she hasn't got the slightest imperfection of either character or what's the word physique. She is just gorgeous, Ben, isn't she? Shoot, here she is coming round the mountain. Here she comes. The lady stands, approaching cautiously. Are you okay? She asks. Listen, Ben, can you hear her? She's got that plain Jane style that quietly rapturous voice you crave. Ben suddenly finds himself thrown backwards. I wake up early for once. By 8.30 a.m., 
I've already walked the ocean shoreline and am on my way to the convenience store to buy a cup of coffee and a pack of smokes. It is windy. I'm almost blown away. I hold onto my bright blue lampshade hat with my left hand for about a block, until I step behind the local hotel and it screens the big ocean breeze. The seaport hotel is right on the water. Some hotel guests are in line before me at the convenience store across the street. They would find better deals there on both coffee and cigarettes. Hotel gift shops are for those in a hurry and for those who don't care much for variety or value. I never shop there. Guests shouldn't either. I get my change and tear open the fresh pack of smokes with a medium coffee in my other hand. Then I fumble the smokes, the coffee, and the change. I drop 50 cents on the pavement. What are the chances of that I hear? I become almost completely blind and deaf. I know I'm in the presence of a naturally beautiful older woman. This whole blackout flashback kick is usual, especially if the beautiful older woman is wearing open-toed shoes. I'd lose my senses altogether if she had the slightest imperfection of either character or physique. What are the chances of what I answer? My own voice echoes strangely in the darkness of my mind. You were just singing Hotel California, she says. I heard you. It must have been playing on the radio while I showered this morning. She was humming the melody, too. I shut up. I look down. She scraped something off her heel against the steps. Or, I stepped in somebody's gum, she moans. I pull out a fresh smoke. I think it's a lifesaver, I tell her. She discovers that I'm right. But you were singing the same song as me, weren't you? She persists. I don't know, I explain. I don't remember. And here she is. She's brought such a perplexity into my world. My senses collect every drop of her data. Right then, the bright lights of her jewelry flashes bury themselves in the nostalgia depths of my imagination and memory. Well, don't be embarrassed, she suggests. That's amazing yeah, I say. A vintage black Ferrari pulls out of the lot with its top down. Heidi gives it no attention. The male driver, in his fifties, probably suffers from the same premature ejaculation that the car does, backfiring. I grunt at the thought, hey, you live down the corner of the next block, you're always smoking cigarettes out front, she says, I confess, yeah, probably, maybe, I waved to you the other day, she recalls, and you just turned away, she must have recognized the big blue hat, I'm really groggy in the mornings, I admit, she smiles. You're really antisocial, I correct her. Not antisocial, non-social, maybe, her face lights up. She starts playing with her hair. I was just on my way to get my nails done. I've been over at the seaport for the past week. God, it's this convention for work. It's so boring. What's your name I ask? Heidi Barillo. Heidi has a name tag on. She must have forgotten. What's yours she asks? Ben Schreiber. I say, pointing to her name tag, I was just checking to see if you were a liar, I stick my hand out, you've got a firm grip, Mr. Screeber, she says, she laughs, later that afternoon, we are hitting it off like we've known each other for years, I can't believe you've never given a girl a pedicure, she scoffs, really I reply, I do like feet, I want to tell her that I'm a virgin at making love to feet and toes. Hers are perfect. Heidi's hotel room is strewn with papers and folders, and felter pens. After she lights a joint, she gets a little feisty. 
Her hair is frizzy and red, and she is wild like my imagination, like I imagine her imagination. I puff away on my cigarette. I try to read what she is thinking through her huge green eyes, which I cries for good things, which one doesn't. I'm simply in the moment. I become an observer of myself, observing myself. I'm not my mind. My mind just works for me, not the other way around. I'm enlightened. For once, normal thoughts slip in, one after another. It becomes easier to focus. I'm not busy judging, analyzing, and making decisions. I'm completely focused on Heidi. I think, who's her dealer? Where's this woman from? What does she tell herself about herself? I get the impression from Heidi's eyes that she is experiencing something profoundly empty. Somehow, she is dramatically unfulfilled. She is left with voided hope perhaps a little like me. She looks me right in the eyes. We have a perfect moment, a true connection. Unfortunately, it ends abruptly. I try not to pry into her life, but I'm curious to know more about her. I know I'm not always the best at personal interaction. I'm not sure what is appropriate, sometimes. She asks a lot about me, but I don't say much back. Heidi asks me about all my confusion, about what I want out of my time here on earth. Big philosophical stuff. I tell her all of my needs are already met. I tell her I've already lived my life. I've had enough experiences with myself, all that crap, and I tell her about my pops, who always worked hard and always provided my family with wealth. I tell her about my pops, who meant the world to me. She calls my I've lived my life already bit bullshit, and takes a drag off my cigarette. Are you happy she finally asks. I'm not sure if happiness is what I'm really after, I say. I tell her I'm trying to actualize myself as a writer, a concept that is still completely muddy to me. I have idealized this image of myself in my mind, over the past 10 years, but the image keeps changing. In reality, I'm writing mostly in my head, right at that moment. My friends and family want me to put something on paper, to complete something, to achieve something. I don't think it matters anymore. Why not asks Heidi? It's like I'm too far away, in time, from when I was actively participating in things and enjoying them while they were happening. How old are you? Ben 30. Heidi is under the veil of drugs, but she's not paranoid or tripped, out or anything. Inside Heidi, there is somebody genuine, and I can see inside her, just barely make her out. There is somebody real in there. Funny, that's always good to know. The alarm clock radio is tuned to Billy Joel's An Innocent Man. Heidi says she has only recently figured out her life, at age 40. I don't believe her, and I tell her so. I don't believe you, I say. She says she takes things very seriously. She says that every encounter happens for a reason. Every situation, every consequence, everything, she adds. I wonder what my role in her life really is. Somehow, this woman, whom I've just met, knows me so well already. I've really missed that. People usually take very little interest in other people. But with Heidi, I feel honored and appreciated. Still, I feel like I don't really deserve the luxury. Heidi finishes her joint and pockets the roach. She slips off her open-toed leather shoes and stretches her toes. Her light blue polish has peeled off her nails, like an adolescent girl's. I need a pedicure. 
Heidi says, smiling playfully. Now Total's Africa airs next on the bedside radio, frightened of this thing that I've become, somebody sings, I paint her toes with new blue toenail polish and she falls asleep, I write a note, thank you, Ben, I watch her sleep for half an hour, then I write my home phone number below the note in my usual kiddie print handwriting and walk out, not really knowing what else to do, Heidi has a lecture to attend later on, later, I sit in my bedroom, still listening to the radio, hurry, boy, she's waiting there for you, the phone rings, the machine picks up, click, hey, Ben, I was just thinking of you, it's all about me now, isn't it, I can't help it, I take a carefree stroll on the beach, remembering the best parts of growing up, they flood my mind with nostalgia, I try to remain in the present, but I'm stuck in the past, the moonshine lights up the sand, and the white caps, that break 20 feet out, the tide is low, the rolling is a little choppy, but the wave sounds are soothing, I remember how rich and full my life was before, before, before what, I wonder what went wrong, I walk along the water's edge to find some inner peace, I have always enjoyed wandering around, not doing much, I'm comfortable in my imagination, or I'm comfortable nowhere, I think, has love ever made one whole year of your life miserable? I wonder if my year of misery is approaching. It is nighttime. I start to dream. Heidi and I are lost in our thoughts. We take in all that surrounds us. We are walking the neighborhood sidewalks, holding hands, until we come to the beach where the white caps crash right at our feet. Huge seagulls with wide open wingspans swoop in for their final feast of the day. The next morning, the beach is empty, the sky is grey, flat and still, surreal, the gulls fly low in flocks as the long Pacific rollers wash in and out, we revisit the past, but who's past, oh my god, the living colourful beauty is so intense, I just can't stand it, I speak on the phone with Heidi, I was downstairs at one of the lectures, it was so boring, Heidi says, boring, Hubbard I got several compliments on my new pedicure, she teases, thank God, I say, letting out a sigh of relief, I stand in the empty hotel room that weekend, bewildered, it had been quickly vacated I could tell, in the bathroom, there is a wet towel lying on the floor, crumpled up from wet feet with a woman's footprints embedded, empty single serving soap bottles make a mess on the core on the shelf, a Mexican housekeeper readies the room for its next guests, back at my place, I play the message player back again, so I thought you might like to know what a great job you did, and on such short notice, too, you were just in time for the only panel discussion I really came here for in the first place, her telephone had sat on the unmade bed with a box of tissues beside it, across the street from me is a fishing pier, a middle-aged couple walks hand in hand to the end of the pier, they stare out at the freight barges sailing into port, there is a snack and bait stand nearby, but it hasn't opened yet. At the base of the pier, a payphone dangles off its hook. There is some litter rolling around the streets. Not much, though. I'm meeting some cool people here. But a lot of them are really boring. This whole convention thing is really dull. The night before, Heidi and I shared a cherry slush puppy on the pier. She popped a few Tylenols because, she said, her head was still throbbing slightly from all the boredom and ennui lingering over her past week at the psych conference. I declined the Tylenol. 
I was still awestruck by the whirling seagulls and the shooting stars, only a few fishermen are out with their gear, it's still pretty early, an Asian man pulls up a small fish, the thing must be contaminated the seawater down below is brown and slimy but his boy grabs the bucket anyway, that small radioactive fish is a keeper, so, some of my friends and I wanted to hang out by the bar and talk medicine, but I was hoping we could finish our conversation from last night, I really enjoyed walking the town with you, after the slushy, we stopped by my place and shared a Winston, I invited her in, but she declined, we took a drive down the coast under the moon instead, my house is empty, nobody is up yet, the whole neighborhood is still asleep, a white van drives by, a newspaper is tossed on the manicured lawn out front, at least before I leave tomorrow, she said, oh, and the weather is so much nicer out here, sunlight bleeds horizontally through the closed blinds in my bedroom, pretty soon I'm sound asleep, I was thinking about how brilliant you are, Heidi told me on the answering machine, and, geez, you have so much talent, people look at you and they see big things, expect big things, that's what she meant, big things, little things, it doesn't matter, it's a stress I can't handle, people expecting things, anything, not from me, I live in my head, alone, I buy porno, coffee, and smokes from the snack and bait shop next door, and come home, jerk off, alone, I'm okay with that, the clock on Georgie's nightstand reads 10.30am, I wake up and glance at Georgie, I don't wake him, I crawl out of bed, the sky has cleared up a bit over the beach, and the beach is packed with kite flyers, a dozen kites glide over the blue fogged coast, bright with color and wonder, the hotel room next door is clean by now, ready for new guests, downstairs, a conference is just letting out, the checkout line is already out the door, most of the guests wear name tags on their blazers, the bellboys are busier than hell. There are dozens of fishermen on the pier, more men than fish, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail Heidi had asked, I love that question, I walk the beach, having no clue how to answer, most of the neighborhood seems to be outdoors, most people wear light jackets or hooded sweatshirts, they walk their dogs, parenthetical pet peeve, tiny white dogs with brown runny stuff around their eyes, they walk their children, alley cats run loose on the sidewalks, and slide underneath the cars parked on one-way streets, a few cars pass by slowly, going maybe 10 miles an hour, pest control trucks park outside at least one house per block, it seems like, there is hardly any crime, violence, or vandalism in this part of the city, maybe some drugs, some domestics, you know, whatever goes down inside people's private residences the stuff we never know about, Grab hold of just one project and get in there with your teeth and see what happens, she had said, why not, if somebody wants a story about you and you're the only one who knows it well enough, then go for it, you would do the world a favor, hell, do it for me, I'd love to hear about all that crap, as you call it, a small gate leads to my front door, it is a charming little pad, perfect for a loner like me, so what if your dad is some big, well to do asshole, this is your chance to shine, she coaxed, just go for it it was really nice to have some woman cheering me on, it was the closest thing I'd ever known to true love, 
Heidi mentioned that she'd found the perfect little gift in the hotel gift shop. She wanted me to call her later. The orange sunset flashes between two buildings downtown. I sprawl out on the beach. The sun is setting earlier than usual, I think. Why did I just leave like that? What about going back? Somehow, I just couldn't change my mind about Heidi. Reality hit me really hard, and I was scared to go after her, like a real man. Time stops for just a few exquisite seconds, maybe five or six, until I can't take it much longer. I'm self-aware in my newly discovered growth spurt. I'm happy, I guess. I'm so happy, I start to cry just because I'm feeling good, just because I can, just until I need to stop. I start to really appreciate having met Heidi. Maybe I'm still working through the obsession with Claudia. From the beach, I head back home. I'm already starting to have conversations with Heidi in my head without her being there or being able to answer me. How lucky she is. Is this love? Beep. Hey, Ben, I was just thinking of you. I was downstairs at one of the lectures. Beep. Hey, Ben, I doubt I'm just calling. I am sorry. It's the stupid conference. I'm not going to go to this class I have in 10 minutes. I'm getting so sick of the same thing over and over again. I am just in my room taking a bath. Anyway, I'm sorry to bother you. Thanks for letting me vent. Were we just two shattered souls who ended up trying to save each other in some doomed fashion? The door swings shut from inside the house. I never get calls. And when I do, I always miss them. Hello I answer. Ben you must look so beautiful in that bathtub, I say. That's one of the nicest things a guy has ever said to me. Back at her place, her lovely feet await my attention. She doesn't refuse when I administer an oral foot massage while she is still in the bath, right on the arches, Ben, she cries, I love every minute of it, her feet quiver with delight, her toes stretch awkwardly, I am sick, I am dizzy, she moans, and you're incredible, oh, the gibberish we speak in ecstasy, moaning meaningless words, sick dizzy, she giggles intensely, she giggles her orgasm, gibbers and moans her pleasure. I understand her, in some fucked up way. Afterwards, Heidi lies quietly asleep, on top of the white bed covers. She is wearing men's pajamas. I head back home. We hadn't made love. She must think of me as the friendly type, like most other women do. But that is fine. I'm used to that. Heidi is a little nutty, but I like that, too. She is a mess. She is so innocently a disaster. She is the little perplexity in my head. I get home at 3 a.m. I've always loved the night, when everyone else is asleep and the world is all mine. It's quiet and dark the perfect time for creativity. All of a sudden, inspiration comes. Things are clearer. My ideas make more sense. I can finally start to type out, with a little passion, some interesting letters on the screen. I'll have to begin the story from here, with me, as ridiculous as that sounds. It's been forever since I actually sat down to write again. Does this mean my writer's block has broken, or am I just fooling myself again? I never meant to be such a narcissist, I cry. I just can't get away from myself, I've always wanted somebody like Heidi to love. But I still don't know what I need. Maybe I just need one tiny success, one simple thing. Maybe I just need something in this life that will work out in the long run. Maybe I just need to complete something, 
to get over some things. Maybe I just need something good to last. God probably took delight in orchestrating me that day. I'll call it a day of personal growth. I never hear from Heidi or see her again. And now my mind runs wild with quiet confusion. The little affair we had felt so soothing to the senses. I'll wake up tomorrow, thinking about today. The next day I'll wake up thinking about tomorrow. Am I really just a perverted sex addict? Like maybe I think I'm. Or is this really some kind of love? You tell me, Dr. C please. Dear diary, I think we are all good souls, all of us, even me. Even if only deep down inside the Emperor Concerto, second movement he slaps the snooze button. Half hit, half miss. It's all gross. He's sweaty and ashamed. He can't even get up. Another fucking horrible day in the life of me. Georgie Gust. And then laziness creeps in. Georgie starts hating himself. He starts to laugh. Snooze. Damn it he tells the alarm clock. He always thought a snooze was a good nine, ten minutes. Georgie actually timed the Mythurfica several times. This piece of crap mostly gives him nine or ten minutes of extra sleep time. This day, that day, though, the thing can't even give him two. Cheap, damn thing. It's 1.30 p.m. Even at this hour, so far into the day, he hesitates to open the shades. He hopes it is not all dismal and gloomy outside. He's trying to picture himself somewhere out there, in the world. But he just can't picture it. Maybe if he just stays in bed someone else will open the shades, and save Georgie the trouble of discovering the day. He closes his eyes, falling half asleep, he finds himself in a non-smoking room at the local three-star hotel. He's hotel hopping. He needs to get away again. We always need to get away, Georgie and me, even if it's only in our head. Geographical change is the easiest fix. Georgie opens his eyes, he can't figure out where that three-star hotel has gone. He's already forgotten he's still at home. The next day, our place now clean, Georgie still can't get out of his head. He thinks how much he dreads, how much he resents, the effort it takes to take another shower, brush his teeth, and clean himself up, again and again. He just did that yesterday he shouldn't have to do it again today. Once should be enough once and forever. Now Georgie craves something different. He's desperate for something new. He would kill for something new. We both would, but who? This particular morning, the razor burn on Georgie's neck looks like a leper's chafed jock itch. He can't wait the couple of days for the skin on his neck to heal, but at least he won't have to spend the time and effort to shave again and that's comforting. After all, the longer he lets his facial hair grow out, the easier it is to shave. After all these years, Georgie still can't find the right shaving method. Currently, he's on a Panasonic electric for the first layer, then a straight edge without lotion for the second part. Back to a smaller electric beard trimmer, level 1, for his goatee shadow. No lotion, no cream, no soap. With so much nausea, angst, worry, anxiety, and despair welling up inside him, Georgie is suffocating in life. His pathetic and abused gut keeps getting filled with an extra load of explosive anxiety. It's worse than tickle torture. He hasn't taken any risks for some time now. The rut where he's been trapped has felt so safe. He's had no view, the walls were high, the rut was deep, all Georgie could see was up and out. 
Up and away? But away from what? Away where? More unanswerable questions, huh? Most things and events really don't have much meaning for him anymore. Georgie needs meaning more than anything else. But meaning is exactly what Georgie hasn't got. And he probably won't get it, either. Georgie really doesn't know what the day will bring. The only thing he knows is his sloppy routine of rituals, smoking, shiting, showering, shaving, fixing his hair, flossing, brushing his teeth, taking his meds, and organizing. He uses a ton of paper creating lists of things to do, things to accomplish, so he can feel productive. His father tells him it's important to be productive, so he tries, he really does. He looks at the bathroom mirror with the sticker in the corner that reads, just trust me, right? Like Georgie's going to trust any of the shitty asset people he calls friends. Georgie's pathetic reflection looks back at him from the empty mirror. He has this huge ego blowing up his head, like an untied condom, until it screwballs up and away. He guesses looks all right these days. No, really, he looks good. He just doesn't know what to do about it. He's so glam rock, he's so smart. It's like he has Asperger's, or some kind of artistic autism. But he's not sick. His doctor knows that, doesn't she? Dr. C, he can't deal with a label like depression or stress. He feels much worse than that. He feels like shite. Do you have a Latin name for shite? Dr. C, when he shaves, the razor makes love to Georgie's skin. When he pees, he aims for the silent section on the toilet's water edge. Afterwards, he usually farts, shites, and pees again, while he's sitting a little too long on the toilet. Georgie melts into the quality time he takes, thinking on the porcelain tank. His thoughts are trivial. They seem important, but they're nothing he would ever act on. He is on good behavior. It's just a lot of theory. A CD is usually skipping while Georgie's in the shower. In the shower, he strips down to his naked self. He comes into his true element. He can't see a thing without his glasses, and he can't tell you how many wristwatches he's lost because they don't have waterproofing. But that's okay. Waterproof watches are never appealing to the eye. Parenthetical pet peeve, smudged eyeglasses. There's no washcloth. He washes himself by hand with shampoo not soap. Shampoo works better because Georgie is hairy, like me. But I don't wash with shampoo. I use hand milled, organic soap from Northern California Sunset Cedar, from a shop called Patty's Organics. Georgie smiles in the shower because he was born a man. The shower is the one place where he's rarely sexually charged. He thinks of himself as a connoisseur, a connoisseur of filth, so soap does not appeal. Women's dirty fingernails, their smelly anal fetishes, anything nasty her already smoked cigarettes for the shrine, the smell of gasoline and melted hair follicles, filth. Georgie hates dropping the soap, he hates all the bottles in the shower, they confuse him and make him think these products are really useful when he knows they are not, parenthetical pet peeve. Long fingernails. Worse, long toenails. He hates falling in the shower. God, what else? What else can they do to mess up his day? What else is there to complain about? They should have a soap dispenser that mixes soap with water, like at a car wash. It would be a time-saving convenience. It would save energy. What an idea. He should patent that, and make a million bucks. Yeah, right, Georgie. Drying off? 
Tiles are so coarse and unfitting, Georgie gets water scars in between his toes sometimes, parenthetical pet peeve, hangnails, every day, all this, all that, everything is still the same, Georgie doesn't change, nothing does, neither do I same shot, different day, we say, Georgie and me, his feet are a size 12, he wears shoes all the time because his feet embarrass him, he wears blue shoes, that way, he doesn't have to think of how disgusting his own feet are, his legs are still in shape but he wears long pants, no matter how hot the weather gets, his legs embarrass him, too, otherwise, he is your generic, overweight pumpkin, his plump belly sticks out over his belt, maybe it's cute and huggy bearish to some single sex addicts, but to hell if Georgie thinks so, he weighs in around 268, his driver's license says he's 168, the driver's license picture doesn't even look like him, but the photo came out pretty nice, he used to be in shape, now he just recites affirmations, now he just tells himself he loves himself just the way he is, it's all bullshit, but it works for him, his passport picture is pleasing, he enjoys looking at himself, Georgie dresses up and blow dries his hair, and then he primps and curls it, he has these highlights, he has a kind of waspy, honk afro look going on, at least his hair is cool, at least his hair is always having a good day, my hair, now my hair is dark and thick with a bit of a permanent wave, my mother always said it was my best feature, and here I always thought it was my cuddly personality, Georgie should have picked out his clothes the night before, all his full-size shirts and comfortable pants are at the cleaners, and he doesn't fit into the 32s anymore, he went from a large to an extra large in shirts, Georgie's just started leaving the shirt tails out of his pants, he used to tuck them in, neatly, and wear a belt, but no longer, still, he'll keep the smaller stuff in the closet the shirts and pants don't fit, but some of the clothes remind him of the past, they have a nostalgic meaning for Georgie, in Georgie's case, too, clothes make the man, but make him what, I want to know, an hour later, he's finally dressed, now for the breakfast order, like everything else in Georgie's world, breakfast is a chore, he washes the dishes by hand to get his mind off everything else, he can't help feeling like things are falling apart in slow motion, doing things like that, little things, trivial things, reminds him of being hypnotized, strolling down the supermarket aisles at midnight with the trippy supermarket music and the paradox of choice everywhere around him, in the grocery store, somehow, time feels different, Georgie's out of orange juice, and the milk will give him gas, but milk goes best with microwave pancakes, Georgie likes his food a little cold, and he dislikes cooking. He presses the cancel stop button twice on the microwave when it's down to two seconds. It's not like he's in any rush. He has all day, parenthetical pet peeve, fat free equals taste free. His keys are in place. He locks the door without really checking. Georgie's sick and tired of always lock checking, lock checking, and then remembering I forget important things after he's already out the door, parenthetical pet peeve, if I return home. I suddenly get the feeling I didn't lock the door, then find that I did after all, Georgie, I think, could very well be a loser, but what's that say about me, that I'd be a loser of a literary character, too, 
What's wrong with the whiner, a complainer, an agoraphobic with OCD, is that me? I catch Georgie out of the corner of my eye and wonder what I've done, giving him all these issues. He swears he's not going to check that lock but he does. Anyway, even though he's just going out for coffee and coming right back, it's not like he's going to plan his whole life, sitting at the counter, sipping his cup of joe. It's not like he is some romantic poet at the Café Paris. Finally, Georgie lights his first cigarette of the day a Marlboro light and he worries about cancer, like everything else, and puffs away. After his first cigarette comes another cup of coffee, and then another smoke and a couple of more smokes, after that, he brings along his laptop computer, a pad and pen, and a couple of self-help books with the covers torn off, just in case, just in case something strikes, he rarely uses any of these things in public, sometimes he drives to the convenience store and sits in the parking lot, he watches people, he likes people watching but he doesn't like people, go figure, Georgie rarely looks forward to actually dealing with people, but he'll end up running into somebody every time, people get in his way, and they are unavoidable like signs on the sidewalks, or spills in the elevator, or sometimes Georgie gets caught in some really important check-in with somebody who really shouldn't care what's up with him, and neither should Georgie, all this whining and baby shite gets him nowhere, he knows but he just keeps bitching, he dreads being in line at the coffee shop again, he gets self-conscious and self-critical around the perfect advertisement model types in line ahead of him, they pretend they are holding their noses and standing clear of the stench coming off Georgie's stale, smelly sweater, it reeks of the toxic fumes of tobacco pollution, and they are all so nice and friendly, and trivial, and guarded, now that's a challenge, dealing with these people, I mean, without freaking out or throwing a temper tantrum, still, he's half asleep, Georgie's always half asleep, no matter what I do, except, of course, when he's thinking of Claudia, she's the only goddamn thing that really makes him feel alive, Georgie is next in line at the coffee shop, Tabitha's working the counter, but Georgie's not paying much attention to her, he's thinking of Claudia, what else, dear diary, I just let others say and do what they want I just keep being me, well, sort of in the parallel midst I observe Georgie's behavior as he is dropped off by a limousine, in a very arresting atmosphere a secret environment, I feel Georgie's anticipation and excitement, but we try to stay calm despite the secrecy and mystery, I finally figure out what's going on, exactly as it occurs, in this cryptic, tangential story. On a dark desert highway, the midday sun reflects off the tinted windows of a speeding stretch limousine, the pearl-white paint of the limo muddies with the billowing clouds in the bright blue sky. Outside, in the burning desert, it's the hot, dry middle of summer. Inside the limo, it's cool. Up front, a road map is open. From the back seat, through the sleek glass divider, I see Georgie's driver, Frank. He's focused on the long, straight road ahead, he keeps sniffing, like he has a tick, or something, Frank has been Georgie's driver for five years now, after all that time they've become really friendly like road buddies, Frank's passenger, Georgie Gust, is studying a face full of that new age, self-help literature, somebody is asking Georgie about his self-help books, who wants to know, is that you, Dr. C, 
So, to satisfy whomever, whatever, Georgie says he's studying them to do the exact opposite of whatever they suggest to do. Georgie says doing everything upside down and backwards keeps things interesting, keeps him from getting bored. A bright shiny pair of trendy new shoes lies on the floor of the stretch limousine. Georgie takes a deep breath, inhaling through his nose. He closes the book he's just finished, 12 Steps for Stupid People. In what looks like the middle of nowhere, the white stretch limo pulls up to the iron gates of an impregnable, palatial mansion, which is surrounded with high security fences and sharp razor wire. A trio of white uniformed security guards and police dogs check Georgie's identification cards then open the gates to let the white stretch limo through. Georgie's checked into a private nudist colony. His purpose here, should he choose to accept it, is to find a members-only, foot fetish club within this incredibly private resort. Passing through elegant ballrooms and elaborate security checks, he finally finds the basement ballroom where the foot fetish club awaits him to ask curious questions. He feels like he's whispering passwords in some secret code, undergoing rituals and signals in some secret initiation. Georgie strips down in a co-ed restroom, keeping his eyes to himself. He shuffles along awkwardly with his head down, his hands modestly covering his genitalia. He enters the foot fetish club. Some secret admirer makes Georgie feel self-conscious and embarrassed, but there really isn't anything wrong with Georgie attending orgies, except that it's not the cure for whatever ails him. What Georgie really lacks, those new age self-help books tell him, what Georgie really needs, although, of course, he isn't aware of it, at least not consciously, is his soul's work, or his purposeful vocation in the cosmic scheme, at least, that's what his guardian angel tells him, but then, who is his guardian angel, anyway, is that you again, Dr. C, he doesn't have a project, hobby, job, or relationship that he can pour caring, creative energy into that would result in the respect, appreciation, and connectedness from other loving, caring people that he so truly desires, and that's what he really needs, that's what would make him better isn't it, Georgie and the other foot fetishists, about 50 men and women, are lying on the white marble floor, on their backs, waiting for someone or something, not sure what, to come and begin the session. Everyone is perfectly silent, holding their breath. Finally, a loud, high-pitched siren screams, startling everybody awake, and about a hundred women enter the room. They scatter, performing barefoot massages and shoe-smothering exercises for all the club members on the floor. This orgy, club members say, is a completely safe and free arena where the foot fetishes can be completely naked, both outside and inside exposing themselves to each other, without shame. Georgie inhales the rank aroma of vinegar and smelly, sweaty feet, and the fetid odors seduce Georgie like a drug. He relaxes. The out-of-body experience, the heavenly sensations, the feeling of non-existence the sheer, ecstatic fulfillment Georgie receives from this hour-long foot trampling this orgiastic foot massage among his fellow foot fetishists. It feeds Georgie's best, most natural self, among the other orgy-goers, there are ouches and moans and yelps, but Georgie seems to be at peace. He lies on the white marble floor, completely nude, with no inhibitions. During the coffee hour the after-party, 
we find Georgie alternating between daring, sympathetic, or even kind of wacky, as he chit-chats with other orgy participants. Georgie's doing the best he can, working hard to make sense of his confused life. Women here seem to admire his risk-taking, his charming comments and postures, his urgent search for something to believe in. He tries to collect as many phone numbers as he can while there, and he's quite successful. We really admire Georgie's daring, passionate intensity, don't we? As he devotes himself to the intensely spiritual search for the painful sexual high that comes from fetishism and masochism. Some part of Georgie wants to get lost in the orgiastic swirl of fetishists and masochists, to escape into a natural high. Georgie's like a Dushan, experiencing bliss from the mere sight and smell of his guru-like runner in the zone, enjoying the runner's high. But there's also a part of Georgie that's self-conscious, self-aware, through the whole orgy and its aftermath. Among the ecstatic orgy-goers, Georgie's mind sees a Rubik's cube of interior connections, disconnections, and second thoughts constantly shifting, constantly changing, as one feeling is ruined or replaced by another. In these perpetual couplings and uncouplings of sweaty hands and smelly feet, Georgie's been getting off, sexually or not, on the human foot ever since childhood. It's always been an easy-to-satisfy pleasure, in public especially. But having advanced beyond childhood now, and finding out where the real good fetish houses are, Georgieson's been getting tired of his foot fetish, finding little room to expand on his fantasies. He can no longer get off so easily, as we find, even at this huge, ecstatic foot fetishist orgy. He has trouble finishing. He has trouble reaching his climax. He needs something even more impure and unsacred, some more intriguing, elaborate, fantasy material to satisfy him. Georgie's becoming obsessed with achieving constant, never-ending orgasms. It's a relieving distraction from being perpetually unfulfilled. He has such a voracious, addictive, and obsessive appetite that he can't imagine having anything less than total orgasmic pleasure. Georgie's in the white stretch limo. On his way home from the foot fetish club, he's wearing shorts that reveal a pair of badly bruised knees. What happened to your legs Frank asks Georgie. Georgie answers, oh, that, I crawled on the floor. It was covered with hard salt crystals. Georgie asks Frank if he can sit in the front seat with him. They pull over to have a cigarette and a little heart to heart. Georgie tells Frank that he once had a nanny, when he was a boy who disciplined him in sick and twisted ways when he didn't do his homework or forgot to flush the toilet. This abusive nanny hated him for his having so many privileges. She liked to see him crawl. The whole thing strikes Frank as crazy that somebody would actually take the time to execute all of these fucked up torture methods. He cites how the Iraqis keep prisoners in brightly lit rooms for days, subjecting them to various tortures and abuses until the victim loses sense of self and time. Somebody actually sits down and thinks up this shite Frank fumes. Fucking perverts. Fucking creeps. My old nanny used to get off to the torture stuff. She must have Georgie tells Frank. Or else, why would she keep doing it to me Frank agrees. He suggests that Georgie try to make something of his life. Living well Frank says. That's the best revenge where Georgie scoffs. I'll make a mess of everything, is what I'll do, what do you want, Georgie, 
For real, Frank asks, you already have everything, one orgasm, a peak experience that will last my whole lifetime, that's what I'm really searching for, during orgasm, it's like I don't even exist, that's what I really want, wouldn't you Georgie's ravishingly starved for an everlasting orgasm, a wild roller coaster fantasy that will show him what heaven is really like, and since Georgie knows his goal's pretty fucked up, he also keeps a much nobler goal buried deeply within him, to get married and have a family. By the way, how's that woman you've got a thing for, that Margaret, the helpline operator asks Frank, but Georgie hasn't been in touch with Margaret lately, in fact, they've separated, still friends, for the time being, Georgie tells Frank about his jealousy of Margaret, her abundant life is always busy somehow, filled with work and a sense of achievement, and even love, Georgie's life, by contrast, often feels empty, meaningless, and lonely, when Georgie gets home, Frank drops him off in the white stretch limo, before Frank drives away, he flashes a brief smile, I'll see you later, Frank says, dear diary, biscuit, bucket, rabbit, flap it, Georgie's home is my home, Georgie's living room is quaint and contemporary, there's an overkill of every fancy modernization, every electronic doodad, and every entertainment gadget that could fit in the room. There are photos and drawings framed across the walls of all his past girlfriends, and on the bookshelves are awards, trophies, and posters from his travels. There are hardcore intellectual books piles and piles of them most of them in three copies. It's the same with his video and music collection. He has way too many things. Some of his sketches and notes, left lying around, are only halfway completed. His drawings and paintings are scattered, unfinished but still shows signs of brilliance. Then there are the graph paper drawings intricate designs clearly drawn with some purpose. It's obvious that Georgie has a really strong mind maybe too strong for his own good, and he has way too many projects going on arbitrary projects, redundant and grandiose. His past seems rich and full, but he's lost the ability to find comfort in sleep, he has nothing to look forward to, all his needs are taken care of. The things in his house, although artistic, are placed according to obscure mathematical relationships. Everything corresponds to everything else. For example, Ben's quantum physics material is neatly clustered and labeled with the corresponding videos and books, near an MC Escher print. The stationary bike is surrounded by trophies, workout tapes, sports magazines, and signed baseballs. A metal ceiling fan reflects light while it's spinning spinning slowly above the wheels of the bike, Georgie passes by the running shower, now steaming, Georgie daydreams in the shower, even when the soap falls, he doesn't wash his hair today, you never look your best when you're about to encounter the one, the one you've been waiting for all your life, you're never fully prepared for that, Georgie resolves never to be fully prepared, no sex, love, Georgie mutters in the shower, she must have thought of me as the friendly type, that's fine, I'm used to it, I enjoyed myself and that's all that matters, God probably took delight in watching his orchestration of me that day, I'll call it personal growth, I'll never see or hear from Claudia ever again, my mind ran wild with quiet confusion, it felt so soothing to the senses, I could wake up tomorrow, thinking about that day, the next day about today, while I'm in love, 
I stop writing, for the most part. I know it won't last forever. I'm in love. I scoff at the thought. Me. In love. In love with Claudia. Me. In love with Claudia. Radiation babies. One of them is Georgie Gust. Georgie thinks, yet she drags off my cigarette so seductively. Dear diary, today I'm deciding that my life is my own. No apologies or excuses. So, all day I've just been writing a lot, masturbating more, and seldom coming, to, ha coming to in my home office, at my New Mexico ranch, or is it our home office, several home video cameras record me in this cramped space, or from different angles, I set the last camera up, and then sit down at my desk, I'm slightly on edge, nervous and scratching myself silly like, I speak to the cameras, holding a set of remote controls, one for each camera, I often fumble, you can see me close up, I say, real close, with the remotes, I zoom a couple of cameras in, I'm here, I say, stuck inside this little home office, I roll one of the cameras around to capture the yard outside the window, outside, it's scorching hot, I can barely breathe out there, hell, I can barely breathe in here, dear diary, I sure am schizophrenic, which is to say that I suffer from schizophrenia, also known as split mind disease, even though this label has caused a lot of confusion with multiple personality disorder, which is not the same thing, the symptoms are common, yet you won't find two schizophrenics who are alike, this illness affects us all differently, as far as I can tell, I'm a schizophrenic with paranoid tendencies and extreme social anxiety. Author Sylvia Plath described the mental chaos as existing within the eye of the tornado still and practically void, while everything else is ripped, ridded, and devastated all around you. This, I can agree with don't be afraid to let them show Georgie takes my shirt off, a black t-shirt that has bitch, written on the front in thick, white letters, it's drenched with sweat, he wrings it out, dripping, right on the floor, Georgie rinses his hands and returns. He takes one of the cameras off of its tripod and shoots from his hands, so he can shoot me. But I'm halfway crawling out of my skin only halfway, though, everything is stuck at the surface, where the I in my reality meets the we, God, I say, right, Georgie what he says, fucking yuck, I say, Ben, how are you feeling itchy, I tell him, my whole body itches, parenthetical pet peeve backs always itch where and when I can't reach to scratch, he watches me scratch myself, where he asks, where do you itch, Ben I show him where, and more itches surface, light dandruff seems to sprinkle on the floor, not just head dandruff, whole body dandruff, ankles, I say, inside my elbows and under my knees, my groin, crotch, more dandruff sprinkles like dust motes in the sunlit air, hey, what is that stuff Georgie says, scurf, scruff, er, what he zooms in with the camera on the dropping flakes, I'm telling you, okay I say, scabs, flakes, I go on and on about it, you know, the stuff is, like, growing on me, more like you're scratching it off, Georgie says, suddenly, I lighten up, very funny, I say with a slight laugh, you know, I call them creepy crawlies, I pause, after giving it some thought I say, here, man, take a look at this, I expose the gunk underneath my fingernails, scrunge, scrotties, Georgie backs off and lowers the camera, 
No, thanks, he says. I'd rather not, I'm fucking grossed out. I am just so dirty. You know then take a shower, Ben Georgie says sardonically. You're being way too hard on yourself, but I'm just so scruffy, I scoff. So yucky, Ben, come on, partner, old buddy, dear diary, I'm manic today, so I'm to journal all my stream of thought today. So how's your day so far? Etch a sketch on acid stream of thought over and over Sue soups Udinimbu. I need to write fiction, more fiction. I need to write, I need my wristband. And man oh man, brand new Nubian, my new psych meds adjustment whoa, it's goodies, almost better than purple pez. Ticks, be nice now. Again, I let my freak flag shine with my mentally ill mind and unsurpassed resiliency, and treating people as they are, so they remain that way, treating them as though they are already what they can be and I help them become what they are capable of becoming. It is what it is and was what it was. Moving onward, I'm an ever-evolving process myself, of consciousness, itself. Make it and makeshift it. Prototype it, grab it, snag it. Life is short, making it my best day forever and always 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 myself. It is possible to not be myself, so I'll be me with the occasional pen name, R, and a laugh in DL Envoy, Jet RJ. But not quite yet the book the book and a bathroom break office bathroom I'm still complaining when Georgie leads me into the shower. What are these ultraviolet blue boils about to burst on my thighs? I can't even close my legs right dear diary. If I was a girl I'd want my name to be Monique. Random thought. Total e worth putting on paper in the shower water off my pop the boils. Ha yeah. Man I exclaim. I turn to Georgie. Is it hope I say? Excited by the possibility, or what hope Georgie echoes. No, why, do you want it to be I think harder as Georgie helps me take off the rest of my clothes. I can see, and even smell, my skin. It's sporadically yellowed. Is it AIDS I ask, just to annoy him. But Georgie isn't annoyed, no. Ben, he tells me, no, really. It's not uncommon for a diabetic, like you, to have these. These I feel lecture coming, so I break in, I know, I know, the lesions, you, Ben, you can get these lesions, as you call them, in a way, yes, in a way I want AIDS, I want even cancer, that's stupid, why so, I say, so I can go through more illness, so I can overcome anything, maybe everything, I'm sort of rebelling or conforming against something or for something, I don't know, I shrug. Pretty hard to do both at once, though, Georgie turns the shower on, I yelp, he flushes the toilet and I yelp louder, parenthetical pet peeve, people who flush the toilet when I'm taking a shower, later that afternoon, I watch the trees outside losing their leaves, but the wilderness, the trees everything is closing in on me, the tall trees block most of the mountains in the distance. I try to step out of my own little world at home or in my head but I'm all alone, shivering, with only a towel wrapped around me. Georgie shows up again. He steps closer to me. I have some Cindy Lauper song playing in my head. I think it's called True Colors, and it's stuck on repeat. She's singing some crazy lyric about feeling small in this crazy world. I feel like I'm wrapped in a blanket of blood orange, warm orange, actually. Pure fucking orange. Come on, Ben, Georgie says. No daydreaming. 
Not now. Come on back inside. Wait. I am still freezing. I whine. I walk around on the pathway towards the river. I guess I must look agitated. I guess I must look that way because I still am agitated. That is, I am the agitation. I must be choosing. I must be manifesting. Those new age books say, this agitation, my divine force must be doing it this very moment. I'm manifesting the agitation of my infestation. Then I get this thought, an instant of bliss, where I'm a lesbian, a woman. I'm in this coming of age film where my wife tells me how beautiful I'm. I tell her the same thing, too. You're so beautiful, I say. The film is a small art house epic with a limited audience and, of course, the critics kill it. Still, I'm in love, privately, with the woman I want who I want to be. My lesbian wife smiles and I see Georgie is right behind me, zooming in with the handheld camera like he thinks I'm thinking this shite up, like I'm choosing, like I'm manifesting this shite. He's busily capturing all of my announced irritations as I continue to blurt them out, and now my daydream is over. I am still scratching myself furiously. Bugs and mosquitoes swarm over me. See, Georgie, look, I say, mosquitoes, clit nibbling, I say, it's like a tick. Georgie drops his gaze, looking around the viewfinder, clit nibbles, that's a good one. You mean they're biting you, he says, eyes zooming through the lens. My arms, I say, my face, my ankles, a bee's nest, mosquitoes and wasps. There's too many fucking bugs out here, like I said, Georgie says. Come back inside now, fine, I say. I'm coming, you can't run, Ben. You can't hide, Georgie says, from anything. Can you as we walk back? I can't even respond. See, you're stuck, Georgie smiles encouragingly. Now come on back inside, there's a long pause as we keep on walking. Georgie puts his arm around me. Why not give us a tour of the house he says. Will you, Ben I'm barefoot, wearing my robe, still talking to Georgie's camera. I jump around the house, giving the tour of all its shortcomings and issues, like it's me. Like I'm on this old house, or something. Well, I say, the walls are concrete, cinder block. 70s stuff, outside, dirt, no grass infested with goat heads and foxtails, the goat heads, they jam into my bare feet like sharp crystal glass, you're stinky, dirty, overgrown, hairy, scarred, bare feet, Georgie prompts, just look at you, Ben, I know, I have to pull the suckers off, each little fucking goat head, one by one, and the dogs keep bringing them in, too, I let the three dogs in. Outside, the courtyard is adorned with colorless landscaping and a few empty fountains. Why don't I remember any of this? It's always been ugly, just plain ugly out there. After peeking, I turn my inside out back inside. Geez, I'm thinking, it's like, 120 goddamn degrees out there. The humidity is up to nearly 40%. So much for getting out of New York, so much for getting out of California and moving out here. Out here to Albuquerque, where the weather is always just gorgeous, where everything is beautiful, I start feeling doubtful, so much for the suffocating morsel of love, living in this living hell, so much for this poor, mortal morsel of a person I call myself, whoever myself is, eloquent, Georgie says, that's very eloquent, Ben, 
I look at him, showing him my sorrow, and smile. Okay, cut, I say. Dear diary, one thing I can't define, time, I can waste it, use it, abuse it, and kill it, blah. But I don't think anybody can define it. Cool shot, feeding the runners high in the writing zone. I can handle the mania, so it's sure worth the depression. When it comes history of sex it's night time, the dead of night. Sometime in the past, I'm in our guest house, and I guess you ought to know, our guest house was once New Mexico's nastiest crack den. Still is, in my mind. Yeah, it still is in my mind. The phone keeps ringing and ringing. The dim bulb light flickers, lighting up the cramped living room piled knee-high with dirty clothes, abandoned pizza boxes, crushed beer cans, half-eaten chocolate bars, everything a pig leaves behind after months of just letting it lie. I stumble through this mess, with a crack pipe in my mouth. I'm searching for the phone, and the phone just keeps on ringing. The troop, a troop of zombies, jerk spasmodically out of the walls. The nameless movie director, a slick guy in his thirties, carrying a megaphone, the fit and slim jogger, a really sleek dude in his twenties wearing an Olympic jogging outfit, the successful stockbroker, a flashy dresser in his forties in Armani with Hugo Boss kicks, and the poor homeless guy, who's old-aged or ageless, dressed in ratty clothes filthier than the mess in our crack den. All of them surround me, spasming and jerking, shuddering and twitching, and from somewhere, Georgie appears, or maybe from nowhere. Georgie says I don't even notice how creepy they are, these crackhead dudes. But I do. I really do. Georgie says those crackheads watch me, when I'm not watching, like now. They copy me when I rummage through my pile of clothes, discovering an old closed umbrella, wine umbrella, who knows, not me, parenthetical pet peeve, if I leave my umbrella in the car on a cloudy day, it will rain, if I bring it with me, it won't, and then the phone stops ringing, dear diary, I don't know what my dream is, so I think about what I want my life to feel like, then write it out, thus living it, living the life, baby umbrella makes me spread my wings I pick up the umbrella and examine it intently. It's one of those cheap umbrellas that will snap, break, tear, and tatter away with the slightest gust of wind. A Georgie gust of wind, for example, are you there, Georgie, funny, I never use an umbrella, so somebody some other crackhead must have left it here while making a delivery of cheese or crack or whatever I was into at the time. I don't remember somehow, but I must have been in the rain, it must have been some time, I can't remember. The time is now, the zombies copy me. They pick up their own closed umbrellas and examine them intently. Their umbrellas are the expensive kind with elegant, cane-like handles, looped, curled at the end, sort of mobster style. Real gangsters, not gangsters. You know classy. Thunder booms, lightning crackles, the room close. Rain begins to pour. I open my umbrella, but it's shredded, and I'm instantly drenched in the downpour. The zombies open their umbrellas, which are not shredded. They look at their umbrellas. They look at me. They look at themselves. They seem somewhat confused. I take the crack pipe out of my mouth. Drippy rainwater pools up in the bowl so I can't light it. So much for the umbrella. Huh. I dump out the water, try lighting the pipe. Then I notice the zombies again. 
I hold my crack pipe up in their direction, like I'm asking them for a light, without really asking, you know, the zombies know, the zombies back off, and the rain stops, the phone starts ringing again, I'm not wet anymore, but I'm not carrying the shredded umbrella, either, I still have the unlit crack pipe in my mouth, I am still looking for a light, I am still searching for the phone, I crawl over piles of dirty clothes, across discarded boxes of pizza, I creep over all of the garbage, the zombies, also not carrying umbrellas anymore, follow me, they creep after me, searching, and the phone keeps ringing, I pick up a crushed pizza box and shake it, hard, something rattles around inside, I don't know what, the zombies pick up their pizza boxes and shake them, too, I open the pizza box, exposing a crumpled pack of cigarettes, I pull out a cigarette from the pack, I light it up and take a deep drag, the zombies do likewise, they talk to themselves like this is some goddamn party, wine glasses pop up in their hands, with a lit cigarette still stuck in my fingers, I smile at them, I pick up a half empty beer bottle with cigarette butts floating around inside it, and I raise it in their direction, like I'm toasting them, here's to you, zombies, I say, fuck you, anyway then I down the beer, butts and all, and to me, this foul brew tastes good, taste something, anyway, the director, jogger, and stockbroker watch me, shaking their heads in disapproval, like I'm some kind of second class citizen or something, maybe even a transvestite, maybe a queer, maybe something even creepier, hell, I'm better than all you zombies, I want to say, the homeless guy downs his beer, too, he belches happily, he nods at me like he likes me, thanks, brother, he says, I stretch out on the mound of dirty clothes and pizza boxes and close my eyes, I'm trying to get some shooty, I try to tell myself I'm dreaming all this, like it's all some kind of sweet dream, the homeless guy stretches out, like me, and shuts his eyes, too, he starts snoring, like he's having sweet dreams too, the director, jogger, and stockbroker keeps staring at me disapprovingly, I take a deep breath like I'm falling asleep, and drop my cigarette, the homeless guy drops his butt, too, the phone stops ringing, time passes, I open my eyes, the whole room is on fire, but at least the homeless guy and the other zombies are gone, I must have burned them out, I think, somehow, I have the lit cigarette stuck back in my hand again, but I don't care about the burning room anymore, I watch the fire get bigger and bigger, and then watch it shrink and die out, for no reason, from nowhere, out of the fire, steps Georgie Gust, he's in his thirties, Georgie is, and he's my alter ego that's my Georgie, he's sitting there on a pile of dirty clothes, Georgie has the crack pipe in his hand, I thought you quit, he says, Georgie scolds me like I'm his alter ego, or something, crack I say, then I glance nonchalantly at the cigarette in my hand, they will kill you, you know, I hear, I take a dark, deep drag, emphysema, Georgie says, cancer, heart disease, I flick the lit cigarette in Georgie's direction, like a big gummy booger, it splats onto the carpet, TSK, TSK, Georgie says, he just stands there, brushing off his clothes, even though no cigarette butts even landed on him, real mature there, Ben, I say to myself, you see, I'm Georgie, too, 
and Georgie Porgies me. We're really close, Mr. Georgie and me. Sometimes we don't even know who's who. Just burn down whatever you don't like. I say to Georgie, why don't you, starting with me, I keep on staring at Georgie for a long time. Finally, I say, it's Kelly, what, who Georgie replies, incredulous, your wife my wife, sure, all of us remember, from the get-go, Kelly is my wife, and my future wife, too, we're lost in time and space, Kelly's the one woman I haven't let in on my secret obsession with you, Georgie, and your obsession with Claudia, I've been keeping everything from her and have never been honest with, her, with Kelly, I blame you, Georgie, she needs to know, after all the confusion ends, Ben, if it does, well, I want to get her back, but you deserve her more, I'll admit it, but I'm Ben and Ben needs Kelly the most, Ben will battle by any means, Georgie, you don't need this cracked up confusion, you've got Claudia already, ever since you stopped at the silly store, and look where you are now, take a look at Kelly and what you've done to her, and look, because that's what you've done to me, too, Kelly, an emaciated, skin and bones, apron wearing, rolling pin carrying housewife zombie in her thirties, twitches and jerks into view, Georgie takes a closer look, that's not your wife, he says, that's not Kelly, the housewife zombie from the 1950s twitches and jerks out of sight, she's replaced by conservative zombie wife, a Grace Kelly clone, wearing a straight skirt that ends well below her knees, an angora sweater with a clip, and sensible flat shoes, and that's not your wife, either, says Georgie, you can't fool me, conservative zombie wife spasms and jerks out of sight, she's replaced by the real Kelly still a zombie, but kind of sexy, wearing a tight t-shirt and jeans, I stare at her for several seconds, oh, Kelly, my wife to be, my living colorful beauty, I do, I remember, she doesn't get me, I say, R, Georgie says, I get it, Ben, it's the old line, it's my wife she doesn't understand me, right Kelly flashes a year, sure, kind of look at Georgie, it's not me, he says, it's him, blame it on him, Kelly flashes the same kind of year, sure, look at me, she doesn't get my I say, she doesn't get my obsession, you know, I pause significantly, she doesn't get my Claudia, Claudia Nesbitt, the real zombie pin-up poster girl for the eroticism of homeliness old, chubby, bespectacled, pimpled, chunky, and brutal. Besides that, a vampire undulates less severely into view. I sigh in rapt appreciation. Kelly lifts an eyebrow. The phone starts ringing again. Claudia notices Kelly. She hisses, baring her fangs. Kelly flips Claudia off with a stiff fuck you finger and twitches and jerks out of sight. Claudia watches me as I look for the phone. Still undulating, she comes closer and closer. Stepping between us, Georgie blocks her path. She stops dead. Claudia's dead, I tell myself. Get used to it. I throw clothes from one pile to the other. I throw pizza boxes from one end of the room to the other while Georgie and I talk. She gets jealous. I say, Georgie is still keeping an eye on Claudia, who, Kelly he says, yeah, Kelly, I say, she's my grill, she grills me, see the stockbroker wheels a grill into sight and douses charcoal fluid on it, I briefly see myself spinning on the rotisserie, 
Georgie frowns at him disapprovingly. The stockbroker wheels the grill away. I can still hear the phone ringing, but it seems quieter now. Constantly, I say. I shrug. The housewife zombie shows up again. She shakes the rolling pin menacingly, first at me, then at Claudia. That doesn't sound like the Kylie I know, says Georgie. The housewife zombie disappears. The real zombie Kelly shows up again, looking slightly miffed, but maybe also somewhat amused. And all she is, I say. All Claudia is was ever will be is an obsession. You know, she's just a figment of my imagination. Claudia frowns, begins to fade out. I finger my crotch. And a goddamn good one, too, I say. Claudia wavers back into sight. Kelly fingers her own crotch. And what is Kelly asks Georgie? Chop the movie director shows up again, carrying a meat cleaver. Claudia's image gets clearer. No, Georgie says to the movie director. Just say no. The director disappears. There is was will never be anyone like Claudia, I admit. Now Claudia is crystal clear. She's right there in front of me. And I'm just about masturbating. Kelly imitates me. Fuck me, she says, but tauntingly. Claudia wavers. The phone gets louder. The movie director shows up again and starts fondling Kelly. She fondles him back, but she keeps looking at me, like she doesn't give two shites about him. Trying to make me jealous, or something. When I get real again, I stop fingering myself. Claudia fades out. There's no one like Kelly, Georgie says. Right? Ben the ringing phone keeps getting louder. If you don't watch out, Ben, she'll leave you. You know that, Ben, Georgie says. Just like Claudia, I look distracted, annoyed, even. And that's when Georgie disappears. I keep looking for the damn phone. It glares unbearably. Like before, I throw everything from one side of the room to the other. The phone blares and hollers. I'm holding my ears. Goddamn phone I shout. The ringing phone turns into police sirens. The zombies all of them, including Kelly climb out of the pile of garbage. Georgie's there, but this time he's a zombie, too. One by one, they slip simple black suits over their costumes, then clip guns and police batons on each other. I shriek, not necessarily out loud, though, in terror as the zombies turn on me. The zombies want to eat me. I'm nothing but zombie bait. I race away. Over the clothes, over the pizza boxes, over the whole mess. I'm outside, now, somewhere in Albuquerque. I race through an alleyway lined with metal garbage cans and dumpsters. Every time I pass a garbage can, it clatters noisily down and starts rolling towards me, forcing me to jump over it. Every time I pass a dumpster, one of the zombies pops up and points a police baton at me. I'm terrified. I keep racing away panting and sweating. I fall down. I faint. I blink out. I wake up back at the crack pad, just like before. I have a crack pipe in my mouth, and I'm lying on a pile of old dirty clothes. I'm alone. The phone rings, not so noisily. A toilet flushes in the background. Georgie walks into the room. He glances at me and nudges me with his foot. I roll over on my side. The phone is underneath me. Georgie picks up the receiver. This is Ben, Georgie answers, I'm not here, leave a message, the dial tone fades and fades, Blackheart, dear diary, if I was rich, I wouldn't be greedy, I'd donate half of my riches to the needy, 
but I'm a diagnosed schizophrenic, but I'm ill, chill, cool ill, not mentally ill, well, in a way, artistically ill, like Van Gogh, among others part 4, Dr. C meets Mr. Clean Mr. Clean excerpts from Ben's secret diary, it is always late September, always Indian summer, when the air is always really crisp and clear, the red, brown, and yellow leaves are always changing, and the bright summer light is always fading away, it's never winter, it's never spring, never summer, it's always fall, always September 1987, when those creepy builders are tearing up our old house, I'm shut up inside and I can't even get away from the fucking noise and smells, I always want to go outside and ride my bike, but my mother says, it's too cold to go outside, Ben, and so all day long there's this whine of electric drills and power saws, a shrill, high-pitched screeching noise, and the sweet sour smell of freshly sawn wood attacking my nose, my ears, and my eyes, I'm 11 years old just a little squirt, not even big enough to be the big jerk I'll turn out to be. But, yeah, it's me Benjamin J. Screeber, only I'm called Benji, now, mostly. I'm living with mother and pops in suburban New York, three doors down from New Jersey. My mother rags at me daily in that same whinny, high-pitched voice. We are not from New Jersey, she says. We are not like those Jersey people. My mother is really clear about that. It's the one thing that she is ever really clear about. We are not from New Jersey. She says that only niggers, spicks, and white trash live in New Jersey. And so, Mother says, we're definitely not from New Jersey, okay, mother, I say, to get her off my back, we're not from New Jersey, now can I go outside and ride my bike the whole truth is that I don't care where I'm from, really, I just want to go outside, where the sycamore and maple leaves are changing, I just want to go outside, where the whole world is on fire with blazing colors. The leaves flame red and gold and the sky is a brilliant, vivid blue, a Georgia O'Keeffe kind of blue. I just want to go outside and ride my bike, but my mother says it's too cold out. It's too cold to ride your bike, Benji, mother says, you'll get sick. You have to stay inside, with me, and I have to listen to her, because she's my mother. But I know she's lying, I can see it in her face. I can see the way her eyes shift away from me when she tells me her lips purse tight, no, Benji, it's too cold, you'll catch your death, or maybe, mother, my death will catch me, my mother doesn't want to let me go outside because my pops is divorcing her and she can't take the thought of being alone, not even for a little while, that's the real story, behind her bullshit lies, but she doesn't have the guts to tell me, and I know it. Our family is so unhealthy that I can feel it, taste it, and see it. It's like being sick, or tired, or dead though I don't know, really, what dead people are like, or even really sick people. I only know something is sick, or tired, or dead in my family now that Pops is leaving. For my mother, I'm the uncle and son, maybe even the husband and son she never had, and now will never have. How can I be all of those things for her, anyway? I am just a kid, just 11 years old, yeah, that's me, Benjamin J. Screeber, only you can call me Benji, mother, my mother never says she's lonely not to me, anyway but she tells her friends, especially Rita, 
She talks to her friends like I'm not really there, even when I'm right there in the room. She talks to Rita more Rita, Rita with the short hair and long, painted nails. Rita comes over Tuesday and Thursday afternoons to play canasta and drink gin and tonic. My mother tells her, I can't take it, Rita, I just can't take being alone like this, now, now, Rita says and pats my mom's hand until she starts crying, my mother, that is, my mother says she's not going to make it and what is she going to do, meanwhile, Rita polishes off her third cocktail and pours herself another, and that's why I can't go outside because it's not Tuesday or Thursday, and Rita's not there to keep my mother company, and because my three-year-old sister is too little to be company, so I have to be there for mother, and be her little man, even though she knows, and I know, that I can't give her what she really needs, so, instead of going out, I kneel on the nubby wide couch, resting my chin against the back cushion and stare out the window, instead of riding my bike, like I really want, I have to listen to Mike Nova, the contractor, who's sitting at the piano in our living room, my mother's living room I guess, not mine so white and stark and modern as it is, blindingly white, I listen to Mike Nova droning on in his whinny voice, just like those electric drills and power saws screeching in the background, trying to woo my mother into getting more bang for her buck, but he's just trying to talk her into expanding the renovation into a complete remodel, which she does, eventually. Mike transforms a simple remodel job into something more like a whole second home built over the skeleton of our old house. This demolition job, this so-called renovation, this complete remodel, it will be my mother's final fall fling. It is her last big double dip into my father's money, because after this, they'll split the money. All I know is that my pops is never around anymore, and I can't handle that, either. It's like a big empty spot and that sick, tired, dead feeling fills our old new house. Pops told me early this morning he would be home tonight, but he's not, and he's not home the next day, either. So, I spend the whole day in my own secret loneliness, my sick, tired, dead feeling like a winter weariness. I sit staring out the window at the blazing trees and the red, brown, and gold leaves, waiting to see a bored albino jogger I call Mr. Clean. Mr. Clean runs past our home every day, same time, same place, though he looks old and big and strong to me, he can't be more than 20, he's still young, even if he's old to me, and he, he has that sleek look like a big hungry cat, like a big cat stalking prey, he just runs, every day, no matter what the weather is like, he runs around the whole block, the whole town, with his white t-shirt never showing any sweat, and his white mailman shorts pumping, and a big silver cross necklace bobbing to the beat of some old, sick song in my head, he never stops, it doesn't matter if it's Christmas, New Year's, or any other holiday, he runs every day, all day long, still, no one else in my family has ever seen him, not Rita, either, maybe he's not even real, how the hell should I know? All I know is that I've seen him, and now I can't stop seeing and seeing him, in my memories and dreams. But late that day in September of 1987, I think of him like a white porcelain stallion, like the white clay figurines on my mother's shelf. Maybe he's really sick, I think. Maybe he's terminally ill, 
Or maybe he's just fake sick, like my mother, sometimes. Maybe he has nothing else to do except run his whole day, run his whole life away. Even at night, I watch him from my bedroom window and I know he'll be there, eventually. Someday, he'll be there for me. Just wait, I say. Maybe that's him now. Here he comes now. Mr. Clean. Here comes Mr. Clean. Dear diary, I just heard from my psychiatrist and apparently there are a few more people in my life who I've just now been told are hallucinations and that I'm their hallucination. It's messing with my head because that's what my novel is about to me, at least with the same concept. I'm pretty sure this will be night number four without sleep. My book has become synchronistic with my life, which is why I started writing it in the first place, which I understand seems odd. But once again I'm questioning my own physical real existence. This autism spectrum stuff or whatever it is for real it's crazy, man. I want to stay awake, sleeping without dreaming and dreaming without sleeping for the rest of my life with all of these mental maladies. It's the most fascinating existence so to speak ever known to any human being, literally. Oh my goodness it's amazing and entirely 100% synchronistic Dr. C meets Mr. Clean so. This is my writing therapy, huh? My writing as therapy. That's what Dr. C says. Anyway, write it out, Ben, she says. Write it out of your system, so Dr. C agrees with Kelly. It's probably a good idea, she says, to write out some of the grossest stuff, the obscene stuff, the violent and sexual stuff. Write all of that first. Get it out of you. Yesterday, Dr. C asked me what, specifically? I was talking about with her that I wasn't willing to write about, so I explained it to her, for one thing, like the way my stepmother was in bed, and how salty her pussy tastes, how about that, Dr. C, is that what you want me to write, Dr. C looks a little cautious, worried even, yes, I would like you to write that stuff down, she says, whether it's true or not, okay, then, just write the stuff, she says. Whether it's true to life or just another one of my childish sex fantasies, she tells me how much she hates the stuff Hollywood is coming out with nowadays, and how she's not somebody who cares much for any story arc, or any continuous through line, or any happy wedding endings, stuff like that the real stuff even depressing plots make her feel better entertained and better brained, she says, watching those is time well spent. Like when she's psycho-tapping my sick brain, like now. I agree with Dr. C. I say, dude, man, I know, like with Kelly, my maybe wife-to-be, my living colorful beauty. When I'm with Kelly, I feel like just being myself all morning, not getting up or getting going, or anything. But Kelly drags me out of bed and into the morning routine. She has this strong desire to help me, to make me stronger. She wants to get the old me back. She wants her true partner back, she says. But it really comes down to her frustration with the world in general, not me. I don't believe her. What she says, I think it's me. I think she gets mad at me, the old me, new me, or whatever. I tell her she's just pissed off at me. And she says, not mad, just frustrated. And I say, same thing, babe you know what I mean mad or frustrated or pissed off, it's basically the same thing, I'm really trying my best just to get up with her, get in the shower, take my meds, and take an active role in our mornings, 
I try not to just lie there on the couch all morning just thinking and feeling and getting shite straight, when she's all active and productive like, flitting around, unlike me, who wants to just lie with my smokeless tobacco lodged in my lower lip, but it's hard, really fucking hard, for me, anyway, it's a good thing Kelly and I have in home care coming now, we get more attention from them now than we did last week, when the in-care people first came to the house, initially, they came to distill all of Kelly's worries and insecurities, of course, they could really only quell some, not all, of Kelly's insecurities and worries, there's so many of them, in fact, though, I admit, she's been a real trooper with me, I have no clue how difficult her living with me has been, I haven't got a fucking clue how unending the stress and frustration must be for her. I see it takes a toll on her, though, she won't really talk about that shite, but, for the most part, she's catering to my every need because my health is important to her, just like her health is, we just might find some peace and some kind of happiness, whether together or apart, in the long run, we just might, hey, stranger things have happened, like Georgie always says, in the long run, it will all be fine, Georgie comes and goes, but he's always a part of me, more than just a spare part, he's like a seraphim, you know, a guardian angel, like maybe Michael, Gabriel, even Lucifer before he fell, maybe even after, I haven't figured out all that much about him, about Georgie, I mean, sometimes, though, he shows up in my life like the devil, the bad angel, instilling chaos, fucking with my electronics, and scaring the cats off, you know, that sort of poltergeist shite, other times, he's seraphim, the good angel he's my savior, my caretaker, he watches out for me and takes care of me when I need it most, other than that, though, he's just a part of me, Georgie is, we move ahead, we backstep, still, Georgie and I stick together, he's always there, somewhere in the foreground, when I expose my confessions, my sins, my fetishes, even scat and incest all that bull, I know it can get pretty bad, pretty crazy, and pretty sick, maybe I selfishly hand my insecurities to Georgie, he's more like the passive type, see, he's a passive observer, and I observe and judge him, but since he's stickier than I'm, yeah, he's sticky and jelly-like, blob-like, but fresh, not foreign, I have an easier time dumping my symptoms and pathologies onto him, it's almost like he doesn't mind taking on my worst, you know, almost like the dude actually likes it, sometimes we fight about things usually when I'm off my psychotropic medication for a period of time, or when I just get so fed up with my life that wanting to attempt a fucking crime seems like a good idea, during those times, I just dissociate because I'm overwhelmed, and I start fantasizing with Georgie, letting go, well, I have hardly any social life at this point, anyway, and no real world experiences, so, yeah, I'm pretty much bound to whatever place I'm in and whomever I'm with, I guess those new age books would say that divine intervention determines the places I'm in at the moment, and the people I'm with show up partly because I give everybody else all the control over my life that I can, I'm trying to sell my life, giving money away, for example, lots of money, fucking lots, to anyone who might trade it for my sanity, 
tranquility, fulfilled hope, lessened fears, selling it for some kind of love, whatever love is, my family is fucking crazy, the whole extended and nuclear family, I mean, they are the living colorful rich, they have all kinds of issues with erratic boundaries, sexual boundaries, and emotional neglect, the same kind of stuff you hear from everybody else in America like on talk shows and late night radio, that kind of stuff, it's a sick country, sometimes, isn't it, you know, they have a really high rate of medical cures in third world countries, and families there tend to hold together better, I live a couple of hours from Mexico, basically just north of the border, that must be a good sign, I guess, I'll never get that fucking family to feel my love and I sure can't feel their love for me, love is like the satanic cult I'm disengaged from, but I still crave the way they would forgive me for being myself if I worshipped them, so they swing around the metal can of sulfur smoke, and they say they love me, all my life, they navigate my angels and demons, they revive me, they pick me up and string me along if I love them, I say, fuck them, I say that because I did, fuck them, I mean, but I hope I don't bring any of that shite up again, most of that crazy stuff I need to keep to myself, just so I have some secrets left for myself, so I can feel like I have something left that's me, like, all mine, I've done the incest gig, I've fucking been there, too, where haven't I fucking been, I won't read anything they send me, and I never answer the phone anymore anyway, especially if it's pops, still, my father is trying to buy this house so I can live here, rent free, he wants to buy my dream house, I guess he's already bought my other dreams, and so has my stepmother, Gladys, why not this one, too, Gladys started a small publishing company when she found out that I wanted to get into one myself, and pops, he started funding films and film festivals, stuff like that, when he learned I wanted a film career, they said I'd never have to work and I shouldn't work, even if I wanted to, so why should I, I mean, why should I sweat and piss for chicken scratch at some bullshite, sub-minimum wage job, or sell my sorry ass on the cheap side streets, when Gladys and Pops already supply everything I need, free and clear, the only question is, why do Gladys and Pops pick up my tabs, and support me in my squalor and luxury when, as far as I can see, they don't even like me, let alone, love me, but now I know why, it's because they want to buy and sell me out, cheap and easy, so they can control me, they want to kidnap me and knock me out and fly me on their private jet to some mental institution lockup, and put me in long-term rehab even though I've been sober for over five years now, and I ask you, Dr. C, is that any way for a wholesome, loving father and a swinging, sexy stepmother to treat their sweet, loving stepson and firstborn male child even if he's a big fuck up, like me, I tell you, duck, it's all upside down and backwards, it's all fucked up, but the transgression is lovely, don't you think, so what will I do now, I'm going to go read what I've just jotted down for Kelly to see, maybe she'll tell me that I'm on the right track again, writing my big blockbuster classic novel, Living Colorful Beauty, maybe she'll be the sweet, sexy muse I need to help me over my writer's block, get me to spill out sperm and words on the sweat and blood-stained writing paper, 
like I did back when Claudia and Georgie were making it together for me. But Kelly is in another one of her frustrated moods. She must have just gotten another crappy email from someone in my family Gladys, I bet. Instead of going to bug her, I have a smoke just outside her office. Her windows are open, and I can hear her on the phone with one of her lawyer friends asking about my father and my trust fund. I know she feels insecure and really thinks she deserves long-term benefits, and my family's trust and appreciation too, for putting up with me, all that shite. But I'll tell you, she isn't going to get any of that shite from Ben's family the fuckers. Kelly needs to come, I think, but she hasn't let me near her coot in a long while. I feel like jerking off to one of the titty pics I have of the late, transgressive writer, Kathy Acker. She kind of reminds me of Claudia. But Claudia is tall maybe 5 foot 10 and Kathy Acker can't touch Claudia's tits in ass. Still, I just love jerking one once in a while for Kathy Acker, even with her double mastectomy and stretch marks. She's nice, I'll say. I like nice. I can deal with nice. Good fantasy. Good feeling. Nice. Jerking off like that, I train my hand for war. I'm all for pointing my finger at myself and feeling everybody else get fucked. My heart seems to have gone straying off, somewhere, maybe into a delicate obsession with Georgie's girl, Claudia, whoever she is, whatever she is, for me. Everything started back when we were invincible, Georgie and Claudia and I. Back when we were young, when we were kids, when we were curious, we had nothing good enough to last. We had nothing to really hang on to, but we had each other, Georgie and Claudia, Kelly and I, didn't we? Or that's what Georgie tells Claudia, anyway, I wonder if Kelly knows about all the longing I felt, just to, just to be alone, just to exist, to be just to be anything, even nothing. Sixth grade was an acid trip straight out of a summer movie, or something, and somehow, the trip never stopped. Dear Diary, I endeavored to stay busy while melancholia, sadness, and literally black bile, mental, physical and emotional symptoms of depression and despondency deepen. There's still an inherent resilient warrior and activist in me, inspecting in mediation that such feelings subsist as one and the same. Feelings are always valid, they can be trusted second skins I used to get so mad at school. The teachers who taught me just were not cool. The Beatles class, Mrs. Petit says, today is our first day of sex education, we snicker, we're in sixth grade, of course we snicker, Mrs. Petit frowns, the worry lines across her forehead deepen, her voice is clipped, terse, before we begin, everyone in this class will be required to say aloud the following words without any laughter, sex, penis, vagina, breasts, say, sex, she tells us. Sex, we say, okay, class, very good, Georgie, that was especially good, from Mrs. Petit, I hear for the first time the words I've come to know, so well, as an adult, I never even crack a smile as I go on, penis, vagina, breasts, dick, pussy, tits, cock, cunt, nominees, 20 years later, the word breast still whistles through my teeth as I struggle to make it plural. Breast T-S-T-S-T-S, I say, and I'm back in sixth grade. Always use a condom, Mrs. Petit says. Always use a condom, the class repeats every word in unison. 
I'll never forget. Always use a condom. Dear diary, the best feeling occurs during the times I realize I can be completely happy without the people I thought I needed the most. A man ahead of his time I collected my first porn when I was nine. I pilfered it from my father's closet. My pops had nothing but triple X stuff, real hardcore, crotch shot porn, nothing nice, nothing tame, no playboy, no penthouse straight to taboo and cherry poppers a sticky, dog-eared copy of anal amateurs. At 10 I was determined to buy my first X-rated magazine all by myself, using some of the Christmas money I'd saved up from my Aunt Beatrice. So, one day, I ditched recess and the whole elementary school thing. Instead of playing kickball or asses up with the other kids, I rode my BMX to the quick fix on Maple and Forth. Stepping inside, I saw that the place was basically empty, and nobody too scary was working at the counter. It turns out to be Randy, some 19-year-old kid, with acne scars and an I-don't-give-a-shite pose. He's the most promising for me of all the employees I've ever seen there. Hey man, I say, looking around. Cool, I tell him I'm 18 and I'm there to buy a magazine, parenthetical pet peeve, using size 6 models in magazines and plus size catalogs, hustler, I tell him, yeah, right, he says, his breath hits my face, it's rank, sick, stinking of coffee and cigarettes, so I pull back, tell you what, Randy says, a smug smile on his face, if you can reach hustler, you can buy it, I can't reach hustler, but I can easily reach Genesis, and it's mine just like Randy promised. I pay for it, I roll it up, I stick it down the front pocket of my jeans, and I pedal back to school just in time to march inside with the rest. Post recess. Dear diary, gay love exists in over 1,500 species. Gay hate exists in only one. Is that so? I think so, Boy Scout brothel. A year later, the three of us, Lonnie, Andrew, and I, we organize a sex club, a little kiddie brothel, we set up inside the built by Boy Scouts treehouse in Lonnie's backyard, we play tame, safe games there, like truth or dare and spin the bottle, then we play nasty, kinky games, we try to get the girls to act out the scenes from our forbidden magazines and videotapes, several girls, our age and younger, let us finger fuck them. They make us taste their bubblegum come off of our dipping fingers. We call it hitting third base. Then we hit second next. We take first last. We like going backwards like that starting at third. Working our way back to something tame. Once you've made out with a girl, you're officially going out. We have a pee pail up there. And we watch Kathy Friedlander, the girl I'm going out with. Pee sweet and easy. Then she wants to watch me. I had asparagus for dinner, probably every night for the last two weeks, for that matter. So, I gladly take Atty in private to the bathroom downstairs, near the garage. I sit down to pee. I know the asparagus will make my pee smell funny, but Kathy isn't too thrilled. Parenthetical pet peeve, men's poor bathroom aim, no. Kathy says, don't make pee pee sitting down. Stand up, so I can see. I tell her I can't see crap when she's sitting down, squatting over the flower pot, up in the tree house. But hell, I stand up anyway I'm a gentleman, and pretty soon, I've lost all fear of my semi-public pee. We make out and end up fucking through high school, 
but we don't tell a soul because she's not a popular girl and I'm a fucking computer geek, math league contestant, and teacher's pet. It's like we're adults trapped in our little kid costumes, acting out our early childhood sex kicks, our little kiddie child porn roles, for whatever creeps and pervs and child molesters might be watching in the invisible audience. And it all started out, like I told you, at our little wilderness in our secluded clubhouse where porno was preferred to pussy footing. I did other things those years to stuff for school and sports and shite. I was a multi-talented individual, you know, I look back fondly on those times when we were all invincible. Our fathers, brothers, and cousins never knew where their stacks of Playboy and Penthouse disappeared to. Or maybe they knew, but didn't care. Or maybe they knew and, well, you know, we knew exactly how to access them. We just borrowed them like we were at the library, and the clubhouse stayed full of variety and bulk material and latex condoms, too. We kept it safe. We kept it real. As real as big time, grown-up adults playing at little kiddie sex can ever be. When I'm in seventh grade, my father drops a box of non-lubed rubbers on my bed. I think he's discovered our little sex club in the backyard and he's encouraging me. He isn't, though. He's just covering up for himself. In case I get in trouble, maybe. Always use a condom, Georgie. Double up if you have to, Pops reminds me, so candidly, I left a lifetime supply in your bedroom, they're pretty self-explanatory, hun I say, embarrassed, your business is your business, he says, just use them and use them well, don't worry, Pops, I will, no babies, and none of that hokey pokey stuff, yeah here of course, Pops, I know, I open a couple samples of the latex condoms along with Webster's dictionary. I know we can have a better supply for the treehouse at our fingertips, but I decide to keep these for myself. It's time for a search. I check the dictionary. Latex, a milky liquid or usually white sap in certain plants, such as the poinsettia condom, a thin sheath, usually of rubber. I enjoy feeling the complete covering of my private part. That smooth, baby soft sheath is just like heaven to me. It reminds me of those stress squeezer balls you find in novelty gift shops, or whatever substance it is that fills the inside of that elastic Y action figure, Stretch Armstrong. As an adult, I pleasure myself with latex wrapped around me snug, warm, wet with saliva. There's no mess to clean up when I'm through. As real as that's right, I think, as the saliva of other women and their vaginal juices complement my less frequent sexual experiences, later on in my thirties, that's the way to do it, and I invite any woman who has a fetish for latex herself to share that desire with me, her looks don't matter all that much, something can always be done about that, I have a lot to cover up myself, and what I need is a partner with enough dignity to hide her flaws as I do, with a second skin, I have issues in my adult life, like a real fear of getting somebody pregnant, I fear big responsibilities, since I was never brought up with any, responsibilities, I mean, looking back, all my sexual preferences seem to have been selected with such divinity and such a sense of appropriateness, maybe the divine force was watching out for me there, too, I go for older women who already have kids or can't have kids or don't mind the balloon, it's even better if they prefer it, I go for a clean woman, a safe woman, 
someone who doesn't make demands or ask for commitments. But a wild party is always welcome, especially if she makes the first move and happens to live right next door. I really go for women with issues, women like Claudia, who loves latex not on her lover only on herself. Claudia Nesbitt must have been the daughter of a 1960s feminist who taught her to hate men, and somehow I was just the man to fulfill her hate. So, when Claudia and me got together, it was a marriage made in hell for the both of us, I guess. Whatever else, she sure wanted men like me to suffer, and she used her limited charms to lure the bottom-feeding, desperate, love-starved men of our culture, men like me, into her web. Regardless of how susceptible I was to her seductive temptations, Claudia cast me as a victim of conspiracy in her own private persecution fantasy her perverted sadomasochistic sex play, so what happened, Dr. C, how did I ever get into this mess, I was such a good little kid, really, if you got yourself into it, Ben yeah, I know, I ought to be able, to get out of it, so I'm trying, already, I'm trying, so you see, Dr. C, how I overcome Claudia's sinister man trap is what matters the most to me, and when I'm freed from her at last, and I've discovered the real me by discovering the real her, will you be free, then, Ben, or just caught in another trap, a sinister man trap of your own device well, I don't know, at least it'll be my own trap then, huh, Dr. C, but getting back to Claudia and me, Claudia had a thrilling personality, always upbeat and perky. She spoke in short sentences, she got right to the point, her otherwise pale face was always decorated with glitter, like an adolescent princess, and her arms were covered with the temporary tattoos of Lucky Charms marshmallows. Claudia lived for Harley Davidson's, she never owned one, but she dated guys who did. But then, she dated a lot of guys, her favorite summer vacation pastime was Six Flags Magic Mountain, or Six Flags over Texas, or Six Flags over Georgia. Mostly though, it was Magic Mountain. Vintage wooden roller coasters satisfied her lust for things fast and chaotic. So did her men and that led to her dangerous affairs, not just with men, but with women, too. Strippers, hookers, bikers, dykes and then the drugs hard liquor, pot laced with angel dust and the occasional visit to King Arthur's strip club in the San Fernando Valley, with the older women who swoon over her. That was Claudia's wild life, away from Georgie and me. She never paid for a thing, she only had herself to offer, and her package always seemed plentiful. Those naturally luscious lips that others would pay thousands to own didn't need surgery, and her oversized, natural pear-shaped breasts, which I could make out only by the stretch and pull of the second skins that covered them, were perfect, just like they were. There was always some sweet mama or sugar daddy to pick up Claudia's tab, and when Claudia rode double, the ride was always free. Parenthetical pet peeve, people who are obsessed with knowing whose fault something is, instead of working to find a solution. When she lived across the street, her original handwritten diaries detailing her adult sex life were placed open on the living room coffee table, a jumbled collection of toys, costumes, and a wardrobe of textiles was stationed throughout the rest of her house. Her favorite pornographic apparel was a blue latex jumpsuit with fluorescent green latex boots, along with a matching two-inch thick green belt with an orange buckle, 
black gloves, and a black cloak. It's spelled C-O-V-E-R-M-E-U-P. All of me. Claudia was the type of naughty next-door neighbor you find in your favorite wet dream. She had a slightly sagging ass, but it sagged in just the right sexy way, like a real woman's. I stared at it when she stepped out for the mail in her Terrycliffe bathrobe and her wet, just washed hair. She'd answer the doorbell in skimpy latex lingerie, sometimes a smooth rubber bra or sometimes just with black electrical tape crisscrossing her relaxed, puffy nipples. She sucked fire out of the mailman's breath any time there was a special delivery that wouldn't fit in her mailbox. She illuminated temptation like a big neon sign. Otherwise, Claudia was always pretty quiet and subdued a secret control freak. The way I see it, duck. Her visual cues and her visible charms provoked the subconscious mind's ability to make fantasies perfect. She'd fall asleep in her first story bedroom with the blinds open, a nightlight on the wall, and glow-in-the-dark stickers of the stars and planets on the ceiling. She lived alone and often woke up for a midnight snack. I watched her from my place through the windows, through the walls. Her refrigerator was covered with pictures of herself all shot by herself in some pictures she was sticking her tongue out, in others she just showed off her paint-covered feet, or maybe an obscure angle of what I figured was her vast beige areola. The cockpits of her nipples had wrinkles and folds that became geometrically complex when she was aroused, even slightly. Unfortunately, what I got were only snapshots, just pictures of the real thing never the thing itself. What could she be hiding? I often wondered. She was never seen in her naked element, but she was mine. She was all mine, I say and she'll be mine, all mine, again someday. But then again, maybe she never was really mine at all. Anybody who experiences Claudia loves to hate her, unless they enjoy self-deception. She's a manipulative she-devil in disguise. She is a Mrs. Jekyll inside a Dr. Hyde. Her jekyll side bursts out when she slithers into that second skin, which covers up her all to sinful sexual nature and her prize-winning ethics. But whatever she wears, she doesn't fool me, not anymore. Claudia is drenched with forbidden qualities and secret temptations. But as the puny, pathetic, desperate, wimpy horn dog across the street from her, I was attracted to Ms. Nesbeth because I could piece together from each piece of her puzzle, Things I once enjoyed or things I could never have. The forbidden kinds of things I just didn't have the balls for. And Claudia was the best piece of all the puzzle piece that put it all together. And besides, we both had a thing for fabric certain kinds of fabric. Claudia seemed, at least at first, the complete antithesis of my mother, who was strict and abusive, both at once. Since my mother learned things the hard way, by force, so would I she like my school teachers, taught me to be faithful, to practice safe sex, not to be gay or sexually ambiguous, and to be normal, whatever the hell normal means, act like a human being, my mother would yell at me, yeah look like a damn zombie half the time, Georgie, fucking smile, be excited, you're obsessed with sex, don't dwell on sex, she'd constantly demand, slapping me across the face or screaming over the telephone. She'd already found out about our sex club in the treehouse by the time I left home for boarding school. Don't do drugs. Don't drink. Don't cheat. Don't pretend. Don't worry about everything all the time, she commanded me. What did she expect? 
What did she want from me, an angel, a virgin? Whatever she wanted, it sure wasn't me. And what did Claudia want from me? I am still trying to figure that one out, Dr. C. Partway through my college years at NYU, I started to see a shrink. My first shrink was a proper sweater-wearing old lady doctor who gave me the creeps. If possible, she was even more controlling and critical of me than my mother was. Dr. Jenny Danielson, that was her name. Dr. Jenny was certain that I had a lot of letting go to do. She said that I wore a mask over my face, literally that my goatee and mirrored shades were a disguise. She'd tell me, take those sunglasses off and shave your beard, let us see the real you. But I never showed her, parenthetical pet peeve, patting around on the rug looking for a lost pair of glasses, worse, hearing a crunch while looking for them. Claudia, on the other hand, was a perfect match for me. We were two doomed, tortured souls. She had many relationships, gay and straight, even with married men and married women. She said she questioned her affairs sometimes, but since they made her feel good, she held on to them. Claudia did drugs, I didn't. I had a problem with drugs and quit. Claudia didn't think she had a problem with much of anything, and she never quit. I had to run five miles a day to just barely keep in shape. Claudia didn't have to work out, and still she maintained a perfect body. She was poor and I was rich, and so I thought maybe I could spoil her unlike anyone else but no. Claudia practiced in safe sex. I preferred rubbers. She was 40. I was 30. She was a ball of chaos. And I have this rage for order. She was a big bundle of contradictions. She was a marriage counselor who had never been married, a parenting educator who never had kids, and a rehab counselor who never quit. She was a walking oxymoron. But what bothers me most about Claudia Nesbitt is that after she lured me in the first time, any time after that, when I'd call her or want to see her, or fuck her with a rubber, I'd have to wait a lot longer than my cock could bear. I just kept on getting let down. I wasn't allowed to make out with her in the middle of our street because her sugar daddy or her sweet mama might show up any minute and blow a whole set up. So she'd swap spit with married men right there on the sidewalk by my kitchen window, but she'd really lock lips with me. She said she couldn't love me. She was just using me, and I knew it. But when she did use me, when I told myself she really did use me and made myself believe it those rare moments were holy and divine. To put it simply, Claudia Nesbitt was, and is, a no-win situation for me, or anybody. But when she climbed into her latex gear and refused any rubber with me, she was simply incredible. I couldn't, I can't, get her out of my mind. I lost my dignity for her. I became sensually, or sexually, obsessed with her. And I was always dying to see her naked. You could say, I guess Dr. C, that as a masochist I was in the perfect relationship. I loved everything about her, but I could never have a healthy relationship with her. Everything was strained and stretched to the breaking point. And as I became obsessed with the agony she caused in me, my character deteriorated. I became a much less dignified person as time went on. I lost all self-respect. I started to not even like myself much, as if I ever really liked myself, from the get-go, anyway. The last night we were intimate, about a month after the time we'd last been together, 
we proved to be inseparable until our second skins came off and we had to really look at each other stripped naked as we were, as we weren't and this is how it began, just when I think I've had enough torture and emotional abuse from Claudia Nesbitt, I discover a small handwritten note by my front porch, Georgie, find your costume and just show up, your unexpected entrance last month was morning bliss until today. Having not seen you in some time, my affection toward you has cooled to mere fondness, I'm becoming indifferent, I don't want that, we've been separated from each other far too often even though you live right next door, I want to see you again, Georgie, tonight, I gasp, chewing a bite out of one of the homemade oatmeal cookies she's left with the letter, I continue reading, as you know, Georgie, my house was robbed last week. I have no erotic products left in any of my closets, some pervert must have ripped off my skins and toys, but I've changed since then, come over and see for yourself, I'm sorry for otherwise completely amputating myself from your life, I didn't have time, but now I must have you, I require your services, tonight, come to me, Georgie, xxx, Claudia, immediately, I grab an orange jail jumpsuit from last Halloween, I was an escaped convict at the big party, and I storm over to a place with the cloth and cuffs in my hands, I have a box of rubbers clenched between my teeth as I run across the street, I'm in such a hurry for love, lust, and submission that I leave the keys to the handcuffs in the bedroom closet, along with my unmentionables, I'm not sure we'll need the keys, anyway, I don't know what to expect. Do I hope to see Claudia in the flesh? The door slams shut behind me. No condom tonight? Baby boy Claudia's voice calls out from the bathroom. Throw them in the fireplace before I come out. I keep a couple in my pocket and drop the box into the blaze. Claudia steps out, fully nude, to watch the sizzling cardboard disappear in the blazing fire. The fire that keeps your house warm might eventually burn it down, Claudia says seductively. I gaze at her pale flesh, you've changed, I say, you're perfect, you're even more perfect than you were before, I'm doing the best that I can, she sings quietly in her best Beatles imitation, there are no drugs, no other lovers present, no tattoos, no secret diaries, no makeup not even any jewelry, finally, Claudia is nude, completely nude completely naked before me. She has not the slightest blemish on her skin to ponder. There should be celestial music playing to the gentle beats of her all-natural angelic presence. No sooner does this idea come to my mind than she turns on the CD player. It must be one of her Beatles days, I think. Woman, I know you understand, the little child inside of the man, they sing. John Lennon the window shades are closed. We're sharing a private wilderness. Claudia lights a few beeswax candles and pushes the coffee table over to the side of the living room. Cautiously, she bends over and covers her eyes. She spreads herself wide open, gaping for me. The abstract pulp of her pussy is tucked snug beneath her dark pubic Hitler-esque tash. What the hell is this woman thinking? I pause, spellbound, mesmerized, and stupefied. Claudia starts dripping ever so slightly onto the hard wooden floor. I've been erect for about five minutes, I roll down my shorts, I decide to secretly double up, fearing the worst, watching her loose lips dangle like the beads of a pearl necklace, loose, free, and liberated, 
I enter my covered key into her flesh machine, the forbidden gate of a hell I've never seen before, the smell of perfume pervades the room, the sound of moist suction has the fibers in my mind vibrating until any sense of control is lost, parenthetical pet peeve, when people wear perfume or cologne which smells like raid, worse, when such perfume makes me sneeze, even worse is when the smelly one walks by and I can actually taste the fragrance, harder, she cries, I fuck her harder, deeper, she says, don't stop, Georgie the condoms are on, but she doesn't seem to notice, I'm so wet, she cries again, I'm so wet because of you, more fleshy friction makes the slurpy, slashy noises of a sensual circus, I reach around and index her erect little clit, the clit is so important, so oh oh sensitive, Claudia moans, put your spit on it, hurry, I reach around and underneath, I rub her swell in small circles with two fingers, then three, I massage her pronounced outer labia back and forth as it twitches, she's throbbing quicker than the beats to John and Yoko's double fantasy album, which is still on repeat track 10, woman, the taste of grapes dipped in corn syrup, that's all I can think about, I'm about to erupt, but I hold it as long as I can, I'm so close, Georgie, Claudia reveals, I love you, baby, I fucking love you, suddenly, at the point of no return, both of my rubbers snap open at once, we hear a light, defeated, clicking sound, the first break is followed immediately by the second, my sperm explodes through to a pussy haven, unable to withstand the bliss, Claudia's personality shifts instantly, she becomes her old self so easily, oh, great, she sighs, I extricate myself from her and squint down at the floor, I think something popped, she says, it seems like she's glad it's happened, I think you doubled up on the pleasure I asked you to get rid of, I can't say a word, I'm shattered in a million pieces, all my dignity is lost, Claudia is the missing piece, are you on the pill, Claudia, please say yes, she shakes her head no, and smiles slightly, I remember the time I told her I never wanted to see her again, she kisses her fingertip and brings it to my lips, I'm not letting you go that easily, I still want her, of course, if I had the choice at that moment never to see her again or to marry her, I would marry her, no questions asked, I am just so sure she is the woman of my dreams, I'll be raising my baby with another woman, Claudia says, what about me I argue, I never really loved you, not like that, but I know you've fantasized about this for some time, admit it, you enjoyed yourself, you're crazy I holler, I have been obsessed with her, I admit it, now, in an instant, I know I've been wrong about her, all along, she isn't the woman of my dreams, it's the idea of her that fascinates me, not the Claudia in the flesh, but the Claudia in my mind, for me, Claudia was the idea made flesh an idol, an icon a living colorful beauty, a more than incredible phenomenon, and now the perfect, pure, beautiful woman I idolized becomes all too human, all too real, for me, likewise, the real me emerges the following week, I'm ready to be an adult for once in my life, I tell myself, I'm ready to have some responsibility, I try to convince myself I'd be the perfect father for Claudia's baby, I would have someone to love, my own kid, we'd raise a child together, Claudia and me, 
and I would face the brutal consequences and heart-wrenching fears of my self-exposure. I need to grow up, fast, that's for sure. My moment of clarity comes when Claudia and I meet for coffee in town that week. When we meet, Claudia uses the longest sentences she's ever used, with me or anybody. She talks on and on about nothing, until she finally gets to the point. I can't have kids, Georgie, gulp, my tubes are tied, Claudia says, I just wanted you to be honest with me, I like you, I fucking love you, I do, Georgie, I don't want to be such a crazy girl anymore, I just want simplicity, and then it strikes me I know she's lying, there's just no way that she loves me, maybe she's always been lying to me, I never knew what a wake up call was until this afternoon, over a particularly strong capuccino. The blend is just as sweet, seductive, addictive, stale, pungent, and dark as the person I used to be and the person Claudia Nesbitt would always be, in my mind. Anyway, all that time, I was trying to be safe, and doubling up meant security to me, and Claudia blew the whole thing in one climactic moment of self-exposure and embarrassment, ridicule and humiliation. I moved out of town a few months later and never saw Claudia Nesbitt again. She fucked me, and she fucked with my head. She fucked me up, but still, I loved her. I still love her in my own twisted way. She won't really ever change, and maybe neither will I wait a minute. Who am I kidding? The affair I had with Claudia caused unbearable confusion in me, especially looking back on the things that might have happened, what might have been. Claudia took everything worthwhile out of the past 30 years my whole lifetime and I blame her for scrambling my self-esteem. I'm in a stupid metamorphosis. Shite, I've exposed myself to you now, haven't I, Dr. C? And finally, now, you can hate me for it, like I said you would. And by the time the demons overcome us, you will know for sure that we, that Georgie's, disintegrated more than you might have imagined. By the end, when you're still wondering and wondering, what has happened to you, Ben, something terrifying and blissful will have happened to Georgie, a daydream will have been fulfilled for him, a reward will have come true for Georgie and for no one else, to the fans of Georgie Gust, we love you, you're our heroes, dear diary, I wish people would speak for me, and others who cannot, someone, like myself, who's often so defenseless or just not able to communicate effectively, ugh, I just wish that other people could speak up and speak out when I need help, so I continue writing with the occasional cigarette break love beyond dignity I wake up bombarded with the same leftover intrusive thoughts and obsessions from yesterday, I shudder to think what today might bring, my alarm clock rings after I've stared at the ceiling for 10 minutes, I am still in bed, I let the alarm clock ring, its tiny pendulum knocks back and forth against the bell, but the chimes get slower and slower, as the batteries inside start to wear out, I stretch my arms and curl my toes, my eyes are crusty with sleep and my mouth is dry, finally, I get up and head to the sink, the bathroom light burns out as soon as I flip the switch, noon sunlight squeezes through the two small window blinds to my left. I douse my face with cold water, I twitch, I sit on the can and drain myself, I remember the nightmares I had just minutes ago, they kept me in bed, over time, I tried to beat them off, but they finally won me over, I can't remember the details, 
but I dreamt of another world, someplace I've never been before, in that dream world, I could feel that what this world considers happiness and joy was actually considered pure misery there, all my senses and perceptions existed as their own contradictions, I was with my best friends, drinking, laughing, and playing, but I could see myself as I was dreaming, and I was aware that I was dishonest and selfish and not deserving of love. All the pleasures of this world, in my dream life, seemed wrong and false. I tried to make them seem true and real, but could not. I still have a belly full of angst and suffering, now I've woken up. I think of my life now, my real life. Am I selfish, antisocial narcissist now? I ask myself, am I delusional? Are my senses intact? Is everything all right? I think of lost love. I think of the loss of my childhood and the loss of my life. I guess you could say this is a form of depression. It's hard to accept that I've turned out for the worse. I used to be such a good little kid happy, bright, and full of life and vigor. I had dignity, I think. I head upstairs to my office and start dosing up on Joe. I think of what love without dignity means to me. I've been stuck on this thought for a couple of weeks now, ever since I saw that Nicholas Rogue film, Bad Timing. In that flake, Art Garfunkel and Teresa Russell play two tortured souls, stuck in a dark and disturbing sexual obsession. Not long after I saw that flake, I checked out Roman Polanski's Outrageous Bitter Moon, another study of the dark side of love. I knew I wasn't alone when I saw those films. I knew that I wasn't really all that disturbed not any more than normal. Standall's book, Love, de l'amour, sits on my desk. Standall's notes on the unfortunate unbalances and nuances of love have me chilled. Even centuries ago, I know other people were subjected to bad health, sickness, even death, because someone wouldn't give back their love it's in all the stories and books. What has caused this imbalance in me, in men? And why do I think anybody should care? My misery continues Wednesday at 9.55 a.m. Just back from the drugstore, I play Georgie's answering machine at home. Beep, good morning, Mr. Gust, Miss Nesbitt calling. Hi Dart, I don't want to completely abandon our friendship, so I thought I'd give you a call. I almost called you last night when I was running around, cleaning and doing laundry and stuff. But I was kind of on. I was kind of in the zone, and I didn't want to break up the zone, you know, anyway, I just wanted to call and say hello, just to check in with you to see how you've been and what's going on with you and what you're going to do for the holidays, I'm probably going to go back east, anyway, I just wanted to stay in touch, and apologize for amputating myself from your life, it's just, it's just been really, I needed to put 100% into my family, and I'm glad I'm the type of person who can do that with her family. So, anyway, alright sweetie, have a beautiful day. I actually just got back from a little morning walk, and oh, it's just gorgeous. So that's it, I can hear her Bose motorcycle starting up in the background. I'll just catch up with you one of these days. Bye, I don't hear from her again until that Thursday at 7.31am. Beep, good morning. Mr. Gust, Ms. Nisbet here, just had two seconds and wanted to say good morning and have a beautiful day, I'm always running off and around and about and just wanted to say hello since I'm not the best at returning calls, take care.
I'll catch up with you later. Bye, dear diary. The greatest advantage of speaking the truth is that I don't have to remember what I said therapy to whom it may concern. It doesn't work to say, Georgie, don't dwell on it. I've got an illness, and I hope you can understand that. It hurts me when you tell me what to think or how to feel, because I really can't help thinking or feeling. I think that's why we've never had a real, healthy relationship all these years. This is not a heart attack, it's just a sudden realization. I've been reading up on mental disorders and trying to identify with whatever I can. Part of me says I should just get out of the house, get a regular job, and make friends. But that's easier said than done. And there are medical explanations for my inability to make decisions and stick to them. A lot of things relate back to past events or situations where I was hurt or taken advantage of, and fear of betrayal and abandonment and feelings of low self-worth and shame and guilt still overwhelm me. I'm unable to just let go, and it takes me years to give up any obsession. I turn inward, giving myself up to my imagination and fantasy. What else am I going to do, right? I just can't take the excess of stimuli from the real environment. Reality? Is that reality? It's overbearing. It devours me. There's a whole spectrum of issues I've been dealt that I can't deal with or deal out. I continue on my path, looking for meaning and self-discovery. With lost love and lust and daydreams, Georgie Gus dear diary, I definitely believe in both all that I fear and all that I want. Onward bound heroically through this perpetual seven-hour-long anxiety attack, I am still here, learning and seeking, resilient and alone in the entire enterprise mother's naked friend for the past three months, I've seen Dr. C every Monday and Wednesday, promptly at 3.30pm, I like seeing her on the half hour, rather than the hour, it's odd, unique, peculiar, good word peculiar, I like that I'm peculiar. In fact, I say, I've elevated peculiarity into an art form from the way I dress to what I eat to whom I choose to have sex with, the older the better. That is why Dr. C, even with her sling back, open-toed, fuck-me sandals and electric blue toenails, doesn't turn me on. She's just too young. As far as I'm concerned, a woman under 40 is still half-formed, still immature. Let's talk about your fascination with older women, Ben. Dr. C puts on a professional bedside manner. When did it first begin well now? Dr. C let me tell you. My fascination with older women started early, right around the time my parents got divorced, right about the time, in fact, when I saw Darlene Crocus naked. Apart from Rita Morita, Darlene was my mother's one and only New Jersey friend. She was around all the time after Pops left. She was there for dinner and canasta and she was there from 3 to 5 every Thursday afternoon, immediately after my mother's weekly Weight Watchers meeting. My mother was a Weight Watchers failure. Not only did she not lose weight, she actually gained weight on the program. Ostensibly, my mother gained weight because of a glandular problem, but in reality she gained weight due to Darlene's love of hot fudge brownie sundaes topped with whipped cream, nuts, and maraschino cherries. Even at age 12, I knew that nobody could lose weight eating hot fudge brownie sundaes. But Darlene had mother convinced these were special negative calorie sundaes that would actually burn calories and help her lose weight, like exercise, but more delicious. 
mother was never too bright, and after Pops left, she believed whatever she wanted to believe, no matter how asinine. She refused to see the connection between the food she crammed down her throat and the big black number that magical number that rolled up on the bathroom scale, up and down, down and up, and then, up, 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 mother was a pretty big woman back then, she's even bigger now, I guess, but she was still hefty back then, and with Darlene's help, she got even more so, Darlene, unlike mother and mom's other friend, Debbie Sidgwick, was a Weight Watchers success. She was always fit and trim and she got fitter and trimmer, despite all those Sundays. Both mother and Debbie idolized her. They wanted to be just like her, and they would do anything Darlene told them to do which included eating negative calorie Sundays and playing racquetball at the 10th Street Gym. The thing was, my mother never exercised, never. Even getting out of bed in the morning was too strenuous for my mother on most days. If she'd had her way, she'd have had assistance to roll her straight from her bed to the kitchen on a gurney. They'd serve her her coffee and her pop-tarts, and then they would roll her on down to the living room, plop her straight down on her overstuffed chair, and switch on her omnipresent TV. But when Darlene was around, my mother was a completely different woman. She got motivated to at least pretend that she really knew how to exercise, but she never did. In reality, Mother never once played racquetball she always found an excuse not to. One week she had gout, another week she had a goiter, and once, for an entire month, she had a pernicious anemia that left her light-headed and much too weak to do anything but stay in the house. I have a sneaking suspicion that mother is the reason I have trouble with hypochondria, and when she ran out of diseases, my mother relied on me, and my persistent mystery disorder to keep her off the court, which is how I ended up seeing Darlene Crocus naked. My mother had already used up her gout and her goiter excuses, and she hadn't yet discovered the pernicious anemia excuse, so mother dragged me along to explain why she really couldn't play for yet another week, and maybe another after that, a tan and toned Darlene, dressed in white shorts and matching knit shirt, met us in the lobby of the 10th Street Gym. Darling kissed the air on either side of my mother's face, and then she ruffled my hair. Oh, Rose, Darling trilled. He's getting so ubi -ig. I blushed appropriately and scuffed my toes against the tiled floor. And so handsome, she said. He's still a handful, though, Mother said. In fact, duh, that's why I really have to sit this one out. Benji got himself kicked out of school again, Mother rolled her eyes. The twitches and ticks, you know, she said. They just don't understand them at school. Oh, poor Benji, darling said. I blushed. My mother massaged the base of my neck, like she really loved me, or something. And she told darling she'd meet up with her after racquetball. Darling beamed. Absolutely, Rose, she said. My mother marched me off to the women's locker room, so she could wear herself. Okay, now. Nearly 20 years later, I still have to wonder about my mother's motivation. I was 12, I really didn't need to be with her every minute, and I certainly didn't need to be in the women's locker room, but she's my mother a woman I'm still trying to figure out. When I was 12, I was sure her motivation was to humiliate me, and so I fought back maybe I couldn't keep her from parading me and my Tourette's out in front of her friends and maybe I couldn't keep her from dragging me into the women's locker room, 
but I could keep her from weighing herself in private. In fact, I delighted in keeping her from weighing herself. My mother's weight has always been a carefully guarded secret. On her driver's license, she admits to 150, which she hasn't weighed since she was 12. My mother, still gripping my neck, pulled me with her into the locker room. Then she pushed me down on the bench and told me not to move. Sure, I said. I promptly grimaced at her. The grimace is one of my favorite tics and one I can always perform on command. And stop doing that, she told me. Okay, I said. I blinked, wrapped my right arm over my head, and scratched my left ear. My mother hurried away. I waited half a second, and then snuck off after her. I ducked in between the rows of benches and lockers, intent on finding out how much my mother really weighed. It was something I was always trying to do, even back at the house. I'd pretend I had horrible explosive diarrhea and was just about to let loose unless she let me into the bathroom with her. Right then, at that precise moment, once, I actually pushed open the door and burst in on her and her secret scale. I tried to sneak a peek at it but my mother shrieked, jumped off the scale, and all I saw was the needle bouncing back and forth, forth and back, up and down, up and down, up, up, up. So, that day in the locker room, I was really bent on discovering what my mother weighed. In fact, I was so intent and focused I almost, but not quite, not quite by a long shot actually, failed to realize that Darlene Crocus, in all her naked beauty, was standing directly in front of me completely nude. I turned a corner, and came upon her, Darlene Crocus, breasts and pubes uncovered. She was magnificent. Her breasts, they were gorgeous, flat, with dark prominent nipples. They took my breath away and made my ding-dong go straight up, made my little general stand at attention. I loved them. I wanted to put my 12-year-old hands all over them. I wanted to fondle them, molest them, do unspeakable, secret things to them. Yet, as wonderful as those breasts were, they couldn't compare with her hairy snatch, her juicy pubes, her perfect V-shaped patch. It made my mouth water. So I just stood there gawking at Darlene, who stood naked, talking to fat Debbie Sijuik. Finally, Darlene must have felt my presence, because she turned, caught my eye with hers and smiled, seductively, invitingly, then glanced at the bulge in my pants. Enjoying the show she asked, then she pulled her clothes on, oh so exquisitely, methodically, torturously slowly, all the while staring straight at me. What a glorious four months that woman gave me four months of unmitigated masturbatory pleasure. When I finish my tale, Dr. C doesn't say anything. She just kind of wrinkles up her mouth, shows her crooked tooth, and raises her eyebrows. She drives me crazy, sometimes, wondering what she's thinking. So I tell her more about Georgie. My thing for older women is something Georgie shares. Age is so relevant in Georgie's sex life he's fascinated with age. It is, of course, one of the only things we share because, like I say, Dr. C, Georgie's really not me. He doesn't even look like me. I look like a rock star, a young David Bowie or Simon Lebon. I'm hot. I wear Hugo Boss loafers, no socks, Armani jeans. So I'd rather be who I am than be who Georgie is, even if Georgie's me, every day. All day long, Georgie does nothing, 
He doesn't change, doesn't move nothing changes or moves in Georgie's world, whereas for me, I'm right with the next big thing and I'm not hung up on that early childhood sex thing, like Georgie is. Believe me, Dr. C would I lie to you, dear diary, I tend to believe that when people love, they love even when they loved one might not be all that lovable mother's love is soap so, like I say, when my mother wasn't parading me out in front of her friends, making me twitch on command, she was yelling at me for being a smart ass, or for having Tourette's, or whatever else pained her spirit that day, she was grooming my life, prepping me for borderline personality disorder if only I'd known what that meant back then, what were my symptoms, well, I'll tell you about symptoms, I feel an exaggerated emptiness now, a drive to fill my private void, and I act out a whole disturbed cycle of emotions, somewhere deep inside I must still be this traumatized, wounded little kid, the wounded little kid mother made me because I can still recall the slightest detail of her domination over me, and I'm afraid, you think just because you've got some sort of fucking disorder, that I'm gonna let ya talk to me like that she'd shriek, and then she'd swat me on top of the head with a rolled up newspaper, like I was some kind of two-legged mutt, I hated my mother growing up, I know that's probably a horrible thing to admit, but I really just couldn't cope with the woman, I had Tourette's, it made me swear, I couldn't help it I couldn't fucking help it, I swear, but she didn't seem to really care, and when she wasn't swatting me with the newspaper, she was washing my mouth out with soap, and, yes, I know lots of mothers wash their kids' mouths out with soap, but my mother washed mine with lava soap, even now, 20 years later, I still taste pumice when I swear, now I'm in therapy again, dredging up the past, looking for answers, and I wonder if all that pumice somehow got me thinking about women's feet and if that's what left me with such a peculiar fetish, my foot fetish. Dr. C says that a foot fetish isn't peculiar and is quite the opposite common in men like me, especially men like me, like me I ask, looking away from her, at some silly calendar on the wall, she stammers, stutters, catching herself, as I turn my eyeballs back at her, a ribbon of saliva drips from the corner of her mouth, for a minute, she looks so goddamn imperfect, it's all I can do not to throw her on the ground and fucking attack her right there in the psych ward office, but then she clears her throat and smiles, she slurps the spittle back into her mouth, men like you, Ben, she says, men with self-esteem problems, self-esteem problems, self-esteem problems, yeah, right, I know, I have self-esteem problems, which is probably the reason I love feet, please step on me, I say, and my self-esteem, no fucking does, dear diary, here's to trying just one more time waste, notes on Ben's novel I'm frustrated with having so damn much to say about something so simple, the words in my head have turned into tossed salad, the real problem involves my year-long obsession with Claudia or Heidi or maybe both of them, maybe it was the love at first sight between Heidi and me that made me admit what was happening between Georgie and Claudia. Maybe it made me face my obsession and my perplexity and the trouble they've caused me. Things have really gotten blown out of proportion. Claudia was my dream woman. Even though we split up she still haunts me, like a real flesh and blood person. She infests my otherwise incredibly lonely and desperate existence with her spectre. 
When Claudia came into my life and our love was born, I decided to sober up. I wanted to become a better person, just in case I ever saw her again. But instead of lifting the fog and confusion from my mind, life without alcohol and drugs has only added to my perplexity. I blame my overwhelming mental derangement on my incomplete love affair with Claudia. Meanwhile, my desire to succeed in life, to succeed in a better life than this one, takes second place to her, to Claudia. Besides, I already have everything I need. I have one desire left, the desire for Claudia and me to make it full-time. But since she's not there anymore, all sorts of fantasies, both haunting and exhilarating, have taken up residence in my dreadful little mind, like right now. I'm possessed by the fantasy of sinking. I'm writing this pastiche in the present tense, but it's all happened at different times. What I'm writing about, I mean, I can't think. I leave my existence behind. The light is dim. Everything is quiet. The sky is gray, flat, and still. The rain falls without a pause, in absolute silence. Watching the clock, I wait for tomorrow. I throw my pack of cigarettes away. I'm no brilliant demagogue. I'm an aberration, a misconception, a miscreant. These antidepressants really don't do shite. My vision is getting murdered. I'm going blind like, finally, forever. My sense of sight is diseased, as it were. Seeing Claudia was just like seeing the devil, face to face. It's night time, now. It's time to get to sleep. But I stay up and write, about Claudia and my imagination is on fire. I think I see Claudia everywhere, but I can't have her. Oh God, I am just a waste of sperm and egg. What has gotten into me? Lord, God, hear our prayer. And Claudia, I'm sick of you. And Heidi, humph. I've tried, I've tried, God knows how I've tried. But I failed to get what I always wished for. I twitch, I tick, I take a tack and prick my skin just to feel something but I know nothing I feel can be put into words, everything is stuck in my thoughts, like all I feel is somehow kept secret, even from me, so I lie, of course, just listen to me mumble, like a mouth full of marbles, Claudia, 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 what a shitty mess, I'm not even Irish, just look at the mess I've made, I am still alive, but that's about it, I need to finish what Claudia and I started, on the miraculous day I made my pathetic little trip to the convenience store and had my first encounter with her. Everything's a little dreamy, though. Dreams really aren't any more significant than our everyday thoughts, I guess maybe even less so. Still, I think the same things every day, the same damn repetitive things. But these things I think still confuse me. My dreams don't confuse me like my thoughts do. Georgie and Claudia muddle up the atmosphere. I love you, Georgie tells Claudia, just as he dissolves into a deep, deep slumber. Maybe there really will be no more sex with that woman, Georgie thinks to himself. Have I just realized that? I watch Georgie scoff. He switches off the bathroom light, leaving only the light that crawls beneath the bathroom door. A whole parade of creepy people hover over his head. They all weigh halos. They must be watching over me, like guardian angels. They're looking after me. That's it, Georgie decides. He steps out in his terrycloth robe. I've got to get back home, but I don't want to go. Checkout is at noon. At 2 p.m., Georgie's back home. 
He spent the whole night at the local sheep hotel because geographical change is the easiest quick fix solution. Georgie's kicked back in his reading chair facing the white wall in his bedroom. He's thinking about the strange episode at the cheap hotel. He stands up and pulls the window shade down. Who is possessing whom he thinks? What's going on here? A little while later, Bobby Banks calls him up. Georgie's forgotten he has friends. It's a typical American greeting. Hello, what are you up to etc. Hey, you still fucking around with that chick next door Bobby finally asks. That chick Claudia? Right I'm fast asleep in dreamland. Georgie's alarm clock's silent on the nightstand, batteries removed. Georgie and Claudia keep getting caught up in my endless attempt to complicate things, somehow. Because that's what my mind does. Or maybe that's what Georgie's mind does. What's the difference? I don't even know. I feel like a minor character in a bad B-movie. I'm nothing but a poorly written slob in some really shitty, crap-stinking network-produced movie of the week. I'm so fed up and tired of myself, I'm finished, I'm through, I'm all washed up. Keep trudging along, buddy, you're not going to die anytime soon, so quit share bitchin' I hear Georgie yell, I yell back at him, fuck, yeah, Georgie, the doctors advised me last week about the importance of always taking my meds, I want to get off them, but I remember how I miss my sanity when I'm off them, I'm a psych case, aren't I? Ben J. Schreiber, psycho freak, that's me, I'm such a stereotype a nothing, nothing exciting, nothing important maybe I'm not getting prepped for anything, after all, I'm in my new home in LA, I finally moved here from Manhattan, after Pasadena, but the sober hallucination of Georgie Gust is more frighteningly vivid than ever before, pretty soon, I bet our new neighbor, Claudia Nesbitt, will take up residence in Georgie's mind. I can sense her secret existence, she's beautiful, whether you want to believe it or not, fuck that, dude, she's perfect, but Claudia's a chaotic woman, the whole idea of her excites me and my imagination goes wild, she still does it for me to this day, I am still going crazy for her, Georgie's affair with Claudia has shattered the whole heart and soul of the desperate, lonely man who just wanted to replace Heidi with Claudia jump inside one of our heads for about five minutes, there's never a dull moment up here, go ahead, jump right in, thank you, to the reader, looking back, with love, Ben, dear diary, I count my night by stars not shadows, to count my life with smiles, not tears and my thoughts trail off, my train of thought has definitely left the station but my writing, my craft, my art, my industry saves me it's still all right here and now, and moves on, manically family reunion some minor details, Georgie used to wear these huge, round, horn rimmed glasses until he lost them, he ended up getting a pair of wire rimmed, round, linen specs pretty soon afterwards, he grew his hair long and wore a goatee at that time, he cut that crap out by the time his pet perplexity intruded on his little lack of a life, though, he had a lot going for him, back then, he still tries to stand out, in fact, he's wearing a pink and aqua blue button-down shirt today, but then again, Georgie hasn't left the house yet to show it off to let the ladies think he's lovely, instead of writing and thinking this, he really could be whistling some silly tune and walking down the street outside, he maybe could be meeting up with somebody new, 
a complete stranger, while still being out there. He looks in the mirror. The brightly colored sides of his flashy designer blouse are drenched with armpit sweat. He looks good and long, ignoring the damp. He gets manicures and pedicures. He curls his hair and uses a blow dryer, too. He even waxes his eyebrows. He's turning into such a girl. Maybe it's a DNA thing. Maybe he has, like, extra X chromosomes. They say some Xi boys develop into men, even though they have two X chromosomes. Maybe Georgie had a core transfusion with some chick's blood when he was still a baby. Maybe that's why he's so sick and feels so strange or maybe not. How do I know? After all, he's straight and sober. His history is straightforward. The summer sun screams with pure energy. Georgie's nervous twitches and ticks pop along to some simple song just skipping in his head. He dances to that pop song with rhythm and complexity. He jerks his head. He tells people he can't help it. He's sorry. He'll be hooking up with the extended family for a little reunion back in the Hamptons pretty soon. Okay, so the family reunion is in a smaller, poorer section of the area in the narrow streets where staff members of the glitzy estates live somewhere near the real Hamptons. But it's basically the same thing. Part of him still lives in the cult of luxury. But he's still very much desperately alone. Kindly refrain from jealousy. If you're the jealous type, you can trade your life in, if you want, before the end. It just might take a while. P.S. Don't trade it. Believe me, it's really not worth it. Before the holiday, Georgie's been getting some long-awaited phone calls from a couple of people who would be at the reunion, like his cousins and step-cousins, and second cousins, all just checking in ahead of time, checking out the pre-reunion stats to see what they're up against, who disappeared, who has died, knowing as much as possible about the other family members beforehand is of vital importance to the feuding clan. After the party, the cousins and aunties and great-uncles will probably gossip about what they've seen. Georgie's gained some weight since the last family reunion, they will say. He's getting fat, they will really say. Most people just tell him he looks different. They won't mention what they really notice that his looks have changed for the worse. His fat ass and creepy love handles look feminine. Somehow, roles have jammed onto a scared man-child. Georgie answers these check-in phone calls, the few of them that come through, with a friendly air of being there for them. He tries to ask the interrogators about their shitty little days. They all seem to have some kind of life. They've got things going on, events and circumstances to check into, trials and trivia, and all that crap all for some main purpose, all to move everybody along with the tide. To go with the flow, you know? They have actual connections with real people, collaborative connections, and positive directions. What does Georgie have? A big fat ass and creepy love handles, and a lot of shite he's just not dealing with. Georgie set up some plan to tell them nonchalantly that he has some good things going on in his life, some things he's working on, some promising endeavors. He has things in the works, he keeps busy with work and stuff. But by the time he gets cued in, Georgie always ends up kicking himself in the face. He starts describing, in great detail, all his newfound weaknesses, all the new addictions and additions that popped up since he and whoever last spoke. And then he'll end up telling them the truth, the way he sees things, from down there in his head. 
wherever his head is. He really believes that somebody, just out of the blue, might someday actually understand him and even make him happy. But inside Georgie there are no smiles. Without words, he's desperately begging somebody from the inner family circle the one that controls it all, who is loved, to turn on some secret switch in the invisible boardroom that will turn the tables around again for him. That will make him feel good. He will even love himself again then. He still wants to feel some new and positive things, good things that will last for the better. But that switch was never even there to begin with. The relatives finish their slightly disguised interrogations and end up not calling Georgie back for another year, even if Georgie makes the effort to connect. His calls are neither accepted nor returned. That's why Labor Day weekend is always a dismal time, every year, for Georgie Gust. Still sitting down, Georgie lights another cigarette. He thinks about when and where he lost that edge he used to have, when he was on top of his game, when he was a winner. He used to dance and play with all these new ideas and thoughts. He used to be able to see the beauty in things, for example. But his gifted creativity, his selfish back tickling those things he had finally lost touch with, there's only nostalgia left from those more innocent times. His younger self is still attractive to him. Back then it was a safety zone, a sanctuary, a refuge, but, of course, it was also a lie. Lies are usually very attractive. Georgie's blue balls hurt like a small weight sitting on his scrotum. Georgie's blue balls are a constant pain. And, even worse, the stress and anxiety shows up on his skin. He has these herpes-like fever blisters on the corners of his mouth and on his lips. And his genitals will be a whole other story. The strong heat outside sure doesn't help. Parenthetical pet peeve. People who leave their children in a hot car on a summer day. Georgie always hated the heat. He keeps the AC on high, even in the car with the windows open. He has a second air conditioning unit installed in his master bathroom, just to keep blowing the cold air out. Georgie's bedroom has two of them, and his bedroom is small. Parenthetical pet peeve. When people leave their dogs in a hot car on a summer day, do them a favor. Leave them at home. He is going to bed for the night around 3 in the morning. He lights up his last smoke and broods on the upcoming family event. He's really just making a big deal out of nothing. Then he gets his second wind. He'll probably make a couple of jokes about turning gay or something, just to cover up his embarrassment and fear. He'll try to get inside their thoughts, to know what they are thinking. I know it's all okay anyway, they will think, he thinks. I still like him, they will think, so what if he's without a woman? Georgie knows there's no such thing as true uniqueness, or anything like that. Finally, the events of the day replay in Georgie's head. They'll end up becoming part of the dreams he will have afterwards. But the nightmare will have a more profound effect on him. He always hates to suffocate in fires, and drown in two inches of water and burn in the house while the firemen just watch and let it all happen, even if it's all just happening in a dream. Dear diary, O oh meds, O oh docs, of the symptoms of these recurring, of the consumers of the providers, of hospitals filled with the ill, of my meds forever reproaching my meds, for who more foolish than my doctor, and who more sane, of symptoms that vainly crave the meds, of the doctors and meds mean, 
of the struggle ever so called crazied, of the poor results of all meds, of the plotting paranoia and sordid symptoms, I see imaginary people round me, of the voices and useless vocalizations of my speech with rest, my symptoms intertwined, the question, oh meds, so sad, the side effects, what good are these meds, these docs, these mental maladies, oh meds, oh boy, my medical mental take on Walt Whitman, blip, balam, boom first date with perplexity I imagine what it was like, our first date, it's foggy outside and I'm real anxious, until Claudia takes shape and she finally exists, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, where and when does this day take place, I ask myself, Georgie answers all my questions, don't look at her, Georgie says, tell her your flaws, your fears, and your needs, make sure she's aware of your high maintenance personality, shhhh, quiet I say, finally, Georgie does the date for me, he always gets what I want, Georgie and Claudia are at the fusion restaurant, they order a sushi dinner for two, they get a table for four, their first public date begins with his light knock at her front door, tap tap, do we hallucinate noise, I ask myself, and knock again, twice, that is all the noise Georgie has the balls to make, there's no doorbell, tap tap, the door is already open a crack, Georgie steps back a bit, he waits for an answer, coming he hears, Claudia sounds like an aristocrat answering a peasant in some old period piece film, let's go, Georgie calls out, impolitely, she pretends she's surprised to see him, Princess Georgie calls her, I am just kidding, they walk together up their street to the commercial districts where all the shops and restaurants are, Georgie holds her left hand, he sticks to her left side so he can grab her with his right hand, if she lets him, but Snickerdoodle wants Georgie on the other side, parenthetical pet peeve, using an umbrella when walking into a store and having to carry that wet, dripping stick as you shop. I was battered over the head with a wine bottle from that side, she reveals, and I still have this fear. Could we just switch sides okay, baby? Georgie doesn't know if she's pulling his chain or not, but he feels a strong desire to see her naked at this point. He requires strong proof that her past history with other men ended through their fault and not hers. Georgie wants to see the damage done, including any and all scars. He could just decide she's a liar, but he doesn't know what she's lying about. Maybe she's a chick with a dick, a witch, a bitch a prick tease with a disease. He can't say for sure. Will he end up lying to her, too? I have schizophrenia, he declares. His perplexity doesn't mind. She tells Georgie she's a social worker. My mind plays tricks on me. Sometimes, Georgie throws out. It does. So does mine. The score's even. Georgie zero, Claudia zero. The new couple eats dinner, and then heads back to Snickerdoodle's little sanctuary down the street. On the way back, Georgie remembers that she offered to pay half the supper bill he wouldn't hear of it. He thinks that he should have let her pay the whole thing, but it's too late for that. Before saying their good nights, Georgie and Claudia stand by the front door to a place. I don't want, I don't want to fuck you, Georgie, just so you know. I don't want to fuck you, says Claudia. May I touch your breasts? No, not yet. Thanks for asking, though, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. Dear diary, 
for an awkward moment, when someone in a public place would mutter, disability, mental illness, Tourette's, or crazy, and all eyes would fall on me, way different story these days I revel in such occasions now, even look forward to moments as such, bring out some charm and it's all good from the inside Georgie jerks off, and then writes another shitty poem, the nervous narcissist listens in, his teeth sparkle as he hears his alter ego speak to him, I'm alone, but I'm not bored, it's over now, we're done and through, these things we used to do, Claudia looks Georgie in the eyes, breathing that same sick dizzy, sad puppy, bulldozing, this is the end look you'd expect just before a breakup, Georgie wishes she could see for herself just how pathetically she is coming off, if she only knew how unattractively her true California girlishness reflects off her face, he thinks, it's also cliched, so stereotypical, Georgie has a burning urge to slap that girl, hard, but what Snickerdoodle wants is unclear, even at age 40, she's still fucking around with several people at the same time, Georgie wonders if she is ever miserable, he's pissed off, thinking she has never been burned, herself, he quits smoking again, but he still wants to light up right now, I'll smoke later, he tells himself, I'll have just one more cigarette, somewhere, sometime, he bites his teeth, was Claudia ever miserable, even slightly, ever his perplexity might eventually get hooked up with a 70 year old, wrinkled sugar daddy that she could butcher and eat alive, some Newport Beach lands developer with a terminal heartbeat and lots of money, he would end up married to his mistress, the great bitch love, Claudia, somewhere undercover, a little discreetly, he would croak in bed beside her, long before she started to feel the age upon her, then she'd get the estate she'd work it out that way, Georgie, get your gun, the old man could leave Snickerdoodle with next to nothing except a free ticket to the funeral, but that won't happen, not with Claudia her luck is always too good, Georgie feels like a stalker, because he is a stalker, he's a fucking mess, he is mentally tortured, by Claudia, by himself, dear diary, even when worst of things occur in life, its reason could simply be reminding us we're human and thus have human feelings, emotions, and experiences the slow fade out Monday the 27th of June 10 29 p.m., hey Georgie, it's about 10.30, anyway, I am just going to stop working and go to bed, I don't even know when you called me, anyway, the fiscal year ends, you know, of course, this week, there's a big push to get reports in, and charts and paperwork and audits and everything, done, so, anyway, so, that's where I'm kind of focusing, and then after Friday well, that should be nice, I should have a break, anyway, I hope things are good with you, and that's it, I'll catch up with you later, hopefully you're having beautiful dreams right now, and, I guess good morning as well, because it will probably be morning when you get this, um, bye sleep deprivation, you just want the next day to come soon after getting a full night's rest, that's all you want a new beginning, and I need a short story, what I really need is a high concept, great story piece a script to a film that would attract a good soundtrack, the script, a page turner, the film, a tearjerker, the audience, truly involved, but what could the story be, I need to find the story, 
Is it a mix of what I have now, or a brand new idea using what I've learned from what I've got? Could I write it fast? Could I pound it out, like Patty? What are the themes, in what order? Love, buddies, friendship, obsession, moving on, identity, adventures, at least three big themes death, loneliness, despair, philosophy, intelligence, generation X affluence, the Honda generation, dear diary, I'm not to blame for my illness, but I'm responsible for my health, mental illness, to me, should be considered a third party, not the core of the individual. I'm not to blame for my mental health condition, but many of my actions are influenced in part, due to my mental illnesses end of November I wanted to give her the finger, I wanted to shoot her a real big fuck you but what about me, I kept planning what I was going to do the next time I saw her next door, maybe I'd get a real goodbye, at least, for the past week, she'd been parking her car right near my back door, right near the garage, near the office at home, near the kitchen, the doors I always use to get from here to there, when I'm dosing up on caffeine and sugar, my mind screaming, you're still in love with her, admit it you're still in love with her, where was Georgie when I needed him most, she was alone, and I ran and fell into her arms, hopelessly, pathetically, profoundly, in one long since over expired love epic, the epic love affair of the century still rests within my heart. My poor, butchered, tormented, tortured heart my wrecked, strong, very weak, and still tired heart, with its thumping beats overlapping in a sound prairie, a thunderstorm of bolts crashing, scissors chopping, teeth clenching recklessly, letting havoc rip out of my soul, giving into all the temptations Georgie could ever bear for the rest of his life, yesterday, today started as fucked up as it ended a good day, yeah? It was good, this whole time I've been trying to understand myself, and to be understood by others, I was just a closet pervert, now I'm a public pervert, so is Georgie, and he can still function in a normal daily life scenario at least, as normal as things can be for now, I need to exercise my mind, I need to get some more things out, I need to have sex with my mind until my mind has an orgasm and splashes all over everything and spills its sweet love once stored inside, yeah, I fucked it, R, yes, it had very little to do with this morning or tonight, with today, it started last night, it started a few weeks ago, it started when Georgie started trying to get rid of his perplexity and have sex with somebody else just so she wouldn't be the last one, Georgie lights a cigarette and starts puffing, He's on his 10th shot of espresso today and just starting to get down to the nitty gritty. His phone has been ringing off the hook all morning. Her last words, you know what, I just don't have the time to give you, Claudia says with withering disdain. I just don't, dear diary, regarding responsibility for my actions, with or without mental illness but as a human being, and to recall Eleanor Roosevelt's famed, in the long run, we shape our lives and we shape ourselves, the process never ends until we die, and the choices we make are ultimately our own responsibility, Claudia, Heidi, my perplexity I took it all in, stuffed it deep inside, real hard, within a few minutes, I headed to the garage, my shadow followed me there, Georgie, I said, get in the fucking car, you fucking bitch Georgie started swimming into focus, 
just so I could believe he really was there. He was still the same hotshot hallucination of my misperceptions. He's a spitting image of my big fat ass and my big fat head and my really bad fucking breath. He's just as big an asshole as I ever was, except he did nothing wrong and I blamed myself for everything. I never learned the right way to deal with conflict. Once the excitement of any new relationship faded away, any conflict naturally dragged me into a fear of uncertainty where I'd simply call that relationship quits. I catch myself in this awareness. I'm aware of this awareness, and I'm about to burn the bridge with myself on it. With Georgie still there, I pop the CD changer on in the car. I've already fired up the German gas guzzling ignition. The key in the hole chimes like the cash register followed by Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. I put the speakers on high fee and strap up, and smoke the rear wheels out of the garage. Georgie and I are silent and stern-eyed as I run the stop sign at the corner. Can you tell heaven from hell, blue skies from pain? Pink Floyd at the first red light a sudden agonizing realization comes to me every light we hit will turn red before we hit it. So I stop the car then and there, shut the engine off, and lock the keys inside. Georgie gets out and I follow. He knows what I'm up to better than I do myself. But I take my anger out on Georgie. Anyway, parenthetical pet peeve. People who remain stopped several seconds after the light. Have you lost it completely Georgie asks. I force myself out with a hint of spit and scat. Georgie opens the passenger door and slips back inside the car. He shows me the key he has dangling from his fingertips and starts to laugh. Your heroes for ghosts. Pink Floyd I grab the key from him and insert it back in the driver's side lock and lock myself out. I catch myself firing up in even more of a road rage and make a cool entrance into the coupe again. Confusion is overwhelming. I'm having another spell. Another episode. Fuck. We drive up the coast about a mile or so where I find my new home. I sign the lease that day and move in the next. I call the garbage haulers to take everything in the old house, figuring I'll tell the landlord, I'm out of there, whenever I get around to it. I just want to get away from all the lousy sex and bad women and bad people I've had no clue how to relate to at the old house. So I found this full-service apartment building I'll probably collapse and croak in, where I'll be free to be completely alone, haunted only by fears and regret. For the next month, I keep seeing Claudia everywhere I go, everywhere. She comes up with different identities, in different scenarios. She's driving different cars romancing different people, even speaking through other people's voices. For the love of God, these women are all Claudia, I swear. Georgie gets another saleswoman to move in with him the very first date they meet. He's buying a new bed. She's selling it. It breaks. They fall apart. Then they fall into bed together. They have some kind of strange schizophrenia where you know you have it, but you're not allowed to be told you have it. It's like, the opposite of schizophrenia, or something. The doctors tell Georgie and me that all the chaos is normal. We're completely trapped, whether alone or together, and somehow, that's supposed to cure me. I look in the mirror and see myself at last, not just the reflections, and reactions, of everybody else. Dear diary, a person can only offer as much love as he or she has found within themselves. However one might argue that we learn to love ourselves more fully by loving others, 
and again, I try, one last time, hell, I commit my literary crime or from waste, a novel by Benjamin J. Scriber, I felt generally on edge, a bit anxious, a bit non-existent, I felt nervous, paranoid, and urgent, unlike yesterday, but still, I bore up under it all somehow, I finished another day, even with the recurring theme of death in the first person, in my head, every minute, the whispering voices have dissipated, but perceptual hallucinations are still present, looking at Heidi's, yes Heidi's, I know, I realize now it is Heidi's, not Claudia's, place next door, the whole emotional situation became extremely awkward for me, and besides, they wanted to switch my meds, fuck, are they bending my mind back together, have I taken the right pill, no, I've been off my fucking meds for 5 days, now, I'm thinking half asleep, the writer's block, it seems it seems to have lifted, it's gone, I think I'm okay, in a way, I try, I try, and I try, I try to find things out about her, about Heidi, that are impure, detestable, and inferior, but still, I'm wrong to judge her, I don't deserve to judge her, that's what I tell myself, but I do, I do, I judge her I judge Heidi, and I want to yell at her, scream at her, beat the crap out of her in public, but I can't, I just can't, I wasn't brought up that way, Claudia and I couldn't just be fuck buddies, of course, I talked my head off trying to talk her into it, I wanted her that bad, really bad, so bad it hurt, yet, I couldn't even come with her at the end, I was jealous, she said, of her abundant life, fuck it, fuck her, fuck everything, it's all Claudia's fault, the way that Heidi can balance such chaos astounds me, even with her career, how does she do it, I remember her diatribe about the forbidden love affairs that attract her, that she questions, that still make her feel good, we were on a date, when she discoursed with such disdain, I'd taken her out to dinner to be with me and she blabbered about all the other guys she dated and fucked, that's not fair, shite, I'm through with her, oh, Ben, you're learning, it's over you said it to her, she simply said, okay, legend has it that okay stands for zero killed, dear diary, schizophrenia, allergia, and apathy can osculate my tuckers, I'm built for this impedimenta Ben and Pops Georgie looks down at us from above, somewhere, someplace, he must not have been fully integrated into the life with me, or with Ben, the genius, Georgie was not needed, and I was not the full-fledged narcissist in need of another self, or at least, I wasn't, not yet, I was still young, before sixth grade, I'd recently been armed with the popular labels, attention deficit disorder and Tourette's, and mother was on vacation, on a cruise, with my sister Lenore, of course, you always ruin every vacation we take together, Ben, I'd hear whenever they'd leave the front door, and me, for a carnival cruise, American princess, etc. Later, I'd drift away from them, from sis and mom, I mean, mother would tell me, it would be really nice to have you back in the family, I'd take her remarks as, you should be back with us, what she probably meant was, one, I won't cop to anything it's all your own fault, two, I know I can't have ya back, I'm sorry, sorry but no three, you're an out of control brat and I hate ya, something like that, god, that woman still makes me angry, I love her, 
I hate her, and I really don't want her to leave. Life with mother was always borderline this, crisis after crisis that, Georgie could feel the living colorful beauty of the immaculate synthesis. It's just a byproduct, the flip side of fear. Dr. C calls it the immaculate built-up split inside me a synthesis and a split. Afterwards, Georgie would need to take in everything Dr. C said. He would need to swallow and deal with it. Maybe he would end up in a tap dancing class. Instead, tap and dance to the beats of Bologna. He was looking over at me. My pops was. I was eating a pizza and staring at the television set, with the occasional glance over at my father. We were alone together. Father had nuked up some microwave popcorn. They would have just started to pre-install microwave units into the new condos in America, and we were in a condo, only an hour's drive away, an hour's drive, Lord, from the small ski village of Sandy, Utah. This boy's vacation away from home happened before Pops broke the bank, so we were all a lot more modest than we are today. It was a father-son trip. We flew by plane in coach into Salt Lake City, and we did a lot of driving with the radio on, making memory-building music. The windy snow was crystallizing on the drifted boughs of the trees. There were snowy white pines and even red cedar. There were young deer running loose in the nearby state parks. The purest sensation of adolescent nostalgia, before the fact, was already causing tiny shivers in my spine. It was making my thin, little, boy arms shiver. Or maybe it was the snow. Snowed in as we were, I was stuck with my father. We were watching a rented copy of Raising Arizona on VHS, just after the Betamaxes became obsolete I can't remember when. Most of the best parts of growing up have dulled in my mind, and any magic has finally been quelled. That first Saturday night, my pops and I took a soak in the outdoor jacuzzi. The steam was rising up and over the wall thermometer which said the temperature was 20 degrees, maybe 15. Like I said, I don't remember all that well. All I know is, I fell asleep on the couch that night, and we hit a couple of slopes on Sunday. Pops took me to the top of the steepest black diamond slopes. I was challenged to race down, with Pops right behind me, even without the agility I had as a kid. Pops wiped out at the bottom. I wiped out, too. We stood up shaking off snow, and started laughing. We had fun while it lasted. I knew I'd have to go back home to mother, eventually. Pops left mother shortly after. I'd never have another father-son experience quite like it. I guess that's why it means so much to me now. As faded as the memory is it was, it isn't the one and only. Dear diary, hey, not to spoil the ending, but everything is going to be okay alter ego Claudia. Georgie's nightmare at noon since the new medication regimen seems to be working and the writer's block seems to be done, I feel rushed. That's strange, isn't it? I'm not used to being rushed. So, Georgie spends a whole day de-claudiaizing his otherwise crappy little house. His living room is now the small front room studio where he just sits around without any furniture. He lets the monotony take control of him wishing for the next day to begin and this current day to end. Georgie is dilly-dallying on this whole business of finding a new place to live. Starting early in the morning, getting up early for once, he cleans out his house completely. The whole idea of Claudia is surgically removed through the subliminal process of thought-stopping. 
all the enlarged photographs and framed letters and handwritten notes have been locked inside a storage unit in the next town. His collection of vintage Pez dispensers, vanilla-scented candles, and novelty gifts are now locked away inside the hell of Georgie's mind. The candles he got for his birthday have been kept like new for too long. He, now they are all being burned. Get your gun, Georgie. Georgie, get your gun. As if there ever was any gun. Go ahead, Georgie. Load it with love. Shoot your fucking dick off, if you want. But not tonight, Georgie, is what she says, over and over again. She's fucking around with him, he thinks. Here comes the heat. The hot light from the bleeding sun sucks into the camera. We're inside the dark studio, with all that's left of Georgie's old pad, somewhere in Los Angeles. The blinds are closed. The sunlight bleeds through them horizontally. Georgie is 30 years old. He's shivering, scruffy-faced, and cold. He holds a can of mace. There are lines of coke drawn on the floor beside him. He suffocates in smoke by the shut-up door. These flickering, lit candles surround him. The lights are dim. Ten ashtrays are occupied with smoldering cigarettes and joints. They give off whole loaves of white dope smoke into the still-stifling air. Georgie's wrapped in a blanket, he's self-aware. The Brit invasion pop music of your choice is muffled but loud. Alternative music follows. Georgie's a one-man crowd. There's the blasting static of a radio dial turning. These are the inarticulate sounds of Georgie's head. He is burning. He's drenched in sweat. For the first time, he's in debt. He can barely suck in a breath of clean fresh air. Much less this filthy, shut-up cloud. Women's panties with their rank sex odor and an array of sex toys are scattered on the floor. There's more her notes, her gifts, and her dead flowers. Seconds pass like hours. Georgie clenches a cup of water and nearly drowns in it. He chokes and likes the sound of it, drowning, there at the beach. Georgie's wrapped in satin bed sheets. The moonlight illuminates them. She's 40, 41. She never gave her real age to anyone. Georgie and she are posing for pictures, all happy and shite. He's got a cigarette lit. He thinks the long beach is a huge public ashtray. They run around on the sand, playfully screaming. Georgie remembers this as he tells it to me. Claudia dips her big feet in the white, foamy, chilly water. Georgie smiles at the sight of her bare feet. He tries to lick her ankle, but she dunks his face in the water, dismissing his affection. Often she refuses his advances, even while in bed. He wonders if she would ignore him if they were wed. His head is bobbing in and out of the water as she pushes him down. He spits out sand. He is almost drowning. Claudia laughs with mischief. She takes Georgie's hand. We're in the middle of an empty parking lot, near Claudia's piece of shite, 91 Honda. The CD player is on high. There's more music. Georgie and Claudia dance together with a big discount clearance store banner in the background, like Total Suburbia A Suburban Idol. The fire alarm is blaring high. We're back in the studio where Georgie's beating himself up. Somebody save me at the door to an apartment across the street. A woman's voice cries. Come in, Georgie, blowing bubblegum, opens the door only to find Claudia kissing another woman. It's that Sarah chick. Claudia's alcoholic lesbian lover, mystery woman of misery, now in the flesh, I can't see her, she must not be real either, Claudia looks her over, her eyes widen majestically, 
Georgie. Hi, Princess. She hallucinates Sarah. Georgie hallucinates Claudia, and I hallucinate Georgie. Claudia and Sarah stand topless in the center of the room. Claudia's in latex gear. There's a small audience witnessing. Greg is 55 with long white hair, a puff belly, a fuzzy navel, and a wedding band. He's an oaf. He's with his wife, Sarah, who's 25, skinny, and bony. She can't help looking innocent. She's wearing a gold cross like a lucky charm. They watch lesbian make out scenes like stiff sitting side by side, their hands folded in their laps. They don't flinch a muscle. Georgie ticks. Claudia sees his neck jerk and his eyes roll. She waves him to come closer. Just don't come too close. Georgie swallows his chewing gum. He can't take his eyes off the fantasy woman he's concocted in his mind. She kicks off the pumps and calls him on. Tell me a little more about yourself, Georgie, she says. I want to get to know you better. Georgie grabs one of her shoes. He smells the vinegary sponge of the soles. Greg and his wife smirk at each other. Embarrassed and ashamed, Georgie starts to run away. Don't leave Claudia shouts. Georgie freezes. Then her voice softens. I want to introduce you, Georgie. Georgie hesitates. Fuck you. I fucking love you. You're fucking with my mind again. I'm not fucking with your mind, Claudia says. Damn it, Georgie. I told you I wouldn't do that. I told you the fire alarm next door is still firing off. Claudia dashes out her front door and into Georgie's studio. Georgie is still sitting in the middle of the room. The fire alarm is louder. We hear Claudia perfectly. However, Georgie looks up. She explains, I am just a habit, Georgie, an addiction but I've got my life together. It's all figured out Georgie's heard that before. His eyes are desperate, ready to give up completely. He knows all of this is only a figment of his imagination. His imagination is mine. She tapes his mouth shut and cuffs his wrists to his ankles. His chest sticks out. Georgie fails to restrain her. He's a captive. We're at a sushi restaurant in town. Georgie and Claudia are having dinner together. Georgie hands her a pink rose. They walk hand in hand, together on the sidewalk in the center of town. She kisses him. He pinches her ass. Claudia continues explaining herself in the studio. Georgie, I was only using you when it was convenient for me. I'm a woman, Georgie. I'm from another planet. I never even told you that I loved you, did I? God. What's wrong with you suddenly? Claudia can't breathe right. They start fighting physically too. Now, Georgie does his best to defend himself while still caught up in the chains. He looks like a wounded rocking horse. Claudia finds this amusing. Georgie, you're fighting. Look at you go. Let go Georgie makes muffled sounds. Claudia mimics him. Stop. Stop. What are you trying to say? Baby she puts a strangle hold on him. She kisses him hard while he tries to hold back. Claudia pulls out a rubber from Georgie's back pocket. She licks the tape over his mouth. Georgie squeaks. She undoes his pants, coughing from the smoke in the air. She puts her face up close to his six. Just don't touch my breasts. Don't even ask. Then she realizes. Oh, you can't anyway. Fine she undoes her bottom and tosses the condom away. It seems like everything's in slow motion for a second. Georgie is still locked up and suffocating. Claudia sees he's trying to say something. She undoes the tape on his mouth. He's out of breath. 
You fucking whore bitch cunt Claudia laughs, good, she says, and she tapes him back up, I'm a social worker, Claudia mocks, everything is still and quiet for a moment, now, get me pregnant, I want to abuse you, just like you wanted it, I love it, I don't love you, she's fucking Georgie, fucking raping him, she rips off the tape from his lips, Georgie yells, get off, get off I'm, I'm getting off, I have complete control, now, come inside me, Georgie, come inside me, slut the phone rings, police officers are pounding at the door, somebody else must have called them probably Rocky, the feminine florist who lives next door, Georgie comes hard, unloading himself deep inside her, hating it, feeling shattered and corrupted, another day, Claudia and Georgie are making out on the sofa, before the day he raged mad and the shite really hit the fan, Georgie says, I love you, thanks, he hears, Georgie is on the phone with Claudia, I have 30 of your messages saved on my voicemail says Claudia, I like listening to them on my way to work, wherever I go, I get to smile, she's on her way to the car, it's parked outside, she forgets exactly where, Georgie is watering his lawn, parenthetical pet peeve, people who think 7am is a fine time to cut the grass. He tries to break up with her before it's too late, but Claudia suspects his weakness, she smiles with squinted eyebrows, I'm not letting you go that easily, she says, back in the studio, Georgie's entirely wiped out, Claudia unlocks and untapes him, she leaves, without showing the slightest expression, Georgie blurts out, it never ends Claudia looks back, I'll call you, she says, she shuts the door behind her. Georgie knows she won't call, the smell of wine and weed evaporate off Claudia's deep beauty, she sneaks back into the studio, coming up behind Georgie, holding a camouflage shotgun, she blows his head to shreds with 10 explosive shots, get out of your head, you sick fucking twist Claudia screams, love is a lie, don't you know anything Georgie sees red, and then black, dear diary, I may lose the people I love and the things I have. But no matter what happens, I never lose myself easy steps to a perfect pedicure, deja vu, I take just one of the pills, and I remember Georgie, I remember when I moved out west, in the last week of October, I remember it differently, still fuzzy, still a little surreal, shite, Pasadena and all of Los Angeles County were blisteringly hot, and I was working up an uncomfortable sweat, I heard screaming and yelling. It was Halloween, and Claudia, who lived across the street, had just broken up with her girlfriend, her lover flew out the door as Claudia chased her down the sidewalk, all the little kids, in their G-rated costumes, were excited to see the upcoming catfight, some looked frightened as their parents and chaperones shielded them from danger, I watched from my front window, Claudia slapped her ex right across the face, and the bitch went down. It took only one shot from Claudia and the ex was lying on the ground slurring something obscene like, Dixica the kids in our little yuppie town, just bordering the San Marino mansions, were eager for my dollar bills instead of candy set up at the front door. Claudia watched with a bottle of wine after her lover finally took off for good. Within a couple of minutes, she looked at her watch and twitched, dashing from her front patio, she came to mine. The children scattered as I smiled nervously at my new neighbor. She was prancing, wide-eyed, 
pursing her lips like she had something stuck on the tip of her tongue, and she wanted to tell me, what did she want to tell me, her face was still covered with red lipstick kisses, she leaned over my front fence, come here, little boy, come here, I stepped in closer, hi, I said, hi, neighbor, I'm Claudia, I know we haven't met yet but, well, you probably just saw, yeah, my girlfriend and I were on pretty thin ice together, yeah, sorry to know that, I explained, she looked me in the eyes, I looked down at her bare feet, her big pale feet, her perfect, long, little toes, her adolescent pink nail polish, halfway scraped off, she was about 40 or so, her hair was crazy red, her personality was wild, intoxicating, like my imagination, after all, she saw me looking down at her floor floaters and took me out of my pathetic, horny little spell, I felt close to her, but I was interrupted by her soft voice, it was sweet and a little raspy, I forgot, there's this Halloween party I'm going to be late to, up in Hawthorne, I need my nails done, and my girlfriend, well my ex I guess, was going to do my feet, ATP started to build in my pants, what are you going as a hooker, my balls started to scream for a bucket of ice, I repeated what she said in my head a couple of times in disbelief, Claudia was a bombshell, Paula Cole's erotic music played softly on Claudia's cheap little CD player, feeling love was the tune, and we were surrounded by lit candles mostly vanilla scented, I wore a light blue dress shirt with a loose tie and ripped denims, Claudia was completely naked, I can't believe you've never given a girl a pedicure, believe it, I'm a virgin, Claudia, I was solemn, she sat on her toilet bowl, I held her foot in my lap, my cock was feeling really left out, but I liked feeling this agony, at least for the moment, this woman didn't even know my name, she looked down at me, we were still complete strangers, and I thought she was a lesbian, I questioned whether or not my boner was a bad thing, were we being sensual, good god damn, you bet we were, Claudia handed me a bright red container of tiger balm, parenthetical pet peeve, child proof containers that turn out to be adult proof, she asked me not to put my fingers in between her toes, because she was really ticklish, see, so I just closed my eyes and massaged her feet for a couple of minutes, which passed slowly like they were hours, um, that's so relaxing, it tingles, it's warm, she moaned, I removed her old pink nail polish with store brand nail polish remover, Claudia said I was a quick learner, I was then instructed to fill a tub of warm water, so I did, and then I added some salts with a vanilla scented foot soak, she soaked her feet for about 5 minutes until she fell asleep, I didn't want to wake her, so I removed her beautiful, clean, pasty white feet from the warm water and patted them, I greased the palms of my hands with a hefty dose of body lotion she'd stolen from some hotel, then I started to massage her feet from the toes down to her heels, her feet twitched a little, she shivered, my eyes were closed, just like hers, parenthetical pet peeve, bending over and splitting my pants in public, she had pumice stones laid out by the sink, I was familiar with what they did from watching pedicures in beauty parlors, so I dabbed some more lotion on the stones and very gently buffed the areas I felt still needed softening, there weren't many, by the time I had finished, her feet were cotton soft, 
I kissed them, hoping she wouldn't wake up. A sad smile passed across her face. I passed it off as part of a dream she was having. She was a divinci angel. She was heavenly and peaceful. I wanted her to be mine. I dabbed more lotion on her feet, covered them in large plastic baggies, wrapped warm towels around her feet, and let them sit for 15 minutes. She woke up. Well done. Well done, mister. She smiled. Would you bring me a glass of that red wine from the kitchen? She asked me in the most pleasant of voices. After I returned with her wine, she lit a joint and took a few seductive hits from it. She offered me a drag with a languid gesture. I nodded in the negative. Good boy, Claudia said. Removing the baggies, I massaged the remainder of the lotion into her feet. Then I buffed her toenails furiously, starting to have a little fun. My boner softened a bit. We laughed together. What color would you like? I asked. What do you think? What would look good on me? Say, if you could have my toes and up went my groin stick again. Pre-cum was leaking out. I could feel it. I touched it for a second, and she busted me. What are you doing? She laughed. Nothing. I carefully painted her nails with a base coat, separating her toes with cotton balls. When they dried, I colored her toenails with two coats of hooker blue. I was in a hurry to leave so I could go back home and jerk off as fast as I could. I was sweaty with guilt, shame, and frustration. Neighbor, wait she called as I rushed to go. I have to go. Sorry, but I'm late for the party, she exclaimed. I stopped in my tracks. I want to congratulate you on what a great job you did on my pedicure, and on such short notice, too. I smiled, still horny as all hell. Now it's your turn. My face shot back that, am I in a dream look? She had me sit on the same toilet seat, and she sat herself on the floor where I had sat. She stayed perfectly naked and told me to get naked with her, parenthetical pet peeve, pay toilets. I undressed slowly and sat down in front of her with my huge boner at attention. This has become your night after all. I need to thank you, neighbor. I need to welcome you to the neighborhood. What's your name? Anyway she asked, Georgie, no, Ben, you silly thing, make up your mind, just call me Ben, you're young, I'm 30, but I admire older women, mature women, women older than me, I confessed, and you like feet she asked respectfully, before I could say anything, her freshly pedicured feet crept up my thigh and gently rubbed my balls and shaft, I felt queasy, sick, dizzy, in heaven, in agony. I could see right into her crotch, her shaved pussy was dripping wet, her vagina looked so lonely, within a minute, I couldn't take it any longer, Claudia, you have to make me come I demanded, fast, please, make me come, I promise I won't ever ask you again in such a selfish hurry, please her feet began to stroke my erect cock up and down, it was tall, proud, rising toward my face, all my boiling love sap was about to explode. Do you want to come in my mouth? Claudia asked. On your feet. Just like that. Don't stop. Don't stop. I begged. Are you close? And before I could answer, I splashed her feet with my wet nut. Claudia masturbated her clit in a restless fury and squirted all over the work I'd done on her feet. I rubbed it in with my big hands, massaging what was left of her new feet. We nodded out together. The next morning, Halloween was over. We had to get up get out of the bathroom, and get off to work, 
I skipped showering that morning the leftover aroma of sex on my skin was my private souvenir. I knew that I wanted to see this woman again and again, in Long Beach. Strangely, I knew I would strike up a relationship with Heidi Barillo in Long Beach, and we'd both be involved in catastrophic love affairs beyond our dignities, beyond our distance. I knew I had a solid premise for the big novel, a living, colorful beauty, and a local borderline personality. Or would that be two personalities, a three, or four, a parallel universe? a universal reflection of personality itself, oh lord, hear our prayer, I'm making it, fucking making it, man, swimming back to the surface or, at least, back to dock, dear diary, I'm trying again, to enjoy my own life without comparing it with that of others rehab and mother doctor C hangs on my every word when I talk about the robbery and rehab, I know she doesn't want to get hung up on every word, but the thing is, she can't resist a story of mayhem and criminality. No one can. You learn when you're a writer that violence, criminal behavior, sex, and drugs all of it, any of it sells. And that's all I'm doing selling Dr. C a story and hoping she buys it. Does that mean you're dishonest Dr. C asks. I think I pretend to think and shake my head no. Not dishonest, I say. Not exactly, no. I wouldn't say that. Then what would you say, Ben I think I pretend to think and say, now, well, I'm not exactly sure, what would you say, Dr. C, Dr. C smiles, but says nothing, of course, what else could she do, she wants me to jump in, she wants me to fill the silence with my own thoughts, my own impressions, I sink into the chair, I refuse to play that game, several seconds pass, several long, silent seconds, finally, did I tell you my mother visited me in rehab I ask, silently, Dr. C shakes her head no, want me to tell you about it I ask, if that's what you want, Dr. C says, typical psychiatric bullshit, well now, Dr. C, if I didn't want to tell you about my mother visiting, I wouldn't have brought it up in the first place would I you sound angry, Ben, are you angry not me, uh, uh no sir, anger is a waste. Why get angry? Be happy, I laugh. Dr. C does not join in. I sigh and begin my newest story. My mother and her short, tight, curly hair, and her grotesque, out-of-shape obese body. This is my greatest fear that one day I'll wake up looking just like her, and then I'll have to kill myself. Dr. C smiles sardonically. Then she asks if Georgie is patterned more on myself or on my mother. It's a stupid question and one I refuse to answer. Then Dr. C asks if I enjoyed my mother's visit. I laugh. Could anyone enjoy a visit with my mother? My mother has one of those East Coast voices, loud and nasal. She's always clearing her throat and if I didn't know better, I'd swear she has Tourette's. She's an Episcopalian. However, with her talent for guilt, I always suspected she was a closet Catholic. Interesting, Dr. C says. What I ask, all of it, she says, then smiles enigmatically. Christ, I hate enigmatic smiles. I continue. My mother was a firm believer in regular church attendance. She even requires that I become an altar boy. Why she went to church, or what she thought she gained, was never clear to me. She certainly didn't learn to love in church, at least not in any New Testament way. No, not my mother. My mother was quick to hit. 
spare the rod, spoil the child, the good book says, and she brought that up when she visited me at Valley View, she sat on the side chair in my room, her fleshy legs crossed primly at the ankle, and cried, I just don't know what I did wrong, Benji, tell me, I'm a reasonable woman, what did I do and what did you tell her Dr. C asks, I think about that, I don't pretend to think, I do think, and, what the hell, I don't remember, I've never remembered any of the things I've told my mother, only the things she's told me, and what are the things she's told you Dr. C asks, stand up straight, don't slouch, be normal, stop ticksing like that, it must have been hard to do all those things, it must have been, but I don't remember, I don't remember any of the things I did, did I obey, rebel, why can't I remember, why can't I fucking remember, Dr. C reaches for my hand, I pull back, psychiatrists who touch their patients are suspect in my book, sorry, I get to my feet, well, Dr. C, I tell her, my voice is rich, cultured, and melodious everything Dr. C is not, well, I repeat, same time Tuesday she nods, and I leave, I'm so out of there, dear diary, every day may not be good, but there is something good in every day and the violence my mother was always stressed, always, because she had this thing for talking in extremes, being in extremes, she was always mad, never good, at the dinner table, mother, sis, and me, shut up and eat your piece, before I give you a fucking beating you'll never forget, she bullied me and my pops, my sister and me, she even bullied the poor little dog, pumpkin, a tiny, black and grey she teased you adopted from the county fair, pumpkin would eat her shirt, with wafts of steam coming off it, in the dead of our suburban winters, in turn, she'd be maliciously tortured by my mother, mother would say, bad dog, pumpkin, bad dog, and whack the living daylights out of her, as pumpkin aged, she became more and more skittish, and mother would tell me how skittish I was becoming, and we'd yell, yes, typical American family yelling fights, where do you think you're going mother would ask, boarding school, where boarding school, hum, where again boarding school, mother, pop said it was okay, I've waited for this, let me go, I just want to go, after each time I answered, boarding school, I got her fat, racking hand across my pale and stubbly teenaged face, there was blood coming out of my nose and ears, where boarding school, whack, where fuck you whack, mother wore no wedding ring, just a white gold, six carat diamond ring that chipped at my ear and only to cherish Dean sideburns, well, the left one anyway, where until finally I yelped, fuck you, mama bitch, fucking Wakefield Academy in New England, cunt rag then I swung one huge pounding punch down onto a nose which, click, snap, broke and bled, and mother never hit me again, I carried all my familial baggage through college and through every broken relationship, I was broken hearted from being a fucking pinto, honky, worthless, piece of shite who needed a new mother, that's what love means to me, mother was obsessed with the family and our secrets the love making and the beatings, all the things that'll keep my novel off the bestseller list, I've taken my hits and stings with an I'm the victim, and fuck you, Dr. Phil, the whole family scene was just plain bad, mother had knickknacks around the house, porcelain elephants, and collectibles, she was artistic by nature, 
although nothing ever took off for her, and she couldn't read, like me. The two of us together might have gotten through one regular book in our lives and that would be mostly her no, maybe me, I don't know, she burned food, she was a little league mom, she loved me but didn't know how to show it, my mother was obsessed with sex, she liked to applique a life-size, anatomically correct penises on my sister's cabbage patch dolls and on one of my own. The penises wouldn't have been all that bad if she had done the same thing with an occasional vulva or pudendum now and then, but she didn't. It was just penises. She was obsessed with my penis as well. She liked to play what she called groinology, where she'd grab me high on the thigh, right on the groin, and dig in as hard and tight as she could, her blood red nails leaving imprints on my skin. Groinology, Benny, she'd say, laughing all the while. Kiss me on the lips, she'd demand, even when I was 25, turn yourself into your father, and into me, she commanded, and as the victim of my own mom and dad, when they mother dearested me, I now collect all the movie memorabilia, oh, and she hit me, did I mention how much she hit me, my grandmother's, my father's mother's, last words to me were, oh yeah, Rose, boy, Benjamin, the way she used to hit you and she died peacefully that night in her bedroom, at 99, Georgie tells me to watch Dr. Phil, and now it's Dr. Phil's voice in my head, telling me to let go and fucking give me a break, you lousy, lazy, beautiful little baby, please, Dr. C seek help soon, dear diary, overall, I'm too positive to be doubtful, too optimistic to be fearful and too determined to be defeated second skins with footnotes Dr. C asks, You've mentioned Heidi before, Ben, why don't you tell me more about her Heidi's my obsession, my perplexity, she's the woman who changed my life and not in a good way, she brings back Georgie, who hasn't been around since Mrs. Petite, Claudia is Georgie's Heidi, as an adult, I pleasure myself with the latex wrapped around me, snug, warm, wet with saliva, there's no mess to clean up when I'm through, all this time, I've been trying to be safe and doubling up meant security to me. I move out of town a few months later. I never see Claudia Nesbitt again. She fucked me, and she fucked with my head. I loved her in my own twisted way. She wouldn't really ever change. Who was I kidding myself? Maybe. I see her everywhere. Claudia, Ashley, and everyone, everywhere. She's the essence of every woman I come into contact with. She never ends like one mirror reflected in another, talk about an obsessive compulsive personality, this fantasy world in my head, in my heart, it's becoming my reality, I just can't seem to get over her, over Claudia, and I only met her once, am I turning into psycho boy where's the simplicity I once knew, how might I regain that, this all too, shall pass, I hear, you'll be just fine in the long run, dear diary, as for myself, autism is my superpower benevolent Georgie there is a genuine goodness to Georgie, as unsacred and as unwholesome as he might otherwise be, yes, he does see beauty in every woman, he gives away his money, he's religious in the truest sense of the word, and he holds people in the highest regard, is it I who have the racial tics, then, am I the one who lets people cut in line, no, it's Georgie. He holds the door open for everyone, even for 10 minutes, as they all pile out at rush hour. It's Georgie who carries packages, 
on his way to Dr. C's, Georgie buys food for the homeless and hands it out, carefully deciding by their homely looks who gets what, Georgie forgives everyone, more or less, even when they don't deserve forgiveness, the sun beats down on Georgie's arms as he walks through Rainbow Park on the corner of 7th and Cherry, it's an urban park, not in the best neighborhood, there's trash on the sidewalks that surround it and stalls with boarded up windows, and the bums and the down and outers, who stand on the corners and panhandle for change and food. Whenever Georgie remembers he stops at the Carl's Jr. up the street and buys Western bacon cheeseburgers, chicken strips, and crisscross cut fries, then he hands them out to the beggars who line the street, and whenever he has the time, he picks up at least two pieces of trash to throw away, parenthetical pet peeve, animals digging through the trash. Sometimes he buys Kentucky Fried Chicken instead of Carl's Jr., and sometimes he picks up three pieces of trash instead of two. He likes to pick up trash because it makes him feel like an environmentalist, like he's contributing in some way. Once, by mistake, he picked up a baby's soiled diaper and it grossed him out so bad that he couldn't pick up trash for a month. Across the street from the park is the 7-11. And Kitty Corner is the Shell station where Georgie buys his blue raspberry slush puppy the best drink he's ever had in his life. It tastes like frozen cherry Kool-Aid, except it's carbonated slightly. Georgie drinks his slush puppy, and it's better than any orgasm, any bright sunny day. Otherwise, he could be in heaven. The original slush puppy is that good. It's the best thing he's had, ever since he can remember. Parenthetical pet peeve. How the nutritional value of any given food is usually inversely proportional to how good it tastes. Georgie feels good. It's a Wednesday, and he likes Wednesdays because that's when he sees Dr. C, same as Ben, from 3.30 to 4.30 p.m. He likes Dr. C. He thinks she's kind and he likes that she sees him, and me, on the half hour. It's different. It makes Georgie feel special, noticed. Georgie knows that Dr. C doesn't believe he exists, she thinks he's only a figment of Ben's imagination, or worse, a symptom of his pathology, but that's okay, Georgie doesn't mind, he knows he's real, and that's all that matters, at least for Georgie, and Georgie knows all about Ben, even if Ben doesn't know all about Georgie, Georgie knows how Ben thinks of nothing but Heidi and then puts it all on Georgie. Ben says it's Georgie who's the character, Georgie who's the literary device, what a joke, a man can't be a device, Georgie who can't get over Claudia, and so on, Georgie knows better, though, it is Ben who can't get over Claudia, Ben, when he thinks of the real Georgie at all, thinks of Georgie from the past, he remembers Georgie in sex class, in the tree house, he doesn't think of Georgie in the present at all. The Georgie who buys DVDs on female masturbation, who works to understand a woman's body, who sometimes wants nothing more than his partner's orgasm. Ben dismisses Georgie, which sometimes hurts Georgie's feelings, but not today, not when the sun is shining and the breeze is cool and he gets to see Dr. Sian. Georgie checks his watch. In another two hours, he takes a seat on the bench nearest the swings, where he always sits and watches a young mother push a little blonde-haired boy, maybe three or four, higher and higher into the air. The little boy screams in delight. The problem, 
the all-consuming sadness and despair, for Georgie, and me, too, stems, he knows, from his own mother, a woman Georgie's memory can't access, Ben has him locked out, nobody gets to know Ben's mother, nobody, Georgie's ultimate goal is to be like Mozart on his deathbed, there's Mozart, dying, with Sayleri reminding him he's a genius and that he, Sayleri, will finish off the great masterworks of his life, meanwhile, Mozart slowly dissolves in his insanity, Georgie Bartholomew Gust, may he rest in peace, dear diary, finding friends with the same mental disorder as myself, priceless part 5, St. Valentine's Day Massacre Journal, diary, journal, self, whomever, whatever, maybe Dr. C so how are you doing today, Ben Dr. C asks, like she really wants to know, with the therapy, I mean, what am I supposed to tell her, whatever I tell her, she really doesn't want to know, but here goes nothing, look, I really cannot tolerate the current symptoms I'm experiencing, they drag me in and out, it's taking me a long while to even get anything down on paper here, but I put out the best effort I could ever make, and I'm fighting for my life, my head is a constant firecracker, my tongue curls up and wisps out through my puckering lips, my mouth is contorted, pushing out the skin under my mustache and beard, my head snaps back and forth rapidly, with extreme force, with every incoming fragment of thought, any slightest bit of self-awareness, usually, the head will jerk to a singular, asymmetrical beat, but unrhythmically to a pound after pound, pound pound, with varying intensity, the thoughts want desperately to escape, all I can still think about are my stories, my work, I don't want downtime, free time, or Georgie time, my work is required all the time, every time, period, I must keep my voice low, others, all around, hear me, they are suspicious and they spy on me, earlier, cars were beeping at me, people on the streets and in the parking lots were snickering about me, in those same whispers I hear at night, when I'm alone, but they look away before I can see who they are, they're real, and it's tempting to know them, especially if they have a cell phone or are with another person, they might want to call the cops because they're suspicious, though, cars back off when they're behind me, or at my side, at a red light, sometimes the passengers cover their faces, like what they're saying is secret, when the traffic moves faster, other cars lay on their horns honking at me two, three times, until I think I've run somebody off the road, I look back and the racket has stopped, people always yell at me, but this isn't typical, police sirens and helicopter noises come and go when I shift into second or third gear, the energy is high, and these noises dissipate no sooner than they've started, some of them last two, maybe three, seconds, parenthetical pet peeve, people who lean on the horn the second the light changes, some of the whispers return when I make it to my first destination, dropping off my landlord's check in seal beach is a 15 minute drive, the ladies from the hair salon are snickering about me, I hear, he's the one, leak from their twitching mouths, quietly, then they walk back inside, I write a note to the landlord and keep my cool, my head snaps back again, I can't focus on the red lights, but I handled the whole trip better today than yesterday, I didn't sit through whole cycles of them, red green yellow, and back to red again, I could barely drive back, 
with my head snapping and my eyes rolling, and my hands coming off the steering wheel and into some fingers stretching, waving like gesture, the music really wasn't helping much, either, I've been so confused that I forget how to turn on my video camera, make coffee, or find keys, it took me 3 hours this morning to find my car keys, the medication I took an hour ago is making me feel dizzy, my head ticks are still there, I still feel a little high, I really can't drive now or even go outside, I can't open any windows or blinds, I've got to choose what phone calls to take, if any, I might start craving the hallucinations that usually come in higher doses of whatever it's called, this medication shite, these meds I miss them, half an hour later, I'm fucking stoned on this shite, I need help, an aid, a live-in, something, I can't function as a person, currently, I'm really scared, but the paranoia, I can't believe it, is either different or less, or something, I don't know what, I don't want anyone to see me, what I'm feeling must definitely show in my face, my hands, and my body, I'm not sure exactly how, I'd be scared to know, the doctor will call me soon, I guess, I'm not sure if I'm explaining these symptoms right, I get so utterly confused, I'm losing my mind, I can't think of any treatment that would help, hell, the treatment makes it worse, is this terminal, will this get worse, what is it, really, a sickness, a disease, a pathology, or what, I still need to make my mark somehow on the world, my friends can't show up for me, I don't dare tell them of my misery. I can't tell whether I'm up or down. No, let's try harder. Let's say, I am just as okay as the new age people say I'm. I'm as okay as Dr. C wants me to be. I plod along. I trudge along. I dictate my own misery. But, by the name of God, there's a reason for this drudgery. I'm ready to start the day, again, I hope. I wake up on my own again, before my 7-hour alarm. This whole situation has to be a repetitive routine, like the same old nightmares I experienced again last night, or rather, this morning. The Tourette's in my neck and throat keeps getting worse, I'm making a valid attempt to write as much as I can stand, hoping that maybe some of these night terrors and the morbid confusions of the day will finally dissipate. So far, it's not happening, though. Yesterday was horrendous, the night before. Georgie put on a dream patch food with nicotine, he's armed with one every night during sleep so he can dream vividly and lucidly dream, he's more lucid when he has the classical radio station on, or even the television anything to actually flash the dream images and nightmare scenarios at him, the night before last, he dreamed his best friend, Bobby Banks, was getting married to some big pop star, the dream caused an extremely uncomfortable angst, and Georgie's imagination was wounded, he knew his best friend Bobby Banks was a faithful man, and that brought on the angst, I've become a faithful man, I think, in my recovery, still, I feel almost abandoned by my best friend, Claudia is promiscuous, slutty, and, besides, she's a compulsive liar, she signifies the perplexity and confusion, not of my heart, but of my perception, after all, other people don't see things the same way I do, this morning's dreamscape caused the same feeling of suffocation, for whatever reason, I'm not able to make my mark on this world, I can't even leave my neighbor, I'm trying to grow stronger, 
but I can't take the unbearable pressure, but it's something so tiny, a woman who is as bisexually needy as a straight man craves pussy, but does she need me, does she need to, Claudia couldn't even kiss me when I stopped by to give her the greeting cards for her new apartment, because Sarah was nearby, no, no, we can't kiss here, it's just not right, Claudia said, that's why I left her the last time, that's why I'm addicted to this woman, I've got nowhere else to go, how can I escape her, am I really a damaged person, I want to say, you fucking lush, you fucking dyke, you fuck with my mind, in my nightmares I want to kill myself, just because you exist, I hate myself because of you, huh, would other guys put up with this, where are they now, then, it's been over a year and you're just a waste of my time, no, I really don't love you, you make me want to sleep with you again and again, she says, I vomit on her face and on her chest, and she says the same thing, she wants me to sleep with her, because of the mess I'm in, get a life, she echoes, get a life, Georgie Boo, I'll see you again soon, what lies deep in her past, I'll never know, she's just a character of my experience what a bitter, sharp, stinging pinch, it really hurts it makes me tick, I pucker my lips and click, I need out, but I still feel I need to make my mark on her first, this is the most important thing to me, discovering myself, so I can make my mark artistically, every day I collect the moments and shove them inside, I store them until I'm about to burst, but I don't, there is maybe a good reason for this, I could be a very new soul, so to speak an infinite soul, I consider these metaphysical questions for a moment, but I'm really much more interested in making sure Claudia has a really shite day, I'm having a shite day, she'd confess every Wednesday, for reasons I'll never know, her internal turmoil doesn't manifest itself outside, I feel the same old feeling, it's deja vu all over again, I love her, I hate her, I am jealous too, because she can balance such a fucking crazy life so nonchalantly, how can I be a better person, I can't make myself a better person, but that's exactly what I crave when I'm writing, so perhaps I'm still learning, only the hard way, again, I need this shitty relationship it's a part of my secret plan, it's the divine force manifesting in my life, yeah, right, I come closer to finding myself the more I write, think, and cry, I drain myself through these outlets, letting the thoughts seep out a little sharing them or giving them away, or maybe I'm draining myself emotionally when I cry in the shower with music, alone, softly with fear, I try to hone in, to get closer to the truth about me, to know myself, not in my superficial pretentiousness, but genuinely my true self, then maybe I'll have a better relationship with the world, with the social and familial climates I'm so uncomfortable with now, then the rest of them can all fall back into their own places, I really feel like that, it's all really just a matter of time and sticking with it, never giving up, never, I puff away on my cigarette, I find out that I'm crazy, I realize what it takes to be a king is more than I'll ever know, I know what tools I'll need to make my mark, it gets a little clearer the more I feed the solitude with the things I know, I'm so limited by my excuses, my medical maladies, my inborn genetic deficiencies from the baggage of abuse, neglect, and life I'm ruined forever, and it's none of my fault, 
I want to leave this world and come back with something remote and profound, a message or call. I want to change the universal thought. I've got to keep in constant contact with the doctor today. I cancelled the trip to San Francisco. I'm as stressed as I was as a teen. Let me lose my mind so I can get over this. Someone, God, please help me. Don't let me go yet. I know I still take it all too seriously. I know no other way. Dear diary, I don't think I give myself enough credit a valentine reminder it's valentine's day. I get out of the house and into my car. It's a little hatchback I've had practically forever. I barely drive it, but sometimes I just need to get out of the house. It's damn lonely being single sometimes, especially on this special holiday. So I celebrate myself, I sing, and I ponder the what could have been of Claudia, back from Wakefield. I don't give that composite sketch of her enough time obsessing on her, after all, I figure I owe her. I drive down the Pacific coast, traffic is safer there than on the LA freeways. But I get bored before long and head back home. I'm a little sad, a little wimpy, and pathetic. I remember my last breakup, it was back in college. Claudia went elsewhere, but back when I was immature, impulsive, and horny. I didn't break up with that Claudia she broke up with me. She fucking died on me. Motherfucker, man, what a cop out. I brought her back to life with the help of my Georgie Porgy, my pal. I owe him. He's good to me. That shorty takes the cake. Valentine's Day memories. Not at all. I hardly ever answer the phone. That's what voicemail is for. I remember I was in a pissy mood all morning. Claudia owed me a call. I shut the ringer off. Hey, it's Claudia. It's Friday, and it's around 5 o'clock or so, I think. I'm home. I'm going to be home the next couple of hours so if you get this in time, give me a call. I'm sorry I didn't call last night but you can call me today. I opened a fresh pack of smokes and lit up. I gripped the portable phone and dialed back, wishing she'd answer. I remember thinking about her kitchen. She lived a couple of hours away. I used to take the train to see her. She was a fucking animal. So was I we were sexaholics. After our initial blind date, I brought Claudia back home with me. When she spoke openly of her frustration with menopause, my roommate knew that something was slightly off with Claudia and me. Isn't she a little old for you he suggested, unaware that some people never age when you're one of us, the very few of us left. But my roommate was a little weird himself. He liked his girls young, real young all too fucking young. Fucking pedophile, I thought. Claudia had stretch marks, for some odd reason. They attracted me. She had those old lady nipples. She couldn't have kids and she was loyal. No rubbers were ever needed. The phone rang once. Hello she answered. Hi, how are you great, good, Claudia and me. We are typical American sophisticated, eloquent, articulate. So, what's happening I asked Claudia. Oh, I am just eating, parenthetical pet peeve, heating up a cup of microwave soup and the container flips spilling its contents, some vegetable soup, some tea, I just wanted to talk, if you had time, she said candidly, then she broke up with me, and it wasn't even because of my age, I don't want to put the blame on you, she said, it's not something you'd be able to solve, you need someone more attractive and around your age, and very, very into you, no regrets, no hard feelings, 
I told her. There was a long silence. No one tried to break it for several moments. So, do you have another man in your life now? I asked politely. No, the thing is that surprising. There always has to be someone and you assume that if I'm not with you, then there must be someone else. I am just really independent. Another long, uncomfortable pause. What went wrong? I asked her. Were you uncomfortable with me? No, I don't necessarily. I mean, I'll tell you this, but I think I'm a really low maintenance person, so maybe it's just my particular perspective. But I think you're kind of high maintenance. You need to know from me, always, that everything is alright. You have a constant need for reassurance. But I think of how you were so honest with me and that was so important to me. You always asked how I was feeling, to you weren't selfish or anything. I just can't deal with that. I just can't take care of you. What should I work on? I mean, I'm probably not going to change. No, she said, don't change. Again, there's your need for reassurance. Listen, I'm pretty free-ended. I hope you're not lonely. I immediately changed the topic. I love the talk women engage in if you request an analysis of what really happened. You can find out all of your weak points and your strengths, even before you cease to ever lay eyes on her again just as she's becoming your ex, so you learn more about how the other species relates to you during the breakup than in any point during the relationship. You learn not just what a dick you really are, but how your ignobility and unworthiness have actually become apparent. Because of the talk, I get a clearer picture of who I'm, and what a piece of work I can be for women to deal with. But nothing has ever stopped me from pursuing love, whether it's true love or not. I keep trudging right along, even through the worst storms. There's some huge void in my life I've got to fill, somehow, and I have got to figure some things out. Valentine's Day is over now. There's always some promise for next year. Maybe by then I'll feel a little different. Dear diary, maybe I'm the Rush Limbaugh version of myself today, writing and reviewing my work. Maybe it's the two hours of sleep I got last night, the voices, the schizophrenia I've got, or that my heart has actually been touched, way deep. Maybe that's why I'm even on this computer right now at all. I'm human angel, demon, human, ADHD, let D be for the dichotomy. I live amongst everybody else with our collective overall human condition. I lose the fear and the paranoia, and just write right now dart writing. Until I die funeral I fantasize my own petty little funeral. I lie in the overpriced coffin, fully insulated, wondering what all the live ones are up to and the dead ones, too. Maybe I'm just a little angry. I cried myself to sleep last night, like a little baby, like a loser. While I'm lying there, I hear all the women I've ever been with speaking their minds. They comment on what kind of lover I was. It's judgment day. He was fine. I mean, he was alright. He was really sweet and really cute. He was really funny. There were so many times we'd have these intense conversations, all this philosophy stuff, and he would just go off and get totally crazy, you know? And I'd just sit there, completely confused, and start crying. I never knew completely what was going on in his head. I think that's what I loved about him the most, though his complexity. I couldn't get bored with him easily. I think of all the other broken hearts that bled on this earth. They had so much passion, 
but their lives were probably dull. Still, they had this passion. The passion welled up inside of them right until the end. There's so much brilliance scattered throughout the history of mankind, works of art, philosophical diatribes, subtle moments of supreme happiness, legendary artifacts buried in basements, epic beauty, manuscripts hidden in the trash all that stuff. I try to feel important, despite all of it, I'm surrounded by nature. I'm not even sure what it is I'm still looking for. The women continue whispering over my grave. I was always curious to see what would happen next. I hear music, a Bach Death March versus Led Zeppelin, divided by Culture Club. I try to translate all that I hear into a personal love story, but all I want to do is die. My funeral is held at a crack house. The women in my dream shared moments of true happiness with me. They shared my life. They are now merely delusions. Was there really anybody even there? I gasp. I try to stay alive. Keep the faith. I'm out at the bar late, giving in to temptation. You've worried me these last 24 hours. She stayed with me when my car overheated in the rain. I want to remember this. Remember her. Move on. Change. Reduce the bad stuff. The rage. The blaming. The spoiled boyishness. The lying. The violent thoughts. I tried to change before it was too late. I did. But I failed to commit, and I couldn't follow through. She slid my hand away the moment I made her come with my fingers. I made love with a live person. I was in the moment. The moment is gone. I lied. They lied. I broke up with another woman this morning. Melanie. I had no self-respect for the last time. At last. It was finally over. All the chaos. All the madness. It was all over. I remember tearing up when the two of us made love for the first time. I thought no one else would know. Melanie was the one. During the procession, traffic is a mess. Fear sinks in. Am I still alive? I can't tell. I seem to have separated from myself. I question the news helicopters, hovering above me. I've become a complete narcissist, delusional. I am stuck in myself. Still, I feel like something is incomplete. Claudia. I remember Claudia more than anyone, parenthetical pet peeve, gridlock, worse, gridlock when on your way to work, the worst, gridlock when on the way to the hospital, the choppers fly like locusts, weaving back and forth, taking out everyone on the freeway with machine guns and rocket launchers, I am the only one to escape, the whole city is a parking lot, a massacre, a graveyard, I'm lost, the whispers still linger in my head. I welcomed you into my home, felt drawn to you and your loneliness, I held hands with her for the first time, it's never felt the same again nothing has, I'll never forget the feelings, I felt cheated, but I wasn't, I don't think that either of us used the other, it was a warm and loving exchange between two shattered souls, I'll save you, you save me, I pray to be corrected, I'm meeting myself now for the first time, Thanks to those who once fulfilled my life. You're a very intense man, and I'm much too delicate to deal with all of you. When will you be ready? I asked. Memories I've saved throughout the years have such a profound impact on me. I think, who am I? Who was I? Who was he? It's been almost three weeks since I've seen you, and I hope you were able to maintain your goal. I must say, however, that your absence from the bar is a positive sign. Parenthetical pet peeve, drunks, worse, loud, obnoxious drunks, 
the worst, loud, obnoxious drunks driving cars, you ran like a madman to the drugstore to get me an aspirin when I had that extraordinary headache, you opened up and cried your pain to me, you made me laugh, you were loving to my animals, and you didn't complain when candy and lollies fur made you all stuffed up, you ate my Thanksgiving dinner, you asked for seconds, you said, thank you, you held me, you held my hand when we walked, you gave that bum two dollars for bringing back my necklace when it fell off, you cleaned your bathrooms before I came over, you said to me, you were the most beautiful in that bathtub and it was all so lovely, there's beauty in conflict, too, in despair, everything takes on a new meaning, but you are so many harsh and unforgiving things, part of growing up is taking responsibility for what you do, stop blaming everybody else, it's hard enough to be a parent to somebody without issues, yours did the best they could, now it's your job to do the best you can, so, take care, I miss you, I just wanted to hear your voice, whenever you need me, you respected me when I asked you not to call, and you didn't, nobody's holding a gun to your head but you, might you find the love and strength inside yourself, the love that I have witnessed and have been grateful to receive, might you learn to understand yourself and take control of your life in a loving, healthy way, and, like I said, make some goddamn changes, positive changes, I'm leaving you, you have hurt me profoundly, verbal abuse, alcohol, yelling, gambling, harsh criticisms, humiliation, disdain, on your good days, you were definitely more affectionate than usual, you opened doors for me, you said things like, this is your night you are the only person I know who truly made me feel like a woman, nobody else has yet, I have confidence in myself from you, you made me feel more miserable than happy, do this, do that, you called me bitch, even when we were most intimately together, you farted on me, I couldn't believe it but inside, you're a sensitive and tender gentleman, where did that man go I just hope that the pain, sorrow, and bitterness will eventually fade away, very important detail, I didn't know what I was doing, blind ambition captivated my every thought and action, I dissolved, I made my dwelling in solitude, I acquired, personally, what I was able, my character remains the same, strange and bizarre thinking, mental disturbances, caused my mind to suffocate, I withdrew from reality the best way I knew how, I am still addicted to Melanie, I love this woman who can't love me, Melanie has a lot of baggage, Melanie's a lot like me, I thought she would be alright with me, being like me, I guess I've changed a little, so, what did she have to say about us, we're two different people, but I'm not going anywhere, I'm doing my best just to forget about her all day long, I begin with some kind of ending, but I require detail and important facts, and truths that elicit positive emotions, I think about how love can't always be rushed, love at first sight, true love, they are lies, but I'm attracted to them, I dive into a bag of chips and buy some smokes and a small lighter at the counter, I pay with my check card, caffeine, smokes, slush puppies, dreams of purple pears they are a little hard to find these days, a little like happiness, like love, in the end, I wonder what all that really means, I want these echoes to make me a better man, I'm not alone, after all, I am still here, I move on the best I can, 
Things get a little better during these short mental detours. We change, I change, I celebrate, I sing, I improve myself, somehow, it's all like a broken heart to Jubilee. I'm out of milk and sugar, and the coffee is almost done brewing. It's damn past one in the morning, and I require amplification. The supermarket is open late, really late. I've got to head over there now. Parenthetical pet peeve, supermarkets that require me to buy $10 worth of groceries before I can use their coupons. Maybe I'll pick out some point of purchase items from the display by the checkout line. A pack of chewing gum, parenthetical pet peeve, chewing gum or a packet of AAA batteries to store in the freezer, or something. Georgie needs a light bulb over his desk. I need a night light to plug into the bathroom wall. I need to write another list. What else? Another set of scattered thoughts. Parenthetical pet peeve. Can openers that leave a small sliver of the can still uncut. My living room is quaint and contemporary. There's an overabundance of every fancy little modernization, every known electronic doodad, every conceivable entertainment gadget that can fit in a room without cluttering it. There are photos and drawings framed across the walls and on the bookshelves, representing my past, past girlfriends, awards, trophies, posters from my travels. There are loads of hardcore intellectual books just piles and piles of them most of them in three copies. It's the same with my video and music collection. I have too many things, and I've got too many copies of my things. Some of the sketches and notes lying around are only halfway completed. My drawings and paintings are scattered, hardly complete, but brilliant. The graph paper diagrams have been drawn with some purpose but with no implications, resembling intricate patent designs and blueprints. It's obvious I have a strong mind maybe too strong for my own good, and I have too many projects going on, arbitrary projects, redundant and grandiose. My past seems rich and full. I've lost that richness and fullness lately, finding comfort only in sleep and in having nothing to look forward to. All my needs are taken care of. The things in my house, although artistic, are mathematically arranged and, somehow, everything corresponds to everything else. Quantum physics material, videos and books, are neatly clustered and labeled beneath an MC Escher print, so as not to confuse myself, it's simple, inasmuch as the confusion is the clarity. The clarity is the confusion, duck. It's frightening because it scares me too and I admit I oftentimes ask myself why, my bike, and the trophies, sports stuff, and so on, the home within my home, thus additional confusion, in this home, it elicits a very visual view, voila, into my space, my space, my home, my wife, I mean my life both of which and whom also confuse me and thus everyone, if I were the therapist, voila, I did. I used to have some sort of life. Perhaps it is gone. Surely it's gone. I used to travel the world. I was awarded in sports, but no longer. I'm now alone with a continuum of collections I've saved to remember, not use. Maybe it's trauma of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Fuck, maybe it's my own version of Proust's diatribing his epic words, remembering the things, things of the past, at least I think. Fuck, now I have thought in the past tense, that I used to have a damn life. You've never been to my home, or any of them, might I add. So, 
I'll exhibit some sort of visual tour of my sense of home within the rooms. What about the world within my miniature world? What about the suffocation within my surroundings? Blah. Boring. The matrices of my old spinning fan refracts light onto something else that is similar, in some way, metaphor after metaphor, it's the best way to describe it, or anything for that matter. My home, on its own, elicits my obsession with everything, and for my own compulsions for creativity, compulsions, creativity and confusion, and yes, even where and how all lights shine under the shade, I'm meticulous about having three copies of everything, three, 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 you see, and that he is super organized, so as in a movie, one of my lamps is a vintage film or stage play sort of spotlight, the lamp, the spotlight, it shines its light onto a pile of DVDs, and my movie collections, films I have produced, and maybe I never produced anything, I just don't know, my batch of brilliant sketches remains unfinished and incomplete people so many times say that I'm too smart for my own good that there is someone in there, inside me an undiscovered brilliant Tesla kind of multi-rounded physicist, inventor, har, all of this is common with all my whatever illnesses, as all of you shrinks, I'm sorry, but you have all dropped on me, labeled me, and why, to understand, who in his or her right mind can be understood, I don't even want to be understood, I like, I fucking love, the mystery of me, I seem to create this effect the so called side effect, har, of super organization and, are, my so called, self dubbed brilliant mind, I don't give a damn. I'm now just a nothing of a mere creature living in some dreamland, possibly none of this is, nor was, true to begin with, delusion, 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 fuck it, yeah, screw it, okay, none of it happened, like fucking fiction, fear of non-fiction my all telling entire tale, my alibiography, my entire novel this one is a literal collection of facts, of myself, I'm a documentarian of my whole life, minute by minute, moment by moment momentum, in short, all of my trophies relate to the bike racing awards, because I always wanted to do something, anything, athletics, and I never have, doc, it was and is all all of it and all in all, in the past, you know as much as I, that I'm stuck in the past, and ramble with my mouth's full, fuck, here's some self therapy, my alibi my defense, my mechanism. I bought the things in my life from someone else's life, so fuck me for it, but all at thrift store after thrift store I'm poor, I've created not only a false past but also another person's past, perhaps theirs was false too, why else would they sell their stuff, it's anonymous, and I love anonymous living, other people's lives therefore everyone else's pasts, because everything takes place in the past, someone else's life, are, duck. Come on, I wish you could see where and how I live, it's the same, picturesque pictures of the place, there, so I lied, so go right ahead, duck, and diagnose me with yet another distortion, perhaps present me with a proper pathetic pathological liar problem, go right ahead, we can probably laugh about it all later, my whole life, the people and places within it, my life story mine mine mine, all within my rationalized reality is just a pastiche of composite sketches the whole fucking thing everything, I never wanted to be everything, what I want is to be someone, so, 
Biscuit, Bagget, Rabbit, and Flappet, Gadget, Badget, Bagget Boom, the stationary bike has trophy-lined shelves alongside it, along with workout tapes and sports magazines and signed baseballs, a spinning metal fan refracting light blows air at a ceiling fan, which spins slowly above the wheels of the bike that spins slowly at the metal fan, I pass by the running shower, now steaming, I daydream in the shower, not minding when the soap slips, I don't wash my hair today, after all, you never look your best when you're about to encounter the one you've been waiting for all this your life, you're never fully prepared, and neither am I neither is anyone, no sex, just love, I mumble to myself, she must think of me as the friendly type, that's fine, I'm used to it, I enjoyed myself, that's all that matters, God probably delights in orchestrating me now, I'll chalk it up to personal growth, I'll never hear from Heidi or see her ever again, my mind runs wild with quiet confusion it feels so soothing to the senses, I'll wake up tomorrow, thinking about today, and the next day I'll think about today, and while I'm in love, I'll stop writing for the most part, I know it won't last forever, I'm in love I scoff at the thought, I love all this scoffing business, I'm closed captioned, projecting in HD, dear diary, I'm sleep deprived, should I be writing anything until you get sleep, of course I should, of course I should write more, sleep less, I'm a wise man, after all, a wise ass, like I always say, a narcissist the narcissist let me lose my mind, and let me find it, fuck it I'm going out for a walk on the beach, it's only a block away, the voices in my head are raging today, they're calling me a winner, do I believe them? I've already done enough damage in this lifetime, and I've paid for it, in triplicate but I'm okay, it's the others I'm worried about, it's all the chaos out there, I remember breaking up with her twice, that little princess, that unthinkable seductress, my perplexity, I have to vent a little, I just learned what June Gloom meant last week, after hearing Claudia talk about it, I've lived out here for five years, is that even a west coast term? I'll gloom and doom, what is it that I want, I have no idea how far I'm going to walk, am I really after happiness, the city built this pathway on the beach to encourage exercise, it's nice, the rain fell last night without a break, but it calmed down to a slight drizzle this morning, I look at my watch, I wait for time to pass, I wonder how far I'm going to walk, this walking is good, what else is, is that important to me, I think I'm a pretty giving guy, but, hey, I admit, there's a narcissist in there, too, I wonder if that's common, hell, in humans, anything is common, god, I'm getting blisters already, I wish I didn't smoke, I collapse on the beach and close my eyes, if I'm ever going to get to the point, I'll have to keep going over it and over it, again and again, until I reach perfection, that's where I'm stuck, Claudia, everybody, Claudia, 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 what's the next big thing, who will be the next big death, what about the next big technology, the next fad, or the next killer drug, I suck down another cigarette, I can't smoke in my office, this aristocratic little shytole office I often call my think tank is stifling me, I said I was frustrated, so what, I'm dying, the way I see it, I only have 15 more days to live my death is already scheduled somewhere between the 15th and the 25th of December this year, 
I definitely won't see the next year when it comes, if it comes, I won't even leave my twenties, I won't see, hear, taste, smell, or touch again, I won't remember or experience anything other than this, hell, I won't even exist, I have to write all this stuff down before it's too late, I don't know why I waited so long, anyway I guess I just didn't know any better, it has to be about me now, doesn't it? I can feel it the nausea, phlegm coughing, anxiety, paranoia, loneliness, bitterness, and nostalgia. I start to laugh hysterically at my own demise, it lasts for an hour, a fraction of my life, I knew I'd have an early death, since I was a kid, in fact, now I'm not even sure if my life was worth it, or if my death will be meaningful, or what, dear diary, I have the confidence to jump into the unknown. If I have a hard time landing on my feet, those around will catch me. I sure as hell hope they would the orange button I check into another hotel. I should have signed up for points when I first started staying here, but it would probably be just another hassle, another scam. I really can't stand all the junk mail that comes with membership. I get so confused with all the sign up forms, too. Maybe I'll sign up later. I'll ask at the front desk before I leave. The front desk clerk knows me, and my situation, I come and I go pretty often, my stays lack consistency, but who cares, I just need to get away again, I need a change of scenery, but even there, the same ghosts haunt me, I am addicted to change, even if it means coming back to something I've already done, somewhere I've already been, as long as it means I'll be switching gears, I'm happy, I'm in the same room I had before. The little orange button on the remote that says order in thin black letters is a good friend by now. I remove the top bedspread. I put toilet paper on the porcelain tank and try to make the tanning lotion look like it has never been used. I take down a washcloth and start fantasizing. That's why I come back here. Everything is at my disposal. I find myself drawing naked pictures for hours, staying up late at night pushing myself to the edge of insomnia, I'm half awake, I'm half baked, but I'm clean, I long ago lost the consistency, charm, and nonchalance of my youth, I perfected it, and it shattered right before my eyes, I was in my mid-twenties, somewhere, now I make a small effort to regain a sense of self-discipline, it's tough to get back into the swing of things, all my routines have shut down, can the paradoxes of life be worked out through some utilitarian calculus? Why didn't I get that far in school? Instead of history, they should have taught me how to be happy. Is this what being an adult is like for others? It's impossible to know no one would tell me the truth, and I couldn't tell it to them, either. I need a home, a home base, a starting point, a life lesson. I write in haste, racing the conclusion. I'm worried and paranoid. I don't want to be filmed, but there are spy cams everywhere, through the spy camera's eye, I can see my funeral from above, like in a dream with some friends who might show up for it, I'm outside myself, but still in self, there's a lot of 80s music, a dance, Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, I make a cameo on a video screen and tell everybody how much it hurts to die, I send them my greetings and let them know I'm watching them from the other, dead, Side, I prepared for this, sort of, people put things in my coffin, a cell phone, letters, pornography, and paraphernalia, 
then they raid my house. They take keepsakes to remember me by, or just to have. Afterwards, they ask what really happened to me. I died without a will because I had too much else to do. My lack of will leaves everyone angry and betrayed. It's an open coffin, and my eyes are open. The paramedics caught me in the nude and didn't leave me a tip. My heart was bleeding. I said no pictures. Everyone will promptly forget my life and times. Who knew it? Anyway, I'll live on only in the hearts of others. They will make me immortal but who cares about immortality? Not me. My consciousness is gone, and I've left all my worries behind. Dead, I dwell in some other dimension, maybe even the fifth. I like the fifth it welcomes me back whenever I revisit. I haven't been back in a while, not since the CJ Webank incident. Two guardian angels comfort me, and so I walk around the earth like everyone else. I'm really dead though, whether it looks like it or not. Sometimes, I question whether I ever even existed. Then all my memories start over again. If I have memories, I must have existed. Okay, okay. So I'm rambling again. Dr. C just listens. I don't feel anything. I can't seem to shut my mouth. I still can't find my house keys. I don't like the idea of a hider key. I was already robbed once. It took me a while to recover. My house is a mess. Anyway, that's why I'm always trying to get away fast. I like it here at the hotel. Everything is at my fingertips. Everything is fast. The service, the food, the women just like fast times. Love, though love can't always be rushed. I've seen examples of how fast things destroy people and put them in debt. It's a modern concept. I'm thankful I have some money and a rich family. There's nothing like saving a relationship with your parents. What am I going to do with all this damn time, though? Dear diary, my obsessions are a state of mind, so I make them good broken heart to jubilee enough was enough. Enough coffee and cigarettes, enough drugs, sugar, weight gain, hard liquor, beer enough sex and self for me. For a while enough habits and addictions, fears and phobias, money and resentment. Enough everything. Thinking too little about the consequences, I took a drive up to Fat and Palatial Tent in Palos Verde. Just to say, listen, baby, I'm through. I'm finished, this fat and wasn't and the bartender from way back whenever, in my old drinking days back in Manhattan. This fat and was my good friend, the quirky little alternative pagan that she was. My little starlet song Bert, I wanted to tell her face to face, since she knew me better than I knew myself, that I'd been diagnosed with something. It could have been anything a little in-between disease, some kind of otherwise not specified junk, and she showed the most compassion and sympathy of anyone I knew at the time. This fat Anne was a woman confident in her obesity. She was assertive and feministic, a neo-fashion slut. She was just another Lane Bryant eBay bidder. I met her at the local Tourette support group. She was a lesbian, and her tics were top-notch. She had a better finger stretch than my retarded little wing and a headbanger blast that far exceeded my beef oven. We shared a common madness we were both attacked by a constant flow of imps. But still, Fat Anne was destined to disappoint me too, in the long run. As I was leaving her pad, she looked at me darkly and said, Georgie, you know what, you're selfish, more than you realize, and I don't want to be your friend anymore. Anyway. Thanks for stopping by. 
it saved me from writing you an email, Amber Circus called my cell as I drove back home, I refused to take her call, so she left a voice message, did you get the bad news from Anne yet, call me back, you never call me, bye, fat Anne was my best friend, she was one of those temporary friends I'd take for everything I could get until the bridge between us broke, I gave her things, too, like my heart, like rent money but, all sappiness aside, I'd be better off just admitting the worst in me, and fat and knew it, I dreamed last night that I was at a benefit dinner with four women I was sexually involved with, then, this princess, a mysteriously recurring dream character known to me only as Lisette, approached and said, could you sleep with me, or do you want to stay here with them the others in the ballroom looked at me, I looked at the others at my table, they smoked their cigarettes and sipped sake. I replied to Lucette with disdain, yeah, I'd like to stay with them, I said, Lucette was acting like me, the way I acted in Claudia's real life, I was always checking to see if Claudia would fuck me, just one more time, and then one more time after that, I knew she couldn't love me, what an ass, I can't stand myself, at home, my bed is broken from all the bouncing it has done with whoever would do it with me it sure wasn't Claudia's fault. I start to cry, letting out the little angst-ridden baby inside me. Crying is the best therapy. How silly of me, trying to find a love that would last. I woke up, suffering from an excess of emotion and exaggerated sensitivity to everything wrong, in my mind, in my fat, bloated stomach, my sense of self and my sick, desperate attraction to taboo and sex define me. My expectations are inflated. I'm self-indulgent. What do I need? Those new ages tell me to overcome my selfishness through self-discipline. To know life by knowing, really knowing, myself. I look to Georgie Gust for that. He's more myself than I'm. I spend another night at the hotel, grateful for the cold air of the room. The heat, dampness, and darkness of home my private hell have suffocated me inside a self I can hardly bear. There's no need to sympathize with me, however. I feed on this solitude, I revel in it, I know little of anything else, my racing thoughts are tied up in knots, the depression and angst, the schizoaffective, mind-losing, self-deprecating, self-induced hell of my head, the hallucinations and hypocrisy, leave just room enough for me to get to be a better man, these are only thoughts, they are not the word of God or anything, so I don't worry. I light another cigarette and listen to the neighbors drinking beer outside, what a smooth intro, I broke up with Melanie last night, our obsession lasted only two weeks then our passion for each other cooled down to mere indifference, on a good note, I got to sleep all day and received no phone calls, I'm pathetic, you might as well hate me, but I need this outlet, mock me, anger me, and put me to shame, until then, dear diary, of course I talk to myself, often, I need expert advice dialogue with self, after the funeral, Georgie, Georgie, Georgie when did you first realize that you don't really matter, that I don't really matter, when I first realized that if you only live once, you only die once, there's a difference, yes, to live life to the fullest is to appreciate life to make babies and babes, and to trust others, to live life fully is to love, to work hard and play hard, to take advantage of every moment, and you don't really believe in all that stuff, well, 
You know that saying life's a bitch and then you die. But there are a lot of good things in life, too. A lot of good, sweet things. A lot of sweetness to suck out of life's sour bitterness. Of course, you take advantage of the good times and make them happen. You create those scenarios. Yes, but what about love? The pornographic puzzle. Where will I find love? At the bar? At work? No, I don't work. I don't have to. I don't want to. I just want to find love. Maybe you should work. What? Work? Maybe you should. And be judged worthless. Work for money and be paid like shite. And then be treated like a baby treats a dirty diaper? Parenthetical pet peeve. People who throw used diapers on the ground after changing their baby in public. The getting paid part shouldn't mean a thing to you. You already have a lot of money. But I have no friends. Meet them at work. Work. You could volunteer. Charity. I'm so selfish. And nobody's ever helped me. That's not true. I've always paid for help. Paid for friends. Paid for hookers. I've always paid for everything. My sole means of support is money. Sometimes I just want my life to end sometimes. Now. Or soon. I am sick. Sick. Sick and tired. I mean. I am just holding out to see if things get any better on their own, without me having to do anything. Why don't you just get out of yourself for once? But myself doesn't even know how to take care of itself. How can I leave myself all alone? Faith? Fuck faith. You think with faith that shite will be less smelly. It's always going to be shitty. I mean smelly, rancid. Why must you always bring up excrement, Georgie? Because that's what I think of myself. I think I'm shite. I think shite is funny. And it happens like me. I like to be treated like shite. Ugly women turn me on. Good one, Georgie. They are my possibilities. What are your probabilities? I have many moods. Invisibleness. Despair. Morbid melancholy. Mystical terror. 18th century angst. And that dull, somber depression you read about in 19th century Russian novels. Moods. I go through many mood swings, and that means there's always the possibility that anything can happen, but probably, not, interesting, but what if you could change things, believe me, I can't, you can't change things to your liking, right, I've been trying that, ever since the start of thing the start of things and me, things have been there, ever since the start of me, change yourself, change the things around you, if you can. But remember the serenity prayer, remember not to think too much, too hard, don't be too hard on yourself, and above all, don't be so hard on me, you really do need me, oh yeah, and respect your thoughts, have you got that now, is that perfectly clear, good, don't worry, other people are hard on me anyway, so I don't need to be, that's only the way you perceive it, but that's why I don't really matter, I just chatter, and clutter. It makes me sadder. See, my thoughts don't really matter now, do they? Have you ever been butt fucked? Wholesomely used? No. Honestly? Yes. Is your mind racing and wondering now? Yes. Do you feel alone and invisible now? Yes. That must be my fault. But why do you think I care to ask about you? Because you are me, but you're not thinking my thoughts. I'm thinking yours, but my dialogue is mine. It's independent of you, so I don't need to worry about censoring and editing my thoughts, or do I? 
The things in my head are nothing especially unusual or of any vital importance, are they? They are unique to you. When you think for yourself, for example, like you are now. But I still see what you're saying. Being noticed and recognized is important. Striving for personal achievement, if nobody else knows about it, really is pretty worthless, unless you're invisible and alone. Loneliness doesn't have to bring despair. In all those old photos of you, you're smiling all the time, whether you're alone or with other people. And the you in those photos is an independent idea. You're just a cause with and without a reason and with a reason, all the same. It's sort of existential, isn't it? They are just images of you like the pictures in your imagination. So you might as well enjoy them. Smile. Laugh at them. Laugh at you. For God's sake. Yes, I know. Generally speaking, I'd say I should look for my self-worth and not fight against it. It's got to be in there somewhere, anyway, right? If you can imagine it. And I can. I know I can. But you, your life used to be so full. And now you're so easily hurt. Maybe I'm a case of what they call hopeless romanticism. My mind is starting to scatter. I'm losing my touch. I'm losing my grip. I am sorry. I don't drink anymore. I only smoke. Everything is becoming a cliche. My life especially I'm becoming just words, just writing. All that's left of me is a metaphor. What matters most my past is disappearing. It's depressing, isn't it? Calm down calm down, Georgie. Tell me, what do you want? I want to be able to spend more of my money and affluence to make more of it to create with it. I want to have enough motivation to connect with another woman on a loving and sexual level. That's what is most important to me. I've never been in love, mutual love, reciprocated love. I've been addicted addicted to the lie of love but that's all. Do you love yourself? Hell yes and hell no. It depends on my mood and whom I'm with and what's going on around me. What about right now? Now is just not important. Only the past is. What if the now is important? And what if the future is? To both of them then what? What? Are they important then? No because I don't know. If you could choose to make them important, would you? Yes. Why? For others. So, what you do is not entirely selfish, then. It really is, though. What I do for others, I do for me. You sound so ridiculous. No, I sound brilliant. You like that about yourself, don't you? You think that you really are brilliant? Parenthetical pet peeve, blind conformity. I like that I don't have to conform to public knowledge or even leave my house to figure out most of the big puzzle. It makes me different. I do, however, hate having to be a philosopher because the answer to everything is so simple. Because there is no answer there are only questions. Everything is constantly in question, and from new questions, new answers are formed new theories. The answer is, there is no end to ideas. Our imagination is somehow infinite. All right, then, let's talk about love. If you want love then your next lover, the next one coming, she must be different, but still like you. Is that correct? No, not like me. She really has to like me. That's all if she ever comes, and love you, I will love her, I guarantee it, are you thinking again of excrement, you got it, focus, no, does that bother you, no, but I wish it did, it's a part of my condition, okay, okay, no, it's not okay, right, 
your thoughts are not the word of God, to quote yourself, right? And I stole that from somewhere, anyway, there's nothing original here. What is original? Billions of people have existed and not existed already. Of course there are no original thoughts left. Human imagination has been experienced in all its fullness, and it will keep being that way for a while, to to full. It's impossible to articulate all the thoughts you think, some you just need to keep to yourself, especially when the mind is working at top speed. But, all in all, I just can't figure myself out. There's this woman. If you can't figure yourself out, try figuring somebody else out for a change. There's so much else to worry about. There's no need to worry about yourself all the time. How am I supposed to make time for more figuring out in my life? I think you're scared. Of course I'm. Because you don't know what might happen if you stop thinking about yourself. It has got to be better than this, this fucked up life. Well, if nothing I say will help, why don't you just wait until your next mood swing? No, wait come back. Come back. That sucks. We're not finished yet. You're abandoning me. I'm abandoning myself. If I stop thinking of me, will I still exist? Halloween Georgie's brain starts to process thoughts again. Strange images are formed. Strange voices whisper to him. Is happiness what you're really striving for? Do you even know what you want? The ultimate goal is freedom, the desert island disco, activities and relationships to pick and choose from. Are you in love? Do you really know what you need? What makes you feel good? Do you smile sometimes because it's ethical? Your thoughts are full of the things you loathe. But are these things a part of your life? You're a lifetime member of society. You're also a lifetime member of a gym. You have a gift. You are a talented individual. You owe it to the world. You owe it to the world and to yourself to share your talent. People are telling him this kind of crap all the time. Everything seems so melodramatic. You're more than stressed out. You don't have depression. You feel worse than shite. It's only the symptoms of anxiety. It's all in your head. You think you have too many memories and consider them symptoms of despair. Everything your memory collects is buried in the depths of nostalgia. Your life seems like an insipid gathering of heaped up time. Others try to tell you you're fine. You think they are fucking with you. You always knew you were different. So did everyone else. You take medication. You used to call it medicine. Your meds might need adjustment. It's okay now to tell people what drugs you're really on. You reveal yourself in deja vu. So it all ends abruptly. You have a few good friends. Most good people do. All of them fail to be there for you when you need them most. They make you who you are, in all your fullness, they called you an old soul. You consider being brand new, you are constantly trying to change your life. You spend most of the time only talking about the changes you want to make. You fail to make a full commitment to anything and follow through 100% conform to a little popularity. Read the latest bestseller. Make sure it's a self-help book. Do the exercises they suggest. Create your day. It's that simple. You analyze everything. You should be dating somebody else. You give and take too much. Try moderation. You complain about big corporations and the government. You continue to pay them because you have to. You leave your past behind. It starts creeping back in again already. You think you live in a fairy tale. You think life is cliched. You don't really think you will ever die. You might start thinking about everything soon, something concrete, 
something hard, something personal. I'm not talking about you. Does this crap really ever stop? Dear diary, today, I release any feelings of self-rejection the new way to feed solitude in the end. I wonder what all of this really means. Maybe this man is a hero. He's stuck in the misery of self. He didn't mean for it to happen like this. It's not his fault, really. He's confused he doesn't have a stable self. He doesn't have any real identity. He just wants his own version of who he is. It doesn't really matter what the others think. He thinks in the long run. His attempts to find a new way to feed his solitude and also feed a desire to find something of his own. But the desire needs to be in control of the man, not the man in control of the desire. He just wants solitude. He just wants to be left alone. But loneliness doesn't permit the expression of emotions. The emotions just build up inside. Dark emotions rise to the surface jealousy and hatred. He craves a resolution to his internal quest of self. He's facing of self alone. The mechanism to grab hold of this missing self would need to come from something that's already there. His affection for self-knowledge can instinctively be turned around to express thoughtful affection towards another person, but he is ruled only by narcissistic desire. At first, he couldn't even see others as the unique beings they really were. Others were only an opportunity to release his negative feelings. A vacuum grew in the place where real communication should happen. By relaxing, taking things slow, and teasing himself not expecting much he finally gained time for his sensuality to grow, producing all the best connections to happiness. He hinted at things more than once, certain things, some things hinted at themselves, he couldn't contain them, his mind was near collapse, his nostalgia, his ideas of the past make up for everything in the moment and beyond. He can finally release it and let it go for good. What already happened has happened. The possibilities for the future are filled with meaning and substance. What was probable becomes possible. And in this new discovery, he realizes that everything is genuine everything. What really happened, what was imagined, what was perceived and experienced, everything. They define who this man finds himself to be. He's as imperfect, as selfish, as selfless as loving, as probable, and as possible as anybody else as everybody else. He becomes this man this affectionate, sympathetic, genuine individual for other people. We jump to conclusions, we criticize, and we move on. We're doing the best we can. You're not alone. Like I said in the beginning, you're doing just fine. Dear diary, today, I feel open-hearted, kind and compassionate, for once is this a new beginning. The self-proclaimed narcissist and introvert, the author, finally has a realistic idea. Skittish horse that he is, he returns from the restroom, parenthetical pet peeve, air dryer machines instead of paper towels in public restrooms. He takes his seat by the window in the front row. They still haven't announced takeoff yet. He has a clear plastic cup of diluted OJ and a bottle of water. He downs them fast. He thinks... How lucky I'm to be sitting in first class. It was a free upgrade, since his original flight never made it to the airport. There were mechanical problems. A strange woman takes the aisle seat. Hi, you don't have to move. Don't worry, don't move. I'm fine in the aisle. I prefer to be the one who moves out of the way for any bathroom goers. I've got a big bladder, myself, Georgie says. 
I just thought no one else was coming at this point, don't worry about it, if you have to go, I'll move, don't worry about it, at least she isn't some stinky old man, he looks at his overgrown fingernails, and puts his hand out, my name is Georgie, hi Georgie, I'm Maggie Fox, she shakes his hand, you've got a firm grip, Georgie, yeah, I love to fly, well, we've only got an hour or so, it's not so bad, no, not bad at all, and so a simple man is boring, his name is Georgie Gust, he's an hallucination, he's all that I'm today, for now, forever, for whatever reason, he's what we're after sometimes an overload of stimuli from the environment just gets in the way, what if he keeps in touch with this woman after the flight, what is Georgie thinking, what if he gets her number and actually tries to pick her up, the flight hasn't started, and already Georgie's mind is racing, the events of the past year bombard him with an urgent pressure, so he just sits there, thinking, he remembers how pathetic everything has been since he became an adult, he remembers the transition he felt within himself when he transformed from an asshole little kid into a guilty and responsible abuser of waste, it's so easy to make fun of this guy, now he really doesn't feel like going home, ever. Maggie is already buried in the current issue of People Weekly. The attendants collect the pre-flight drinks and announce the takeoff procedures. Georgie looks out the window. We fly on, even through the storms, and we're fine, he thinks. Everything is okay. We're here now, and everything's cool. I never thought anything good would last, but I'm holding on to this. I can't slow down my pathetic little life, just to think about things. I don't have time to regroup and analyze, I was caught up in a stupefying sexual obsession and a mind-bending paralysis, it was fun while it lasted, though, perplexity is that awareness you have at the worst moment of any mental suicide attempt, when everything's confused and at times too heavy, I'm experiencing it right now, just slow down, and take it easy, I hear, who's talking, Georgie or Dr. C, stop thinking, just stop, feel the blood run through your hands, your feet your body, that's what matters, now, get rest and get out of here, I'm awake and I step outside, the sunrise is magnificent, the sand on the beach absorbs the bright light as it intensifies, turning pink, I glance back for a moment and remember Georgie, I think of all the excuses I made just to get over someone I thought was the perfect match for me, it was a big mistake, but completely necessary, she was a nice woman, but we weren't made for each other, so what, I'm alone, now and again, and it's all right now, who is this voice you keep talking about Claudia asked over dinner one night, they're just thoughts, I told her, I think of Georgie, he can really be overbearing, sometimes, dear Claudia, I know the voice is really my own, I am sorry it didn't work out between us, the rest is history, Yours truly, Benjamin J. Scriber, Georgie Gus Dear Diary, right now, my self-esteem is strong, stronger than usual and strange but true part 6, rest in peace support this troop so what do you want to talk about today, Ben asks Dr. C nothing, I say, only I don't really say it, the two of us are alone in the room for now, does Dr. C hear it, anyway, you look sad today, I shrug, anything going on asks Dr. C. I shake my head, silence, Georgie appears through my light tears, tell her, 
he says. Tell her about the clock ticks. I decide to say something, even if it's wrong. Well, did I tell you about the jogger Georgie shoots darts in my eyes? Not that he silently screams. What jogger? You mean Dr. C nods. The one who ran every day Christmas, New Year's? The one who always wore the same clothes, no matter what the weather? The one who ran every day, all day, past your mother's house, and only you saw him? Parenthetical pet peeve, choosing a two-piece outfit or shoes in the store, only to find that the sizes don't match. Georgie sinks back into despair. I nod. What about him? Dr. C asks. Nothing about him. Georgie interrupts. Dr. C doesn't hear anything. There's more silence. 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 But Georgie won't let the whole hour be quiet. Silence is just too awful. Did you want to talk about the jogger? Dr. C nudges. Not really, I say. There's a long pause. Finally, I say, I always thought he was doing my mother, that he was her lover. No, duck, just doing her. That's interesting. Not really. Georgie wants to scream. Ask her why. Why is it interesting? I shift in my chair. I cross and uncross my legs. Finally, I ask, why Dr. C's eyebrows rise just slightly? Why is it interesting? I nod. Dr. C hesitates. Silence. The silences are killing Georgie. Without noise, he might not exist. Make it stop he screams. Well, says Dr. C, if I'm remembering correctly, didn't you tell me that the jogger was young? A college student, maybe? I think you said I nod. So what I say? Well, considering her age at the time, continues Dr. C, that would have made the jogger young enough to be her son I nod again. But I say nothing, and didn't you tell me that he ran silently, that nobody in the neighborhood even knew his name, that you were the only one in your whole family that ever even saw him I nod, still, I say nothing, finally, Georgie, or me, can't stand the silence any longer, I called him Mr. Clean, I say, Dr. C's face pales, hum, that's interesting, Ben, Dr. C says without conviction. That's very interesting to me. What, Mr. Clean? I ask. It's just a name, it's a bathroom cleaner. You know, like the big bald guy with the earring, who cleans like a white tornado, or something. No, Ben, not just the name. Dr. C swallows a frog in her throat, or a toad, or something. The whole thing your mother and the jogger and you, and the fact that only you see them. Now, that's interesting. Dear diary, oh hell. I love and respect myself, why not, maybe I just think too much, who knows, the past keeps crawling up on me, so I just keep writing demons there are demons in Ben's bedroom, demons that make his dresser snap, crackle, and pop when he's trying to sleep at night, he lies alone in his bed, in his solitary bedroom, and he tries to sleep, but he can't because of the demons. He tosses and turns beneath the silver and brown brocade bedspread, and wonders how long he has before the demons take over completely. When he first moved into his new apartment, the demons only played in the living room. But when they got bored of the living room, the demons played in his office, too. They'd make his computer shut down and start up again in the middle of the night, when nobody was there. Ben would be lying in bed, just trying to sleep and the chime of the computer starting up and shutting down would wake him up, 
like some crazy alarm clock that only rings when you don't want it to or like a wake-up call you don't want to take. The demon computer got so terrible that Ben finally unplugged it before going to sleep, just to throw the demons off track. And that should have taken care of the problem, Ben thinks. But it didn't stop the demons. The computer still came on and shut down, all by itself. Then the demons moved into the bathroom. They made the lights flash on and off without flipping the switches, and they made the shower run hot and cold without turning on the faucet. Some people, not Ben, though, not Georgie, would have taken all this demonic activity as a sinister signal, a satanic eviction notice, or at least a slightly unsubtle excuse to look for another apartment. All Ben did, all Ben could do, was buy crystals and sage from the psychic shop down the street and start looking online for an exorcist. Finally, he found a new age exorcist who was ready to take the job, for a modest fee, of course, a Reverend Jezebel S. Constanza, exorcism specialist. Reverend Constanza drove up from La Jolla, took one look at how Ben lived, and tripled the usual market price of exorcism. So Ben spent $3,000 for Reverend Constanza to sprinkle sage around the baseboards, place crystals in the northeast corners of all the rooms, and tell Ben he needed his aura cleansed, which she would be happy to do for another $3,000. Ben was slightly disgruntled at the price. After all, it was just a routine exorcism and everyday demon cleansing, but he paid anyway. Even though he knew the markup wouldn't have occurred if he lived in a two-floor walk-up over on 7th Avenue. But living where he did, in a high-rent district overlooking the Pacific, Reverend Constanza thought she could take him. She thought she could both jack up the price and feed his paranoia, and she was right. Still, the whole pitiful scam made Ben mad, especially since, if anything, the demons were even worse than ever, afterwards, and they still are. Ben lies in bed, late at night, trying to get some sleep, and instead of counting sheep, Ben watches the ceiling fan above his bed spin on and off by itself. He listens to the TV sputter as if electricity coursed through it and only static spat out. It wouldn't be so bad, Ben thinks, if I wasn't so alone so god am fucking alone day in, day out day in, night out, if I could have someone else here, dealing with these demons with me. But Ben's alone with his demons, not like Georgie, who is out every night with different women, parenthetical pet peeve, power outages. Georgie, it seems, has dedicated himself to the purpose of getting over Claudia. Georgie, it seems lately, is absolutely manic about overcoming her but not Ben. Ben, it seems, can't do much of anything at all except lie in bed, awake, in the middle of the goddamn night and listen to the demons who have overtaken his world, or at least repossessed his electronics. Dear Diary, I successfully released some actually many feelings of self-rejection today. Until next time Georgie and Dr. C at the next session, only Georgie shows up? Does Dr. C even ask where Ben is? Does she even notice who is missing? Probably not, Georgie's frantic. He pisses. He can't sit still or even just lie quietly on the couch. He's going out of his fucking mind, crawling out of his damn skin. Dr. C just watches him, curiously. Who is he, Ben, when he isn't Ben she wonders. Where is he, Ben, when he isn't Ben? Hell, she knows she has to know, 
after all these sessions, but Georgie can't stand to be watched, he avoids her eyes, he swallows continuously, he sniffs, ticks, and hops, you look agitated, she tells him, agitated Georgie jumps, me, agitated looks like a visitor from another world that's how Georgie looks, can you just sit still she asks, or lie down on the couch because he's so passive, so submissive, so suggestible, Georgie sits down right away on Dr. C's couch, but he immediately pops back up again, no, he says, I can't, Dr. C smiles, what's going on she asks, why are you so agitated agitated, me Georgie repeats, why do you ask, why, nothing is going on, or else, everything is going on, how can I answer a question like that, I can't, I really can't decide, I can't decide what's going on, what isn't going on how can I decide, I can't fucking decide, he whimpers, just don't ask me questions like that, okay, questions I can't answer, parenthetical pet peeve, people who laugh at or ridicule people or things they don't understand instead of asking questions and learning something, finally, Georgie stops ranting, and Dr. C lets the silence follow, finally, there's only silence, and silence again, the silence is fucking killing Georgie, it makes his head throb, he needs a temple massage, badly or a foot rub, he needs somebody to touch him, to stroke him, and to break the silence, he needs somebody to love him, he needs somebody to love to truly love, not like all the women, how many have there been, sucking his dick, his balls, and his ass, fucking him, and getting themselves off on him, he needs somebody, finally, who really loves him, somebody who can see beyond what he pretends to be and what they pretend he is somebody who will really touch his soul, that's what he really needs, and that's what he'll never have, the passing thought, the depressing realization, spirals him downward, I need my meds, he thinks, where are his meds when he needs them, at home, he thinks, that's where, but if they were here, he would take them he sees himself swallowing pill after pill, bottle after bottle, peace, he needs peace, dear diary, I feel emotionally centered and balanced today, overall mother ghost Ben shares his bedroom with the resident demons, the lights flicker on and off, the TV set goes on and off, on and off, like a strobe light all by itself, Ben's not doing it, Ben's not making it happen, and he just can't take it, and even worse, his mother angel older woman, Claudia, Heidi, Claudia, comes to him at night, she pushes the hair off his forehead and strokes his hand, you need to move, baby, she says, Ben groans, he rolls over on his side, I'm not going anywhere, the older woman climbs into bed with him, she strokes his back and tickles him, you need to move, baby, Ben climbs out of bed, the older woman his mother, his angel, his lover is just an illusion, a hallucination, in other words, she's not real, and the whispering voices in his head her voice, so soothing, so insistent they aren't real, either, are they, Dr. C, tell me they're not, Dr. C, he brushes his teeth, he stares at his reflection in the mirror, his hair is dirty, and he could use a shave, he ducks his head, spits into the sink, and straightens up again, his angel, his mother, his lover is standing there behind him she's smiling into the mirror at him, this house isn't good for you, baby, she says, 
How is he supposed to listen to an illusion? Better to listen to his perplexity. He tries to just ignore her, but it isn't easy. She pokes the back of his head, hard. She tells him, I'm not an illusion. He continues the attempt to ignore her. You're not going to be able to ignore me forever, she says. Maybe not forever, Ben thinks, but for as long as I need to. And how long is that going to be his illusion asks. How the hell is he supposed to get the voices out of his head when they can read his every thought, when they know what he's thinking even before he does, not every voice, she says, just me, and trust me, Benji, you need to move out of this house, she pauses for dramatic effect, it's haunted, the demon mother snickers, I know, because I'm haunting it, he knew it, he knew it all along, the fucking place really is haunted, with demons he asks. With memories, she tells him, he would rather have demons, who wouldn't she says, memories are so much harder to get rid of, Ben twitches and ticks, bobbing his head to the right and then the left and then forward, he raises his right eyebrow and grimaces, you don't like memories, do you, baby you're just an illusion, only a hallucination, Georgie silently screams, I don't have to listen to you, because you're not real. Still twitching and tixing madly, he heads into the kitchen for an energy drink. His illusion follows right behind. T.S. Kate's the entire way. Caffeine, she says, is the absolute worst thing for ticking. I know that, Ben says, sniffing. He sniffs so hard that he seriously worries, for a second, that his brains will leak right out of his ears. Stupid, 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 his illusion says. Shut up. Ben tells her, but she ignores him, first, she says, yeah don't have brains, yeah have a brain, and it won't leak out yeah ears from sniffing, the only way it'll leak out is if yeah decide to shoot yourself in the head, then it'll leak out, that's for sure, out yeah ears, out yeah nose do yeah wanna try his illusion is even crazier than he is, it figures, doesn't it, John Nash gets a CIA operative for his illusion, Ben gets a cross between Carol Kane and Sandra Bernhardt, neither of whom appeal to him sexually, and neither are the least bit emotionally stable. His illusion, dressed in white gossamer, appears directly in front of him. Is she some kind of succubus, or incubus, or whatever? Which one is which? He can't remember. She clears her throat. What I said, she says, is, would you like to try okay, okay, okay now he knows she's an illusion. Now he knows she is not real, which means that he's on dangerous ground. The more you talk to an illusion, a hallucination, the stronger it becomes. And still he can't help himself. Shut up. Just shut up he tries to tell himself. But the words are out of his mouth before he's had a chance to think. Try what he asks. His illusion, his gossip the mother angel hands him a blue steel, white grip .38 special. Blowing your head off, she says. Watching your brain leak out your nose and ears. Yeah wanna try it, Ben. Yeah really wanna she presses the gun into his hands. Nobody'll know, she says. Yeah all alone. Who's to know she is the devil? She's a demon? Ben tells himself. He's got to stop talking to her. He's got to stop listening to her or she'll catch him in her spell. And she will kill him. So Ben backs away from the apparition letting the gun slip from his hands down to the floor. His angel demon mother picks it up. She presses the sleek, 
cold blue steel grip back into his hands again and smiles at him. He just now notices her crooked teeth. They are yellow and snaggled, sharp-edged. Her crooked teeth scare him. He shudders. He fights the urge to hop first on his left foot, then on his right. First left, then right. Like reading left to right, left to right. He's going to hop. He's going to tick. He's got to. He's going to. The teeth, the breath they're his mother's and that's his mother's lipstick smeared on the enamel. His mother scares him. She's always scared him. But somehow, he just can't get rid of her. He just can't get away from her. He wants to go home. But he is home. There's nowhere left to go. Why not? Why not pick up the gun? Wasn't it his mother who always said to him, Benji, if ya wanna check out, now, remember, check out fast. No drugs. No hanging yourself. Ya jump, Benj from the 32nd floor. And y'all never live to tell about it, then she laughs, she screeches, she cackles, and Ben knows now his mother was a witch, she had these long, pointed fingers, her nails were always filed sharp, like claws, they were always grabbing at him, digging into his flesh, is she really dead, Ben wants to know, or only living dead, Ben prays, oh lord, please hear my prayer, kill her, lord, kill her so I don't have to, please. Lord, don't make me kill my own mother, and then Ben flashes back to another memory of his mother, there in the Hamptons, it's 1987, and Ben is 11 years old, mom has gotten heavier, this year she's up to 250 pounds, at least, she wears this massive, red striped bathing suit with a white gossamer cover up, she floats, bounces, and glumps into his bedroom, night after night, she's crying, always crying, yeah don't know what it's like, Benji, yeah really don't know what it's like when yeah husband decides to leave yeah, he loves his mother, he really doesn't want to see her cry, he will do whatever she needs to get her to stop crying, stop crying, he sits up in bed, the blanket slipped from his skinny, naked, 11 year old chest, his mother is sprawled at the end of the bed, sobbing, he's leaving me, Benji, she moans, He's loving me. I just know, mother, don't cry, he begs. Please don't cry, please. She creeps him out. She makes him shudder but she is his mother. She buries her head in her hands. She sobs. He sees her giant bosom heaving. She sobs and heaves. And Ben watches. He watches the sleeves of her nightgown slip off her bare shoulders, exposing the top of her breast, the massive brown areola. He doesn't know what to do. He can't remember ever seeing her breasts before. He wants her to cover them back up. But she's crying, crying and she won't stop. What'll I do? Benji she pleads. Where will I go? He hates to hear his mother cry. It's worse than hearing his sister cry. And almost as bad as hearing his father cry. Mothers shouldn't cry, he thinks. They should be happy, happy always. He's the only man I ever loved. Benji, she whimpers. What am I gonna do? Ben doesn't know what she's going to do next. He just wishes she'd cover her breasts. He doesn't want to see them. He shouldn't have to see them. They are gross and too big and scary. My mother's breasts are scary. And the only man who ever touched me, she moans, like that. Oh, Benji. Ben thinks about his father touching his mother. He thinks about the poor and mags and all those exposed pussies, those wide open pussies. 
And he, he thinks about his father touching his mother like that, there. He thinks about his father fucking his mother, and putting that there. It's gross. Oh God, it's gross. Ben knows it's gross. But he is still getting a heart on. He can feel it tenting his pajama bottoms. He wishes his mother would leave. Just go away. Go away, mother. Instead, she flops to her stomach across the bed. Her hand rests on Ben's thigh. Her fingers are cold, her nails sharp. Ben can feel them scratching, tattooing his skin. Groinology. They are massaging his legs, working their way up there moving towards his balls, his dick is shaft. Oh god she's touching that. He groans. Ben tries to move away, but his mother's hand holds him tight. She begins to stroke him. Your father, she says, was the only man who ever touched me. Her voice drops. Sexually. I mean, Ben wants his mother to stop, but he's paralyzed, it's like he's turned to stone he can't talk, he can't move, not even when his mother slithers up his body, not even when his mother's naked breasts smash against his bare chest, not even when she kisses his neck and drags her tongue across his bare skin, and slides her mouth down his chest, to his belly, to his cock, not even when she takes him in her mouth and begins sucking on him. And not even when, a few seconds later, he comes with a spasm and a shudder that shakes his entire body, leaving him ashamed and humiliated, wishing he was dead. Even then, Ben can't say a word, he can't even move a muscle, it's like he's dead invisible, he's floating high above the world. He watches his mother discreetly cough into her hand and deposit the prepubescent cum she's sucked from him onto her fingers. Oh, my, she says tugging the straps of her nightgown back over her shoulders, oh my, and Ben, still floating high above the whole world, doesn't know why she's saying, oh my, oh my like that, he doesn't know why she keeps repeating herself, he doesn't know why she won't leave and go back to her own room, she slides off the bed, she readjusts her nightgown, she flips her hair behind her ears, Benji, she says, what we did right now I don't want you thinking there was anything wrong with that, I was just giving you a bit of relief, okay, honey Ben still can't talk, the thing is, though, baby his mother stops, she bites her lips, lowers her brow still searching, Ben thinks, for just the right word, his mother's like that, she always wants exactly the right word, so, okay, she finally says, the thing is, some people your father included don't always understand how things are between mothers and sons. So, I'm not saying don't tell anyone. I am just saying you probably should be kind of careful about who you do tell because I know you, Benji. And I know how you never want anyone to disapprove of you. His mother waits, then adds, or be mad, parenthetical pet peeve. People who start a conversation with, I don't mean this the wrong way. But or I'm telling you for your own good, Ben says nothing. His stomach is in knots, remembering how it feels, when people disapprove of you, when somebody is mad at you when nobody is happy with him, or not even talk to you anymore, Ben can't take it, he starts crying, for God's sake, Benji, lighten up, his mother says, then she takes his nose between her fingers and twists, affectionately, but it hurts, Ben's tears fall harder. His mother, her nightgown slipping from her shoulder again, bounces out of the room, lighten up, baby, 
Life is just too fucking short to go through it all hang dog. Know what I'm saying and then she's gone. The room is quiet and Ben can't stop thinking about her. Mother, I did that with my mother, or she did that to me. He thinks about how his mother goes to every single one of his little league games, and he thinks about how she bakes chocolate brownies from scratch, and makes fudge sundaes with vanilla ice cream and hot fudge sauce. He remembers how on his ninth birthday she took him and three of his friends to McDonald's, and then over to Coney Island, even though she said that nothing but niggers and spicks ever went to Coney Island these days. He remembers how his mother, when she bandages his knees, kisses them with her mouth open, to suck out the germs, slathers them with medicine, and then sticks colored band-aids all over them. She's a good mother, Ben thinks. A mother who loves me, a mother who takes good care of me. She doesn't smack me around like my buddy Luke's mother. I'm lucky, Ben thinks. I have a mother who loves me like that. Finally, Ben falls asleep, still thinking about how his mother loves him and how his father is leaving them both. Dear diary, tough writing session today, but I remain centered and balanced. I do miss the beach though, I used to go there a lot to feel centered. Water seems to ground me to the shore somewhere back in Long Beach. Dr. C stands outside the front door of her psychiatry office. She watches a big yellow taxi pull away and notes with a sigh that she's just missed it. And she's just glad, for once, that she's missed it. Her wide open eyes focus farther, like a dilating telescope, on the back seat of the disappearing taxi. And she thinks she sees that she has succeeded in something in whatever primal therapy she had to offer, or maybe, she thinks, Ben and Georgie, and Claudia, too, have succeeded in whatever goals they might have had for their strange life journey together, and I was just along for the ride, she smiles, the strangely familiar passenger in the back seat wears an oversized black hat with a pom-pom on top, she stares after him, but he doesn't look back, Dr. C still remembers the Benjamin J. Scriber who walked into her office that day, skipped, hopped and jumped into my office, but in a wholly different light. I really wondered what we might discover behind that creepy demeanor and the kooky costumes. So I wondered and wondered, and poked and probed, into the black holes and blind spots behind the masks and I kept on wondering until we reached the goal, I guess, whatever the goal is, and so... Ben J. Scriber, say hello and goodbye to Georgie B. Gust and give my best to Claudia Nisbet. Dear Diary, I'm not usually that political, but I have been thinking a lot lately that we are making it through this world together, while it's about time we all turn the page. When all human beings and living creatures are given equality and freedom, it'll inspire our doing right whether or not we are able to make ourselves feel something we do not feel. We can make ourselves do right in spite of our feelings, whether it be rage signs, or not, on social media platforms, plus signs, or equal signs, with so many people increasing support of all human rights, it can and will inspire many others to take more action small changes, regarding any form of discrimination. I, too, would rather see any equality signs and images supporting love itself, than pictures of angry animals and ironic self-shots, today, of course there's a time for everything, as I see it, it's we, the people who create change, same-sex marriage seems at the forefront currently, and gay, lesbian, 
bisexual, metrosexual, transgender or not, so many people seem to be stepping up even more, lately. From here, I believe we will all enjoy a freedom that too many do not currently have part 7, postscriptum meanwhile, back at Ben's New Mexico ranch, the cleaning crew could have arrived at any minute, but I still lay there, holding my living, colorful beauty, just letting go, the memories of my life would be lost and forgotten, otherwise, so, despite everybody, despite Claudia and Kelly and Granny and Uncle Martin, and despite the musing Gladys and the amusing Claudia, the many-faced muse she's been for me, I still sit here in the house in Albuquerque, New Mexico, writing my brains out and worrying myself with my own death. Beautiful sagas of alternative songs resonate through the empty room. As the New Agers might say, this room has been attuned to my mindful awareness of self. In other words, it's got me written all over it. It's got semen on the cement walls like a dirty old motel room, and vaginal membranes from some psych war panties I collected off some slut, some crazy bitch I picked up but aside from that, dear diary, I suppose I do stir up controversy, the hermit I may indeed be, I do enjoy provoking disagreement and even disapproval, even in public and online, for sure, my approaches to life and art, though a paradox, I consider myself an anti-artist who has this burning urge to create and add to creation, which I believe, defines art alongside self-expression, it's this effect of dichotomy, I seem to provoke disagreement and disapproval Ben J. Screeber I send my short story to one of the editors, by email, fast, it's a true story from the other day, I think it will read as a commercially viable something or other, I wish Kelly would understand, I pray now, and I go to sleep, women and angels, they hover over me silently and quietly, I'm fucking loving it, loving it, yeah, dear diary, ideas seem to be pulled right from my pockets and all the while, there's already too much creation as it is, and has been for a while now, I just add to it, in stockpiles, for that's the only way, here's an idea, rather a self-diagnosis, in that I seem to suffer from this dynamic of narcissism with no self-esteem, since low or high levels would be artificial, either one has self-esteem or one does not, so why not add to my comorbid diagnosis, I suffer, and laugh, suffering from this gosh darn savant syndrome checking the mail it's early morning, too early for anyone to be up, yet not even 9am, I stumble out of bed, grab my glasses, pull on a robe, and head down 16 floors to the mailboxes, it's Tuesday, and I always have mail on Tuesdays, leftover mail from Monday, I never check the mail on Monday, maybe there will be something from my publisher, who keeps sending back everything I write, usually with these cute, coy, cryptic little notes, and there, in the back of the mailbox, jammed between a circular from Amazon.com and one for wanted, Largest collection of adult DVDs is the letter from William and William Publishing. I tear it open in the hallway. Carrie's letter flutters to the floor. I bend, pick it up, and I damn near give myself a hernia. I'm putting on weight these days, going from 160 to 190 and then bouncing way up to a diabetic 265, all in the space of six and a half months. I think I'm dying. Hell. I don't think I know, Carrie's letter is not encouraging, 
in a strange way, your short story, Second Skins, makes sense following the truth of what really happened, I guess, since our coffee marathon in LA, when you try to explain everything, you're quite a handful, Ben, otherwise, the stuff you've been sending in recently has been point-blank twisted and unnatural, but somehow, it makes sense, it's hard to try to think of this as fiction. Even for someone who doesn't know Benjamin Scriber, it's going to sound autobiographical. The biggest problem I see with the story is that it casts Georgie as the hero, when he isn't even a plausible anti-hero. That's the problem with Carrie Banks. She wants me to be either a hero or an anti-hero. When, of course, I'm neither. Instead of writing back, I sit at home and obsess and wonder why I can't get anything published. People tell me I'm the next Bukowski or Burroughs, which means nothing to me. I write what I write, I fill it with cheap sex, what I know, what I'm good at, and wait for the go-ahead. I am still waiting for the contract. So far, I've been waiting a year and a half. That's 43 chapters, 92,322 words, mostly about Heidi and Mio, maybe, I should say, mostly about Georgie's Claudia. Dr. C said in our second session that I have a problem with obsessive thinking. No shite, Sherlock I blurted back to her. What else is new she also said that George is not a real character, that he's nothing but an alter ego stuffed with all the funky feelings I refuse to feel, and when I get healthy, Georgie will die an appropriate death, and then, maybe I can move on with my life. But whoever said I wanted to move on, where would I be moving to? Anyway, dear diary, I suppose to suffer from demonstrating this horrifically profound and prodigious capacity or these inherent abilities within this otherwise schizophrenic and effective spectrum, to reach far in excess of what would be considered normal, I mean it's one of the more pleasant aspects of such a complex handicap, I learn to love it, laugh at it, when I can, and just taking pride in it, it's not like it's going to harm me or anybody else. And if I do stir someone up, it's on him or her. I tend to move ahead, even through the stories. This might be off-topic but I love scoffing, especially when the word scoff is subtitled in a brilliant foreign film. Those are the best. R, how random it is, how it all comes in, all the hypermanic thoughts and schizophrenic voices, all at once, I think my train of thought has left the station again, at this point. So I have a cigarette and write more and more. I am the energizer bunny on Kelly. I got another email from Kelly. I think she likes me. Yeah, me. Give me a fucking break, already. Still, I wish she'd send a picture something to add to my private collection. Dear Ben, your novel, if that's what it is, is fascinating work, with its gritty, impersonal sex. It tears my heart in two. That much is very nicely done. The problem though, as I see it, is that your reader cannot possibly follow your train of thought all the way through the 400 odd pages of living colorful beauty, it's too disjointed, you don't want to lose the reader, do you, you want them to feel for you and cry for you and bleed for you, and work through the whole mess with you, right, so, how about adding a through line, just to lead your reader by the hand through whatever story you have to tell, does that make sense? Oh, and, by the way the quote includes one-on-one, -on -one, just like you asked. 
Best of luck with this incredible project. Let me know how else I can help. Sincerely, Kelly about Kelly. I love this whole business she has of saying, does that make sense? She's my editor, but she's dominant. I want to be her servant, her slave boy, her boy toy, her big beef on the hoof. She must have a habit of asking if that makes sense. I can hear it in my mind, just like she is speaking it to me. I can tell where she's at and her little quirks like that really get me going. But on the novel what's she saying about the novel? I think about it over a coffee mug filled with espresso. Ten minutes have passed, still nothing. Yeah, Kelly's okay. She's cool with my disjointed prose style and my kinky sex parts. Anyway, she's a hell of a lot better than Kevin at Gold Hand, who writes, Mr. Screeber, first off, no, not the Trish piece. Too cliched. Perhaps the main storyline is rooted like this, the romantically doomed neighbors, Georgie and Claudia, are an attractive couple who, having rushed their passion in each other from the very beginning, split up. They are both inflicted with a low sense of self-worth as their actions show. Blah, 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 yap yap yap. Just self-important editorial hack work, you can tell he doesn't really get it. Coming up next. When I broke up with the real Claudia, Heidi, dear diary, I have many people in my life some come and some go and I call the few people I trust, my notorious realty mediators, another living colorful beauty, I just wrote you a letter, Kelly, it's real garbage, it's an attempt to write you a letter, but it came across really bitter and angry, I meant it to be genuine and friendly but, once again, it obsesses on the negatives and on my pathetic self and my giving up, so to speak my possessing you. It lets you know that I want to be left alone to rot it out, rotting it out. A good new title for living, colorful beauty, don't you think? I just can't stand that I see myself in you. It's ugly and scary, or, at least, it scares me. I've left the letter on the kitchen counter, along with your mail and mine. There are my diabetes prescriptions and my poster from mail order, you may open it for a look, it's small, but it's a good quality frame-able poster, and it says how I'm feeling lately, fuck you, you fucking fuck, the new paper, 100 sheets, is on your desk, and my new t-shirts are hanging in my bedroom closet, the one closest to the entry, in case you are interested, I don't like the I haven't escaped. They gave me a day pass one, anymore, I'll keep it for the house, but you should try to read, if you feel up to it, the aqua blue one with the psychedelic insignia on it, it says fuck you, kind of in code, sorry, don't take it personally, sometimes I just say, fuck you, to everything and everybody, it's just my stuff, you understand, I am still angry and I have a little energy left. I meant what I said in the letter about your distance and my inferiority, I'm losing myself and losing you, this isn't some emotional intimacy we're getting involved in, it's all my flaws and faults we're getting involved in my twitches and tics and the schizophrenia, I'm killing you, more than I could ever kill myself, I just can't help it it's just me, you must be a wreck, my letter was meant to be apologetic, to acknowledge my regression and my false sense of self-worth, you could call it depression, I'm not saying it's worse than that, it's like, forgive the choo-choo train metaphor, I'm dragging along the whole freight train of these personalities, these identities, 
the reactions of others and this philosophy, which just shrank up to fit me earlier in life than it did for most people, who will live to an older age than I will. Anyway, back on the train, once the train runs along the tracks, the caboose moves forward, but is always looking back, like in my journals from the Claudia intermission, RLB reader, looking back, the caboose doesn't really contribute any power, not like the engine in the front, the caboose isn't really necessary, like me, and surely cabooses like me stay at the tail end of society, hanging out with damaged freight, the old worn out body, seeming silly and out of place beside the cars that make up the majority or essence of the train. You could just uncouple and nobody would notice, or care, as life goes on without you, the train will still stop and go, hold itself together, and function terrifically either way, but eventually, without you, it will run out of energy, grind to a stop, or, otherwise, die, Ben, dearest Ben, there's absolutely no reason to apologize for anything, I think you're pretty awesome. You're the hugest and most adored part of me that I can imagine. Kelly dear diary, instead of spending time after time over editing my work given my first drafts are literally my best, exterminating all the rational thoughters for my current piece, I'm definitely going to leave all the written pieces on the floor, leaving them be as they are then move the hell on. It will all turn out just fucking fine. I just know it. I can bicker with my editors later and dance my attendance at the opera house when all is done. I always wanted to see Don Giovanni live on stage. Anyway, I'm on a real roll today. Rolling up my sleeves and on the go back to the heat. Dear Kelly, I'm so sorry in advance for coming across as bitter. You'll see why I'm bitter after a few minutes reading. But as for living, colorful beauty well, looking over your critique, haven't I left enough room in this novel for reader interpretation? Who is my reader? Didn't I leave any place for the readers of this, my greatest work to date, to come up with judgments, images, and emotions of their own? Have I simply chosen certain fragments of this anguished life? And, yes, haven't I done a real good job of getting into the depressing, yet fascinating, train wreck mentalities of both Georgie and myself? But is that all I've done? Is that all I can do? I guess so. I'm pretty sure about that, I question this work now, the whimper, the bang it's not really over yet, is it, tell me it's not over yet, you're telling me that I should keep combing the hair out of this piece, that it's still not good enough, for whom, I've got to spend another year polishing writing and working on new editions and editions, alack, alas, I don't know, I know I haven't put enough provocative scenery into it much less incorporated any real action and dialogue, or any depth I know, yeah, praise the Lord for no depth, by the way, I know you still wish you might feel some more empathy for the characters in my life, as part of the living, colorful beauty, you are my living colorful beauty, honey, but as you read this, can't you feel anything more than, oh, okay, I see he's just another Chuck Palahniuk wannabe, you, He's the next fucking Bukowski, or fucking Kathy Acker as in lust as I'm with Kathy Acker am I to be just some creative writing clone with the knockoff novel whose ramblings sometimes resonate in your crotch, in your heart and to call this book, I'm sorry, something happened yesterday, and I'm hurt and, um, spent, to call this novel, if that's what it is, 
unfinished business what the hell is this, you think that I, as the writer, the narcissist, the fucking cupcake lover, whatever the hell I'm you say I just have a lot of imagination and a witty eye for detail, experimental structure, and I'll add, peace of mind, random thoughts, this is my aunt, this is sex with a condom, this is vanilla sky with Tom Cruise, this is fucking tops, baby, hey, listen up now, this stuff is about hope, I thought hope for everything that was unclear before, hope that things would come to fruition and become real, tangible, loving, and peaceful, things, like us, like we want to be, and, without hope, so what, okay, if you want to get all at it why on me, I'm sorry, baby, I'm trying to get to the point, please bear with me here, here's another non sequitur, our fucking dogs are fucking barking again at the demons in the fucking house, we need to fucking soundproof the office, okay, I've had enough, I am just babbling and ranting, now, I know, I'm really trying to be level-headed and nice, here, it's nice, okay, Kelly, baby, this is your brain on drugs, like this is what I found in my frustrating venture out there in the outside world, all on my own, yesterday when I walked out by myself, I walked all the way to our usual psychic advisor the one we've been seeing since we moved out here in the desert together and this is nothing about those silly tapes, the psychic, just so future readers know, was Sabrina, but Sabrina wasn't there, and Sister Clara was filling in for her, Sister Clara was down the street at the new age shop, as usual, but I wasn't prepared for the strange, creepy things and awful demons that would follow me there, and just so you know, Kelly, I do love you, you lady to love, and I want you, I want you so badly, do I have you, Kelly like I want, do I, really, Kelly, I know we are both still new at all this, this whole being lovers and living together gig, and I admit to my obsession and that I'm dependent on you, just as I'm dependent on my fucking family, they are still staring at me, but I'm happy, you see, Sister Clara, you probably don't remember, but we met her at the meditations we go to she was there the first night, I think, the first night we attended, when we met that massage therapist who said she could help with the Tourette's stuff, anyway, Clara was sort of off to the side with the shop owner, Evelyn, she's probably in her early 50s, has this straight, shoulder length, grey hair, a huge Celtic cross pendant, and dresses in the southwestern new age style, you know, a poncho and pagan shoes with huge buckles, silver and stone rings galore on unpainted fingers, Nails kind of like yours a little long and natural looking, do you remember her, do you remember Clara, so I step inside, asking for Sabrina, I'm extremely out of breath, since the long walk to the new age shop was exhausting what is it, a mile or so, the shopkeepers ask me if I'm alright, because I'm strangely red faced and unsure of myself, of course, I tell them it's my allergies, although I'm sure that isn't true. The shop women and the owner, specifically, you know, they look rather inquisitive strangely so and they ask where you are and I tell them you're home working on your own book, as you are, and I add that you're excited because it looks like you'll probably be showcased in the New Yorker in a few months. Finally, one by one, the new age shopkeepers inform me that Clara, who we both barely know, or at least I barely know her, wants to see me in private.
And somehow, I feel a sense of disillusionment. The owner, Evelyn, she's that larger, older lady who always talks about her son, escorts me to the back room and into one of the smaller psychic chambers off to the side, and Clara's seated there in front of me. I sit down in a chair, like I'm her client, or something, and I'm, like, totally wondering what's going on, you see, when I'm with the new agers, I even start to talk like them, so I ask her, hey, Clara, what is happening mid-stroke of the pen, Kelly walks in, something about her seems slightly unreal, she wears angelic clothing, a bridal veil, she stands in the doorway, apart from me, hey, let me read you something I wrote this morning, okay her voice seems to echo just the slightest bit, I nod, you are the sweetest man alive, and I thank God every day that you have come into my life, she reads from a scrap of paper held in her hand, thank you for the flowers, the orchids, the bonsai tree, and the fickers, they are so alive like our relationship, I love you very, very much, I look at her, I want to hold your hand, even if it's just for the one second, if you don't give up on me, then I hope you'll do nothing different, except just help me realize how bad I'm, because I need to really surrender to that, I say in a rush, I see me in you, and I can't stand it, what should I do, should I let myself die, Kelly, I don't want to die, if I die, who would I be, would I have to be me, what about Georgie, what about Claudia, dear diary, all that I'm is the result of what I have thought. My mind is everything. What I think, I become fortune. I step inside the small booth finding psychic, Sister Clara, waiting for me already. I sit across from her, like I'm a client or something. Hey, Clara, what is happening? I say. Sister Clara removes a tiny meat spiral binder from a small paper bag at her side. She lays it on the flimsy, cloth-covered reading table between her and me. Ben, I'm aware that we've never really been properly introduced, she begins, her voice quiet and soothing, and what I have to say to you is rather private and personal, in fact, it's very private and personal, it's about you, Ben, and it touches the most intimate, secret, and most painful parts of your life, but, to put it simply, she coughs, I was in the middle of a meditation and I started writing down, drawing what I saw and what I saw were things about you, been things from your subconscious mind, or maybe from your present and past lives, your previous reincarnations and your karmic chains and I couldn't bear to let this go by without witness, I blink, really I'm still not impressed, fairly certain that Sister Clara is just trying to hype me up for paid readings, until she opens the first page of her little red notebook, Clara flips the pages of the notebook to a leaf covered in some sketches of various feminine figures interacting with a small male baby. This is you, Ben. Not Georgie, not Benji. This is you and your grandmother, Ben your real grandmother. Not your mother, not your aunt. This is your real, biological grandmother. I could see what Clara had drawn, a precious little boy, an infant boy with a little penis, too and the grandmother was holding the little boy, me the baby, by the dick and only by the fucking dick, this woman, my own grandmother, was torturing me, but how could sister Clara get this from my subconscious mind, or whatever how could I have remembered it, what the fuck, I thought, 
And then Clara started flipping through the filled-in pages a whole notebook of sick and demented art, of me and my grandmother, and then me together with my aunt and then my teachers from nursery school, even the nanny from Trinidad, who was supposed to be taking care of me when I was at home separately, they are all performing very disturbing acts of violence and aggression on my innocent infantile genitals, in one of them, a nurse of some kind, dark complexioned performs medical procedures on my skin, in the private areas medicating, stitching, and bandaging my bottom and my little baby cock, I'm in shock, I can't think, I just keep staring at that notebook and its sick and demented pictures, and I wonder what the fuck has been happening in my subconscious mind, since those earliest of years, since my sex life began, rape, and what that has to do with who, or what, I'm now. To put it crudely, Ben, this one is cosmetic surgery, she explains, just a cover-up job, so that you wouldn't know later on what they did to you in your earliest childhood, you might have a subconscious memory now and then, but you wouldn't know what to do with it, until, finally, I picked up the impressions and pictures in your subconscious mind, Sister Clara hands the small meat spiral notebook to me, I leave the new age shop without another word choking up and sobbing, as if staggering from a heavy blow, large metal keys and bells that hang from the swinging door jingle as the door closes behind me, I walk slowly home, clutching the notebook to my chest, when my lungs threaten to end me, I stop for a broken moment, I can strangely, somehow, still manage to breathe in and out, finally, somehow, still manage to really breathe, R, God, just let me catch my breath, my head clears as I keep on walking, you should see this thing, Kelly, I say to myself, this fucking notebook, this fucking picture book that sister Clara showed me, and the fucking pictures she drew of my grandmother and my nanny and all those crazy women, doing those sick and demented things to me when I was just a helpless little baby, it tells me things I never would have known about myself, things I never would have wanted to know. It tells me why I'm such a fucked up human being, why I'm what I'm, why I can't function like a normal human being, why I can't love myself, or anybody else, that's what they meant. All those psychos and doctors and cops, when they said I needed help and told me I better take it and I didn't want help, I really didn't want to know, but now I know what I'm and why I needed the help, now I know what happened to me back then. When I was just a baby in my grandmother's house but I still don't even know, what do I have there, down below, is it even a natural cock, I mean, a natural penis, what is it is it me, I still don't get it now, do I, do I and I dissolve into tears so hard that I can't think anymore, choked up and sobbing, crying like a baby, I kick away the dirt at my feet, but I can't kick it well enough, or hard enough, to make it better. I'm almost home, now, I only have whatever dignity is left in me, I only have the dignity of who or what I'm, and whatever I might be, left there inside me, that my poor, pathetic, hopeless self, that pitiful, abused past I'm only and just that, I am just me, and even that's nothing but a fiction, nothing but a lie I invent to disguise my past and hide, oh, God, or someone, something, please. Give me the courage just to be me. When I finally stumble back to the house, 
There's no car in the driveway. Your car? No car. I thought you were already home by now, baby, I mutter. I check my pockets and groaningly kneel and peer beneath the doormat. No keys? The sun is hot now. I can scarcely breathe. I pound with both fists on the door. Kelly, let me in I cry, as though she's really there. All I hear is the dogs whining and barking at my strangely familiar voice. I know we started out pretty rough here, Kelly, I plead. I knew my family would never approve of us, not even if we got married. But I'm waiting for you, baby. It's just like you said, the stuff we write, the shite we say, we make it real we manifest ourselves in the world, I hear what I've said I cease banging. The dogs are quiet now, I can hear the dogs still barking, Kelly, Kelly there's no answer, everything's completely silent and empty a pin could drop, I scuff my shoes on the dirt and gravel of the driveway, sit, Ben, sit, so you can digest everything, I command, I sit on the hard rocky driveway, I just want to live. And if that means carrying on these stupid, superficial relationships with family and friends, then so be it. Please, God, just let me live, dear diary. I believe that it is better to tell the truth than a lie. I believe it is better to be free than to be a slave. And I believe it is better to know than to be ignorant inside outside of the noises of twilight crickets and coyotes, and dogs. I sit before a long line of cameras, still set up to record just like before, with Georgie, I speak, I am still here in the psych ward, no, I mean, in my home with the cinder blocks and cement and stuff, with my electronic bracelets and monitors, I haven't been able to escape yet, but they give me day passes and things, but I'm home I'm still at home, you see, I stand, flinching, and cover the camera lenses, one at a time, until they see nothing but blackness, I sigh, and continue to speak, at least I'm not alone, after all, they still might need to establish the cause of death, I point accusingly at the cameras, they don't see, it's there in these things, in the tapes, if they ever bothered to look for it, I stand up and gather together my papers, my keys, and a notebook from the desk, I can feel it, I really can, I say for the benefit of the cameras, we're all getting older and wiser, and sometimes, you just have to listen to the sounds of your life the profound silence that resides somewhere inside you somewhere in the emptiness, the deep remarkable hollow sounding thing, I light a cigarette and take a puff, then set it down on the ashtray leaving it to burn, but I can't see the sounds anymore, obviously, I can only feel the colors, and they are brilliant and alive, they're living beautiful colors, I turn to go, I speak to the doorway and my voice echoes through the empty house, as for tonight, I'm going to go get groceries and fertilizer for the lawn outside, and I can't forget the firewood, finally, we can build a beautiful fire tonight, maybe we'll find the living, colorful beauty inside, the cigarette drops off of the ashtray and onto the desk, then it rolls off onto the carpeted floor, it must have, I don't see, it's okay, now. All that is past me now, I hope, I just have to hold on to this this present, this unbroken moment, and who or what I'm now I just might have found myself, at last, we'll just have to see about that, Kelly and me, we'll just have to see, I leave, dear diary, I think it's about time now that I take a break from you, at least for the time being, 
I've got to get back to the other writing at hand. I suppose I'll write back in you upon completion of my book. I'm going to create a few more sections and let it go. Alas Ben, the story continues.